The program you're about to hear is part four of a multi-part series on the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. If you missed the earlier episodes and you like your story in chronological order, you might want to go check out those earlier pieces before you listen to this. If you don't care about those kind of things or you already have done so, well then without further ado, Death Rose of the Republic, part four. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I always try to remind myself that there's something a little voyeuristic about history, especially the kind of history that I enjoy and that many of you enjoy, that wide-sweeping, grand events sort of stuff that is so fascinating to read about. You know, the sort of incidents that kind of remind you that history is a little bit like a great cosmic scientific experiment with human beings sort of cast into the role of lab rats. And you get this example where you can look at how people behaved in this given stressful situation or that given stressful or tragic or hopeless or whatever situation and be fascinated, you know, by the reading material. And yet I always try to remind myself that the people who were living through these great cosmic scientific experiments, the lab rats, if you will, would probably not be so enamored with the idea that their trials and tribulations were making such um, you know, fascinating entertainment for us. Many of these stories that we relate are the most tragic things these people have ever lived through, whatever they may be. I mean, I think about the people who were dying in the story that we did once on the Black Plague. I mean, you wonder how they would react to find out that their tale makes fascinating modern reading. And the only thing I can think of that alleviates this you know, little form of voyeuristic guilt that I have is that those people themselves were just as taken with the trials and tribulations and stories of their ancestors as we are of them. So perhaps it's a human quality. Once the pain and suffering has worn off enough for it to become what we call history, it makes fascinating reading. And the results of that experiment where human beings are cast in the role of laboratory rats, well, it might be evil to do the experiment, but that doesn't make the data and results you get from them any less interesting. And a perfect example is what's going on in this Roman story where we are in it, the Dan Carlin version, as I like to call it, of the Roman Republic's decline and fall. We're in about 87, 86 BCE where Rome's in this weird situation. And the weird situation is one faction has taken over the city. Now, it's not that strange because one faction had just taken over the city, um, you know, a year before. And then one faction had just taken over the city a year before that. But what had been going on essentially was a longstanding problem in Rome had finally gone ballistic. And the city was convulsing through a couple of different quick changes. The longstanding problems are these political problems going back all the ways to the times of the 133 BCE era with guys like Tiberius Gracchus. And they set in motion all these forces in the Roman system that change it. And if you believe the ancient historians, uh, degenerate it and the combination of the hyperambition of the Roman figures in the story with the decline of the political system and its inability to handle the growth of the Roman state created the conditions where Sulla essentially broke an ancient taboo and marched on the city with legionaries in 87 BCE. Now, this had been a longstanding no-no, but once he broke it, well, there was no reason for someone to not do it again. And that's what happened as soon as Sulla went to the east to fight the war against Mithridates the Great of Pontus. 
a war that was considered to be so wealthy and so valuable and so loaded with the potential for prestige that he considered it worth breaking the ancient taboo of marching on Rome with Roman soldiers in order to secure that command. And he thinks he's got Rome settled and the political violence calmed down and the fire, you know, amongst the people tamed. So he leaves, takes the army with him and goes east. And of course, the fire you know, springs right up again. And this time the fire has as its aid, you know, one of the greatest figures in our story, the great Caius Marius. And Marius dies, you know, quickly after retaking the city with Cinna and killing a bunch of conservatives, and uh, having, we're told, plans for doing a lot more damage to Sulla. When we're told he dies in a fit of nightmares over, you know, the lion coming back to the lion's lair, as Plutarch puts it. And what's interesting to me is, you know, you have to try to put yourself, if you're going to be a real voyeur of history, you got to put yourself in the situation of a guy like Gaius Marius and wonder, you know, who could make him feel that way? In my mind, see, I grew up in an era where the action heroes on, you know, the really bad dudes were guys like Charles Bronson. And the way that the filmmakers made them good guys was they always made some bad guy do something terrible and, you know, unjust to some friend or something of Charles Bronson. And then Charles Bronson would be acting like the evil axe murderer, except he was doing it for justice. He was going around and he's just this baddest dude. What did Mike Tyson call himself? The baddest dude on the planet? baddest man on the planet. That's what Charles Bronson was when I was growing up. And you think to yourself, that's what Gaius Marius is too. He is the baddest man on the planet. Who is he having such terrible nightmares about that he can't sleep and that it may have killed him due to a stress-induced stroke, some historians think. Who's Charles Bronson afraid of? Maybe Charles Bronson's afraid of another guy like him. Maybe Charles Bronson's afraid of Clint Eastwood. And that's what Lucius Cornelius Sulla's like. And not just that, maybe Charles Bronson's not afraid of Clint Eastwood in his prime, but Caius Marius is not in his prime anymore. Sulla is, but Marius is an old man at this time. Not just an old man, but an old man whose opponent has the army, the really good army, the one that's gaining experience and you know, beating the hell out of Mithridates of Pontus every day. And Marius must have known that maybe he could have taken on Clint Eastwood you know, in his best day, but he wasn't in his best day anymore, and Clint Eastwood was coming back. And the stress may have killed him. I've read historians who think it did. But he wasn't the only one under stress. And this is, you know, again, one of those moments where, you know, history turns human beings into laboratory rats because you can read in the sources that the stress caused by the knowledge that the lion would be returning to his lair was affecting multiple layers of Roman society. Appian talks about how people start seeing, you know, religious things happening and portents, he calls them, you know, divine signs that something terrible is going to happen. And these people are living with this stress for several years. And one of the interesting parts about Stanley Bing's book, Rome, Inc., was when he said and tried to impress upon the reader this time lag between finding out something bad is on the horizon and how long it actually takes that bad thing to get to you. And I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but he said something like, you know, if one nation declares war on another nation today, you half expect the cruise missiles to arrive in five minutes, or the bombing to start the next day. And he said, in the ancient world, you could find out some terrible man-eating, you know, tribe of killers that was, you know, strong and numerous, was on its way to you, but wasn't going to arrive for six months. And what that does... On the upside is it gives you a lot of time to prepare, but on the downside, it gives you a lot of time to stress out about 
you know, the potential for the very worst thing happening. And the knowledge that Sulla was going to be returning to Rome and that at that point something terrible was going to happen was eating the society up in the same way our society would eat itself up if we found out, you know, that something like a meteor or asteroid was on a collision course for Earth, but it wasn't going to be here for a couple of years. I mean, think about how, you know, the stress level of that built up over time would start to bubble and boil over. I mean, we'd be seeing divine prophecies too, probably. Here's what Appian says about this weird period while everyone's waiting for the hammer to come down. Quote, Many unexplained attacks of panic were experienced all over Italy, both individually and collectively, and people remembered ancient, more terrifying prophecies, and there were many portents. A mule foaled, a pregnant woman gave birth to a viper instead of a baby, and the god caused a great earthquake and knocked down some temples in Rome. And remember, the Romans attached great weight to such things. The temple on the Capitol, which had been built some 400 years previously by the kings, was burnt down for no reason that could be discovered. All these occurrences seem to portend the great number of the dead, and the conquest of Italy, and of the Romans themselves, and the capture of the city, and the alteration of its constitution. End quote. The normally understated Appian makes it clear that individually and collectively, people were freaking out as the pressure built and built and built for this, you know, showdown that was going to happen whenever Sulla finished this war, you know, against Mithridates in the east. And Sulla was trying to wrap it up quickly because he realized that every day he waited, more bad things were happening to his allies in Rome. You know, after Marius dies, the guy who he helped retake Rome with, Cinna, is left in charge all by himself. And Marius had a long history, remember, of hooking up with people that compensated for his weaknesses. He was an unparalleled general and an admirable guy. A lot of people loved him, but um, not a great politician. So he was always allying himself with these popular demagogues, which is what some of the historians call them, radical Democrats, great speakers, rabble-rousers, whatever you want to say. And the latest one was Cinna, and Cinna actually outlives him and gets to be in charge of Rome all by himself for a few years while everyone's waiting for this showdown between Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood to happen. Of course, Charles Bronson's dead, and Cinna is a poor replacement for him. He does, however, manage to get himself um, either reelected or reappointed or sometimes just appoints himself to the top job of consul year after year during this little strange period while everyone's waiting for the showdown to happen. One time the vote is supposedly rigged. Another time people are bribed above and beyond the normal amount of bribing. Another time Sin is busy outside of Rome and doesn't want to comply with the law that says he has to return to the city for elections. So he just proclaims himself consul and nobody does anything. Part of the reason why is that the people who would be the natural counterweight to Cinna and his political faction are leaving the city all the time. It's part of, you know, the bad things that are being done to all of Sulla's friends and allies that are sending these refugees away from Rome. And we're told that there's a trail of them leaving the city all the time and heading east toward Sulla and the protection of his armies. And these are some of the most wealthy refugees you've ever seen. They completely defy the typical stereotype. Because normally when you think of refugees, you think of people in torn clothing, who lack shoes, maybe they're hungry and tired. These refugees had their wardrobes with them and their furniture, their ornate furniture and their art and their treasure chest and their slaves to carry them. These are some of the people who are the richest, most powerful, aristocratic, august figures in Rome. Members of the Senate 
who are of the optimate faction, people whose names are so famous they grace the pages of Roman history for centuries before this time, and they're leaving because it's not exactly a good time to be an aristocrat in Rome when the radical demagogues or populists or you know radicals, whatever you want to call them, are in charge. And there are other times in history where you can see similarly wealthy refugees fleeing uh, areas where the people have taken control, or at least the representatives of the people have taken control. Look at revolutionary France during the late 1700s when you know people were being guillotined. There were a lot of French nobles who fled the country for exile in more conservative European monarchies while they awaited the restoration of French royalty because had they stayed in France, they you know, were good targets for the mob. Same thing with the Russian nobility when the Tsarist regime fell near the end of the First World War. You saw more people with Russian aristocratic names in foreign capitals than you'd ever seen before because to go back to what was, you know, becoming Bolshevik Russia and the Soviet Union was to face a firing squad in a lot of cases or prison or re-education camps. So you're seeing the same kind of thing in Rome as these Roman nobles and great families head east towards Sulla and at one point Sulla will write back to the Roman Senate and say that he has so many august Roman figures with him and members of the Senate that he's got a virtual Senate in the East with him. And if Sulla is the lion who's going to return to the lion's den at some point, the people that are arriving to the East with the you know, horrific tales of what Cinna and you know, the mob are doing to the wealthy people's estates and territories and everything, if Sulla is the lion... His compatriots who are leaving Rome are providing him with a list of people that should be on the menu. When he goes back to Rome, there are certain people you should make sure you eat. And here we have a list of them for you. And if you go back to Rome during this period, while a lot of these people from the conservative Roman faction are fleeing the city, the Senate is still operating. During the strange period, 87, 86, 85, 84 BCE, even though Cinna is the strong man, even though he keeps getting the top job over and over again, and even though he's kind of like a puppet master, the Senate and everything still functions. This is one of the great things about Roman history is that no matter how weird things get, the institutions go on as though everything's normal most of the time. As a matter of fact, the Senate is such a resilient institution that a long time after Rome has ceased to be a republic in any way, shape, or form, when it's run by one guy at the top, an emperor for all intents and purposes, the Senate continues to go about its business acting as though, you know, it's still doing something important. I'm still buying and selling favors and all that stuff. Here's what historian Adrian Goldsworthy says about it. It's great. Quote, Cinna and Marius had killed some senators and caused others to flee abroad, but the majority of the Senate remained in Rome and continued to meet. Many senators were not strong supporters of Cinna and his associates, but equally had no particular love for Sulla. The Senate's debates appear to have been comparatively free, and at times it voted for measures that were not particularly pleasing to Cinna, for instance, when it began negotiations with Sulla. Yet it could not restrain him or prevent consecutive consulships, for in the end, he, meaning Cinna, controlled an army, and the Senate did not. In Cinna's Rome, the Senate convened, the courts functioned, and elections were held, creating at least a veneer of normality. There was a remarkable elasticity in the main institutions of the Republic, which tended to continue running in some form under almost any circumstances, interrupted only temporarily by riot and bloodshed. Senators' lives revolved around the doings of favors to win support, gaining influence, and seeking office. Whatever the circumstances, they naturally continued to try to do these things as far as was possible. End quote. So even while everyone awaited the hammer to come down and the feeling of 
you know, bottled up stress was getting worse and worse all the time. The senators were still out there taking bribes and doing favors and acting important and vying for whatever office they could get in what had essentially become a temporary dictatorship. And you could see that it wasn't a kind of a total dictatorship under Cinna because, as Goldsworthy pointed out, the Senate had some freedom of action to do things that Cinna didn't like. For example, Goldsworthy says, negotiate with Sulla. They knew, as everyone else did, this terrible sword of Damocles that hung over their heads, and they were trying to do what we would probably do in a similar situation. They were trying to see if they could ward off what appeared to be inevitable. And if the lion had to return to the lair, was there some way to shrink the size of the dinner menu or maybe eliminate the idea of a meal entirely? And some of the letters that go back and forth are recorded by Appian. Uh, for example, he has one absolutely chilling letter from Sulla back to the Senate where he explains in a tone that sounds a little like someone who's saying, after all the things I've done for you, look how you've treated me. And he writes back to the Senate who's trying to create a sort of a unity party to mediate between the different sides so that we don't have to have a terrible holocaust when Sulla returns. And here's what Sulla writes back to the Senate, according to Appian, quote, Sulla wrote arrogantly to the Senate with a catalog of his achievements against Jugurtha in Numidia when he was an officer, in the Kimbric War when he was a deputy commander, in Calicia when he was governor, in the Social War and as consul, but boasted above all about the recent Mithridatic campaign, listing all the many peoples which Mithridates had annexed, but which he himself had won back for Rome. And he placed no less emphasis on the fact that he had welcomed men who had fled to him in desperation after being driven out of Rome by Cinna, and that he was helping them in their misfortunes. In return for these services, he said, his opponents had declared him an enemy of the state, raised his house to the ground, and killed his friends, while his wife and children had only just managed to make their escape to him. But he would soon be there to act in the interest of these refugees and the whole of Rome, and to exact vengeance from the perpetrators of these deeds. As for the other citizens, including the newly enfranchised, he would not hold any of them to blame for anything. End quote. This terrified the senators. This sounds like a Clint Eastwood you know, promise. When I come back there, the guilty will pay. And the problem the senators had was they didn't know, you know, which ones of them were going to be called guilty or not. There was a little bit of a gray area on who this lion was going to eat, and these senators were working hard to try to see if they couldn't make sure that they weren't on the menu. The thing is, is that the guy who had real power in Rome at this time, though, Cinna, was definitely on the menu. He had no reason or incentive to compromise with Sulla because any deal that was made wasn't going to spare him. So even though he promised the Senate he would be a good boy and he would not raise troops, they didn't want him doing anything that would jeopardize this deal they were trying to broker with Sulla, didn't want the good faith to be endangered. They tell Cinna, don't do anything to make Sulla mad. And Cinna says, no problem, I won't go raise troops. And he immediately goes out and raises troops. He and the other people that were almost certainly on the dinner menu, no matter what, went to the Italian allies all around Rome. These people that had been recently enfranchised. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history of this period, it's remarkable how fast everything happened. In 91 BCE, Marcus Livius Drusus is assassinated. You know, this politician who it seemed likely was going to give the Italian allies full voting rights and then he's killed, you know, like a Kennedy brother. And he dies, which instantly causes the Italian allies to rise up in rebellion. And you have this social war for a couple of years. 
and then Rome defeats them, and then promptly falls into a civil war itself, you know, practically just a year later, and the Italian allies are now encouraged to join one side of that civil war, the side of people like Cinna and the Populare faction. And Cinna goes to these Italians, you know, while he's trying to raise these legions, to prevent the lion from returning to its lair at all. That's his plan. We're not going to negotiate because I'm on the menu. We're going to fight. And he goes to the Italian allies and essentially tells them, you're on the menu too, no matter what he says. And he guilt trips them. He says, listen, I and my party and these other august Romans who have died in the political violence since 133 BC would never have been in this mess if it wasn't for you. We were championing your cause, the rights of you to be citizens, and now look at the trouble we're in. You kind of owe us your aid, don't you? And then he threw this in, a little bit of human nature at play. This is what Cinna was good at, pushing all the buttons in a speech. And he said, besides, how's it going to be when Sulla comes back and takes over? He who represents a group of people who never liked the words Italian allies and citizenship used in the same sentence anyway. And using his silver tongue which had worked wonders raising legionaries in the past, Cinna raises more armies to face Sulla. Now, it's one thing for a silver-tongued orator like Cinna to be able to raise troops. It's another thing to get them ready, willing, and able, and motivated to fight Sulla's troops. This is where Cinna proved deficient, and he should have known better, because Sulla had already proven to have a certain magic when it came, first of all, to dealing with rival Roman generals, but especially in dealing with Roman legionaries, even if they weren't Sulla's legionaries. For example, right after Gaius Marius dies, Cinna handpicks his successor, a guy who's going to be the consul, a guy named Valerius Flaccus, and he sends Flaccus to the east, apparently on a mission to take over Sulla's command. This seems completely insane, but the sources say that, you know, Flaccus went over there and said something to the effect of, hi, I'm the new consul, and uh, the Senate has decreed that I... I'm going to take over this war against Mithridates from you, and your services are no longer required, and if you would just hand over your legions to me, um, you know, you can be on your way. And of course, this seems insane because there's a death sentence on Sulla's head back in Rome, and the only thing keeping his head on his shoulders are his 40,000 personal, you know, legionary bodyguards that he has with him in the east. But Sulla, showing this certain kind of magic he had with other Roman commanders, convinces Flaccus, a guy who knows the whole story, right, who was sent here by Sulla's bitter enemy to, you know, sneak his army away from him. And Sulla says to him, listen, um, I'm so close in this war against Mithridates. It's almost done. It would take a while to bring you up to speed. You know, that's the way the argument seems to go. Just let me finish the war and then we can deal with this. And he must have been convincing because the sources say Flaccus said, okay. This proved to be his death sentence, though, because there was a guy in the officer corps, probably the sub-commander directly for Flaccus, a guy named Fimbria, who might have been sent there to be the enforcer to make sure things worked out the way Cinna wanted, and he kills Valerius Flaccus in almost a mafia-style hit. And he takes over the armies, and he's much more committed to, you know, pressing the situation against Sulla. Sulla can't work his magic on Fimbria, but he can work his magic, apparently, on Fimbria's legionaries. Because we're told that as Fimbria, you know, erects a camp, getting ready to face off against Sulla's veterans, Sulla decides to build a camp right next to Fimbria's. And he has his legionaries out there digging trenches, you know, within eyesight of the ramparts of Fimbria's camp. And apparently, Fimbria's soldiers 
don't like the look of Sulla's veterans, and they come out of their camp, and Plutarch says, salute Sulla's veterans. You know, they're all Roman soldiers after all. Salute Sulla's veterans, and then spontaneously walk over and pick up shovels and begin helping them dig the trench for their own camp. They've changed sides, and Fimbria kills himself in the Roman camp when he realizes he's lost the whole army. And the ancient sources point out that in one, you know, clever stroke, the fox half of Sulla, remember he's half fox and half lion, a guy like Carbo would have said, another Roman consul, and he's able to double the size of his army with one clever maneuver. And he'll do this over and over again, you know, stealing Roman legionaries basically right out from under their commander. So you'd think Cinna would bear this in mind. It must have been a heck of a shock when it happened a couple of years previously. And now Cinna, who's raised this army to go deal with Sulla, a bunch of green troops, people who've never fought together, fighting under a general who's not that well known. And he begins to transport them to Greece, you know, over the water because he doesn't want them fighting in Italy. Bringing Sulla back to Italy is going to have all kinds of connotations. Better to deal with him on neutral ground. And Appian says that the troops crossing over the water did not go well. And Cinna handled it in a tone-deaf fashion, considering how easily Sulla was able to get troops to change sides in the past and how little these legionaries wanted to face Sulla. Remember, this is a period where legionaries fought for booty and pay and spoils and what their general could do for them after the war. What were they going to get if they beat Sulla's veterans? Nothing. What were they going to get if they lost? They were going to die. So they needed some careful handling on the part of their leader and Cinna handled it in exactly the wrong way. Here's what Appian says about the treacherous crossing of the seas trying to land troops, you know, on the opposite side of the water. Quote, The first detachment crossed safely, but the second encountered a storm, and any man who reached land immediately deserted and hurried home, because they had no intention of fighting against fellow Romans. When the rest heard this, they said that they too were no longer willing to cross to Dalmatia. Cinna, who was furious, summoned them to an assembly with the intention of cowing them, and they gathered angrily, quite ready to defend themselves. When one of the lictors, the lictors are the officers who accompany the consuls, when one of the lictors who was clearing a path for Cinna struck a man who was in his way, another soldier hit the lictor. Cinna ordered his arrest, but everyone began to shout. Stones were thrown at him, and those who were close to him went so far as to draw their daggers and stab him. End quote. If Cinna had been Caius Marius, he might have been able to embarrass and shame these troops into better behavior. That was completely the wrong tactic for Cinna to have taken at this time. Maybe if he'd tried a pep talk, you know, rouse them with patriotism and enthusiasm and talk about the Italian allies, you know, it might have worked. He picked the wrong tactic to use against a bunch of mutinous legionaries, and the mutinous legionaries made him pay with his life. When this happens... His right-hand man, a consul he handpicked, a guy named Carbo, panics. Appian says, quote, Although Carbo recalled from Dalmatia the men who had crossed, he was nervous about the current situation and did not return to Rome, in spite of an urgent appeal from the tribunes to conduct an election of a colleague for himself. When they threatened to deprive him of office, he came back and fixed a date for the consular election. The omens turned out unfavorably, and he announced another day. But that also was unlucky, because lightning struck the precincts of Luna and Cirrus, and the augurs put off the election until after the summer solstice. Thus Carbo remained sole consul. End quote. 
That's a good indication of how the Roman system was being tweaked and loopholes were being found so that you didn't have to return to any sort of normalcy in this period that's akin, you know, to us living in a time when we find out an asteroid's on the way. I mean, I doubt we'd have our government functioning fully normally, and um, it was the same way in Rome. And every time Carbo's got to deal with an election so that he has to share power with some other guy, he finds a reason not to have the election. Oh, bad omens today. Uh, That liver doesn't look good. And then the next time, oh, had some lightning strikes. Obviously, the god doesn't want the election now. And so by hook or by crook, he manages to unconstitutionally stay in power, waiting for the showdown with Sulla. In 83 BCE, with no legionaries there to oppose him, Sulla lands in Italy. And many historians date the actual beginning of the Civil War to this time period, when Sulla and his veterans arrive back home and begin their march on Rome. And the first thing you notice reading the histories is why Cinna did not want this showdown to happen on Italian soil, why he tried to do it in Greece. Because Sulla still has supporters and allies in Italy, And as soon as they hear that he's landed, they begin flocking to him. And many of these allies are very young indeed. And many of them bring troops with them. For example, one of these people is named Crassus. And Crassus, along with some of these other newfound allies, will become important people in the next generation of this story. He's a guy who has a long-standing dispute against the Marian faction. His father and his brother were both killed in the purges by Gaius Marius. And he brings with him a hired army to help Sulla out. He's famously quoted as having said, you can't even call yourself rich if you can't afford to maintain an army. And Crassus could, and he quickly puts it at the disposal of Sulla. So does another young man, also in his early 20s, a flamboyant character named Canaeus Pompeius. Pompey. What's the best way to describe Pompey? He's one of those figures that, you know, there's enough history on some of these ancient figures so that you can start to get three-dimensional images of them. But they also become kind of controversial because you have different viewpoints and how different people saw them. One thing's for sure, he had a nickname that I always think of when I think of Pompey. And the Latin words are adolescentalis carnifex, adolescent butcher. And here he is, you know, coming to Sulla, for his own personal reasons. And this is kind of a difference between he and Crassus. Crassus is going to the natural person for him to go to. His father and brother were killed by Marius, his property confiscated. He's one of the rich people that are members of the other faction. And, you know, he's naturally gravitating towards Sulla, a natural ally. Pompey's not a natural ally, Pompey's an opportunist. He's in his early 20s, and he sees an opportunity to advance farther than most Romans his age have ever seen before them. After all, Rome's got a system. It's a system based on conventions, but it's a pretty solid system. And the system is that you go through these predictable rungs on the ladder. You know, as you're rising in fame and importance and experience and, you know, your resume gets longer. And by the time you're of an age that the Romans considered to be sort of seasoned and ready for leadership, you're in your mid-30s, mid-40s, early 50s. And Rome considered that to be the age where you calmed down and got serious and could be trusted with things like power. But the Roman world is in a period of suspended animation right now. And all of the normal conventions that apply in the regular Roman world are also suspended. And they may never return for all the people living through this time period, no. And so a guy like Pompey doesn't have to wait 10 or 20 years to achieve, you know, fame and fortune in the Roman system. 
under the new rules of the suspended animation period, you can do whatever you can get away with, and he was supposedly sniffing around Cinna's camp for a while, seeing if there was a good place for him there, and if he liked the chances of Cinna winning the Civil War, eventually he raises his own private army and brings it to Sulla's aid and presents it to him. And Sulla figures out Pompey's character right away, we're told. I mean, this is another element of Sulla. You get all through, you know, the histories if you're reading between the lines. Boy, does this guy have a knack for figuring out people's weak points and usually exploiting them. I mean, he's violent when he has to be, and he's extremely violent when he has to be. But he's one of those people that will do all, by hook or by crook, whatever it takes. And with Pompey, he sees a young kid, basically, who's dying for the Roman honors and the dignitas, it's called, and, you know, triumphs and all these things. And Sulla just plays on that. He sees these personality quirks, and he gives extra attention to Pompey, and he flatters him, and he makes him feel important. And Pompey just becomes one of his best lieutenants because he's played him like a instrument. And it's interesting watching Sulla associating with guys like Pompey and Crassus, because what you see is something that's absolutely common in the Roman system, and you see it in a lot of other systems and a lot of other eras too. But it's this passing of the torch from one generation to another. I mean, Sulla's not really passing the torch now, but in every era of Roman history, for example, you can find, you always see the people that are going to play a role in the next generation of Roman history have sort of, you know, rubbing elbows and shaking hands and, you know, having public meetings with the people who are playing those roles you know, in the current era, when the up-and-comers are still young. And in this case, it's Pompey and Crassus, two of the most important people in the rest of this story, getting to know the most important person in this part of the story. And together, Sulla and his new allies, Crassus and Pompey, and a bunch of other people in a big old army, start making their way toward Rome. And remember, this is like... Clint Eastwood now, finally returning after years of this terrible thing hanging over the heads of the Romans, they're finally going to experience, you know, all this stuff they've had time to panic about. And according to Appian, the people of Italy, along with the current Marian leadership, which is what the leadership on this side, Cinna's side, Carbo's side, Caius Marius's side, are called. Appian talks about both how scared they were and yet how they rallied behind the current government because they couldn't think of what else to do. Quote, So Sulla advanced against his enemies with violent but hidden hatred, while the party in Rome were terrified because they had a fair idea of Sulla's character and had fresh in their imaginations his previous assault and capture of the city. They also reflected on the decrees that they'd passed against him, and they saw his house razed to the ground, his property forfeit, his friends put to death, and his family only just saved by escape. Judging that no middle course existed between victory and complete destruction, they rallied in their fear to the side of the consuls against Sulla, requesting contributions of men, food, and money from outside of Rome, and sparing neither effort nor commitment in their belief that they faced disaster. Gaius Norbinus and Lucius Scipio, the current consuls, and with them Carbo, the consul of the previous year, who all shared an equal hatred of Sulla, but were much more afraid than the others, and were more deeply involved in what had been done, conscripted as effective an army as they could from Rome. To it they added troops from Italy, and took the field against Sulla, dividing their forces, which at first numbered 200 cohorts of 500 men each, but afterwards more. 
Public sympathy was overwhelmingly on the side of the consuls, since Sulla's action of marching against his own country appeared to be an act of war, while that of the consuls, even if it was undertaken in their own interest, had the cloak of patriotism. The majority of people who were aware of the criminal nature of the deeds that had been done, and thought that they also had reason to be afraid, cooperated with the consuls, since they knew well that Sulla intended not to punish, or correct, or overawe them, but to violate, kill, dispossess, and in short, completely destroy them, nor were they mistaken." End quote. This war that starts now is known as the Civil War, and it will go on in one form or another for more than three years. There's a lot of fighting, and um, many big battles, and there are some things that happen in these battles that are so remarkable or strange or dramatic, it's worth pointing a few of them out. First of all, you get to watch Sulla do the same thing in Rome that he did in the East when Roman armies showed up. He's got this amazing ability to turn commanders to his side, to get troops to rally and just literally walk across the battlefield, to throw down their standards in the middle of a battle. There's one battle where his troops seem to be winning, so the Marian forces cohort after cohort of them on one whole flank, throw down their standards together and just run over to the other side. Talk about having no faith in your own troops sometimes if you're the Marians. Sulla appears to be a bit of a, you know, magician or a wizard or a dark necromancer when it comes to his ability to infect the souls of other Roman soldiers. I mean, at one point, Sulla is surrounded by Marian armies, one of which is led by Scipio, the consul, and Sulla invites Scipio to a little conference to have a negotiation and somehow gets Scipio to go, okay, and here's what Plutarch says about it, quote, Sulla, seeing himself still surrounded by so many armies and such mighty hostile powers, had recourse to art, inviting Scipio, the other consul, to a treaty of peace. The motion was willingly embraced, and several meetings and consultations ensued, in all which Sulla, still interposing matters of delay and new pretenses, in the meanwhile debauched Scipio's men by means of his own, who were as well practiced as the general himself in all the artifices of inveigling. For entering into the enemy's quarters and joining in conversation, they gained some by present money some by promises, others by fair words and persuasions, so that in the end, when Sulla, with twenty cohorts, drew near, on his men saluting Scipio's soldiers, they returned the greeting and came over, leaving Scipio behind them in his tent, where he was found, all alone, and dismissed. End quote. That's just one of the stories that's too good to pass up, you know, from what happened in the Civil War. There's so many of them. I mean, think about what just happened here. Sulla's got a bunch of Marian armies around him. He chooses the biggest one, commanded by one of the consuls. You'd think this would be an intelligent, you know, individual who knew what he was doing. And Sulla invites Scipio, the consul, to peace talks. And he delays him and stalls him the whole time he's got him there. And then while this is going on, his troops are, and I love Plutarch's translation, debauching, corrupting Scipio's troops and offering them all kinds of things and telling them, you know, come on over to our side and just basically undermining his legions so that when the two sides come to face off against each other, Sulla's troops salute Scipio's troops and they salute back and then come on over. It's almost like it's the pre-designed sign. Okay, if we salute you, you know, the whole deal's on. Just walk on over. And they did. And then they find the consul Scipio alone in his tent. You can just imagine he's got his hands pulling his hair out going, what do I do now? I lost an army too. I'm just like, you know, Fimbria over in the east. And Sulla's stolen another army from the Marian side. And then I love how he's handled. 
He's just dismissed. That's wonderful. Now, one of the other parts of the Civil War that just makes this all the more a personal struggle is that Carbo, who's one of the commanders in Rome, really the dictator still, appoints young Marius to the role of consul. Now, young Marius is what they called in the ancient world Marius's son, the great Gaius Marius's son, probably hoping to steal a little of the Marius magic at a time when it's really needed. You know, maybe Charles Bronson's not here, but we have Charles Bronson Jr., and he's only 26, and when he's given the job of consul, it's a little like what Crassus and Pompey are getting on the other side. What is a 26-year-old doing as consul? That's not even legal. Is it in the Roman system? Well, too bad. We live in a time of suspended animation, you can almost see Rome's leaders saying, and we need Gaius Marius' son here now. And I've got a couple of histories that talk about the grumbling that must have been going on while these older hyper-ambitious Romans who, you know, laboriously climbed the rungs of success the way they were supposed to watch some young, handsome playboy who had a famous father get something at an age they're not even allowed to have it in and they just had to live with it. And when Sulla hears that his archenemy's son has been elected consul, he utters a great line. He says, As I grow older, my enemies grow younger. Another thing that happened that just makes the Civil War so interesting is that as Sulla's gaining the upper hand and it's just starting to look like, okay, the Marian forces are going to lose, all of a sudden a whole new power enters the war. The Samnites and the Lucanians, two of these Italian peoples, as we've said before, who gave the Romans trouble from time immemorial and who fought against them in the Social War, decide that now is the time for maybe the last time, to strap on the armor and come streaming out of their mountain strongholds down into the plains to, you know, side with the Marians in this war so that Sulla doesn't take command of Rome. And I've read historians who say that they were provoked. The Romans make them sound like opportunists or people who just see a fight with two tired combatants and they're going to jump in now as the one, you know, fresh opponent with 40 or 50,000 soldiers. And originally, they're heading for this city that young Marius is trapped in. He's lost a battle against Sulla, and he was pursued so closely by Sulla's forces that that they try to run into the city to escape, but the city has to close the gates because, you know, Sulla's going to get in otherwise, and they leave a lot of men on the other side who get massacred against the walls, and in a daring escape, Marius is supposed to, the young Marius is supposed to climb the rope that's let down by the people on the other side of the walls and escape to safety in the nick of time, but he's trapped in the city. And so the Lucanians and the Samnites are going to rescue him, but there's too many armies between them and the city. At one point, a bunch of Lucanians desert and just leave once they see, you know, the armies facing them. And their commander does one of the wild things in this war. The commander goes to Sulla and starts to negotiate, and he's trying to negotiate for himself. You know, yes, I know I let all these people against you. How can I get off? And the sources say that Sulla said, um well, do something nasty. You know, he basically said, uh, show me how serious you are. Do something for our side. And so the sources say that he invites a bunch of the big-time generals from the Marian side to dinner, because obviously he's an ally. He just brought, you know, thousands of men to the Marian side. Come on and have dinner in my tent. And when they arrive in the tent and they're eating, he has them all killed. That's how you get on Sulla's good side. There's another story where thousands of Samnites 
contact Sulla when they're trapped. He's got them trapped, and they know that they're, okay, listen, we're doomed. Can we negotiate? And they go to Sulla, and they say, you know, what can we do to get out of this? And Sulla says, do some mischief to your countrymen, and we'll see what I can do. And so they come out of their stronghold, and they immediately attack their own, you know, brethren. That's a great story. Finally, Marius who can't find a way out of his situation, young Marius. He knows that the city he's in is doomed. It's going to fall. He issues an order to just go kill all of the people who are their opponents still left alive in Rome. And here's what Appian writes about what young Marius did when he realized he was trapped. Quote, Since he saw no hope of escape, Marius hurried to eliminate his personal enemies before he died by sending instructions to Brutus, the urban praetor, to call a meeting of the Senate, ostensibly for some other purpose, and kill Publius Antisius, another Papirius Carbo, Lucius Domitius, and Mucius Scivola, the Pontificus Maximus. The first two of these were indeed murdered in the Senate, according to Marius' instructions, by assassins who had been brought into the Senate house. Domitius ran out, but was killed by the door, and they caught Scavola just in front of the building. Their bodies were thrown into the Tiber, for it had now become usual not to bury the slain. Sulla sent his army in divisions by a variety of routes to surround Rome, giving them orders to seize the gates, and if they were repulsed, to move on Ostia. As they marched by, they were received with terror by the towns along the way, and when they approached Rome, the city population opened the gates, both because they were suffering from famine and because they had grown accustomed to facing whatever current trouble was the worst. End quote. And you have to understand that the people in Rome by this time were just worn out. They had just survived a major scare when the Samnites and Lucanians entered the war, because those forces originally headed toward where young Marius was trapped, when they realized they couldn't get to him, they also noticed that Rome itself was undefended, and they turned around and headed for Rome. And the people in the city freaked out when they realized, uh-oh, all of our armies are elsewhere, and our most hated enemies from time immemorial have an open shot at the city. Plutarch makes it very dramatic. He tells what was going on and how you know the city essentially sent its young people out to try to hold off these Samnite warriors. Here's what Plutarch writes about once the Romans realized that they had Samnites, you know, at their gates and no legions to protect them. Quote, Lamponius the Lucanian, having collected a large force, had been hastening towards Pernesti to relieve Marius from the siege, but perceiving Sulla ahead of him and Pompey behind, both hurrying up against him, straightened thus before and behind as a valiant and experienced soldier. He arose by night and marching directly with his whole army was within a little of making his way unexpectedly into Rome itself. He lay that night before the city, at ten furlongs distance from the Colleen Gate, elated and full of hope at having thus outgeneraled so many eminent commanders. At break of day, being charged by the noble youth of the city, among many others, he overthrew Appius Claudius, renowned for high birth and character. The city, as it's easy to imagine, was all in an uproar, the women shrieking and running about as if it had already been entered forcibly by assault, till at last Balbus, sent forward by Sulla, was seen riding up with 700 horse at full speed. End quote. What had happened, and this is kind of how the war ends in Italy, is that Sulla hears that the Samnites are marching and the Lucanians are marching on Rome and no one's there to defend them, and he turns around and sends the army at full speed toward Rome. No waiting, no recovering, and the first ones to arrive, of course, are the cavalry, and supposedly they don't, you know, they stop and wipe the sweat off the horses and just keep going, because the Samnites and Lucanians have already killed the young noble youth of Rome that valiantly come out to put some sort of a attempt at resistance. 
And we're told the Lucanian is running around telling the people that he commands. He's going from cohort to cohort in the battle saying that this is the best chance they've ever had of wiping out the Romans and that you don't think we're ever going to be free of these wolves if we don't wipe out the forest that they keep breeding in. And he's talking about the city of Rome. And eventually Sulla and Crassus and all the armies arrive at like four in the afternoon and they have this terrible battle in front of the gate and 50,000 people die. It's a horrible ancient battle. And Sulla massacres these survivors. I mean, at one point, a bunch of, uh, he tells his men to take no prisoners, but a bunch of Samnites throw down their weapons anyway, and the Romans just capture them, even though they weren't supposed to keep any alive. Samnites have been massacred since the minute they get into this war. When Sulla captures Samnite enemies, he just kills them. Now, the great Caius Marius's son, the 26- or 7-year-old kid who got to be in command of Rome's forces for a while because of the unique situation, kills himself just as soon as he's about to be, you know, turned over to his enemies. He was in a town called Prinesti, and here's what Appian says, quote, When the population of Prinesti saw this, meaning Sulla's big victories, and discovered that Carbo's army had been totally destroyed, and that he and Norbanus had already left Italy, and that Sulla's energy had brought the rest of Italy, including Rome, under his control, they surrendered the town to Lucretius. Marius descended into some underground tunnels, and after a short interval, committed suicide. Lacretius cut off Marius's head and sent it to Sulla, and Sulla, after placing it in front of the rostra in the middle of the forum, is reported to have mocked the consul's youth by saying, First you learn to pull an oar, then you may take the helm. End quote. Sulla then goes on to divide the inhabitants of the city of Prinesti into three groups, Romans, Samnites, and the citizens of the city, he tells the Romans they deserve to all die, but he's going to let them go. He lets the wives and children of the other people go, and then he massacres all of them. And there are certain parts of these stories that we just kind of let fly by without examining. But you think of these many thousands of people that Sulla is executing, whether it's the 8,000 after the battle in front of the gates of Rome, or the many thousand after the city is taken. It's mind-boggling to imagine the logistics of killing, organized killing, organized executions on that mass of a scale. I mean, you can go to the era of Charlemagne, and he killed, I think it was 10,000 Saxons in a single day. He had their heads cut off. They were lined up in long lines, and he had men in front with swords and cutting blocks like you would, you know, cut off someone's head on a block, and they were just operating like a mechanized thing, you know, all day long. The Mongols are supposed to have gotten it down to a science where they would literally line up their whole army and they would bring seven or eight or nine or however many people were required um, of the captured and condemned enemy all tied up and put a row of people in front of each Mongol soldier and then when the command was given, the Mongol soldier was to decapitate, you know, the seven or eight or nine people that were their charge. And the whole army had seven or eight or nine people each. And in a very short period of time, you could have massive amounts of industrialized killing without anything more than muscle power to do it. The logistics of this stuff is hard to understand. We're from an era where, you know, when the Nazis were doing similar things, they were doing it with poison gas. This sort of you know, manual execution of many thousands of people at once is hard to mentally grasp. It's, a, it's an image that you can't... First, you can't contemplate it, and if you can, then you can't get it out of your mind. Appian tells what happened in another town. He says, quote, 
So fell Pernesti, but another town, Norba, still resisted stubbornly until Aemilius Lepidus was admitted into it by treachery. Unbearably goaded by the treachery, some of the inhabitants then committed suicide. Some killed each other by mutual agreement, and some actually hanged themselves. Others barricaded the gates and set light to the houses, and a strong wind which fanned the flames caused such destruction to the town that not a single piece of booty was taken from it. Such was the determination with which the inhabitants of Norba met their end. End quote. So you can see that now that the lion has returned to the lair and the asteroid has hit, the kind of, you know, end times some of these cities seem to feel have arrived. When Sulla enters Rome, he asks the Senate and some of the people to meet in a giant open square because he's going to address them. And unbeknownst to them, he has had thousands of Samnite prisoners brought into one of the government buildings nearby. And this government building is ornate, and you have to imagine statues and art and marble. It's a beautiful, you know, showpiece for the Roman, you know, superstate. He's got all these Samnite prisoners locked up in there. And he begins to address the crowd. And I love the way Tom Holland tells this story. Quote, As Sulla launched into his address, describing his victory over Mithridates, the senators began to hear the muffled sounds of shrieking from the Samnite prisoners. Sulla continued, apparently oblivious to the screams, until at last he paused and ordered the senators not to be distracted from what he had to say. Some criminals are receiving their punishment, he explained dismissively. There's no need for worry. It's all being done on my orders. The massacre was total, Holland writes. In the cramped conditions of the slaughterhouse, the bodies piled up high. Once the executions had been completed, the corpses were dragged across the campus and flung into the Tiber, clogging the banks and bridges with pollution, until at last the river's currents cut a swath of blood through the azure open sea. The stains on the Villa Publica itself, he writes, were not so easily removed. The census had been held there only three years previously. Now the rooms in which the rolls had been completed were filthy with gore. The symbolism was shocking and obvious. Sulla rarely made any gesture without a fine calculation of its effect. By washing the Villa Publica with blood, Holland writes, he had given dramatic notice of the surgery he was planning to perform on the Republic. End quote. Appian says of Sulla's actual speech to the senators and the public, quote, Sulla himself called the Romans to an assembly, and after making a long and boastful speech about himself and issuing terrible threats to frighten them, concluded by saying that he would introduce a change that would be beneficial to the people if they would obey him, but that he would spare none of his enemies the ultimate in torment, and would pursue with all his might the praetors and the questors and the military tribunes and anyone else who had cooperated with the enemy after the date which the consul Scipio failed to abide by his agreement with him. With these words, he immediately prescribed about 40 senators and approximately 1,600 of the equestrian class. He seems to have been the first to publish a list of those he punished with death and to add a statement detailing a prize for killers, rewards for informers, and penalties for concealment. Soon he added other senators' names to the list, Appian says. Some of the prescribed were caught unawares and killed on the spot, in houses or streets or temple precincts. Some were carried bodily to Sulla and hurled down at his feet. Some were dragged along the ground and trampled on. But no one who witnessed these horrors now uttered a word because everyone was terrified. Plutarch remarks, 
that Sulla's actions made it clear to even the most dull-witted Romans what was really going on. Quote, This gave the most stupid of the Romans to understand that they had merely exchanged, not escaped, tyranny. End quote. Author Tom Holland describes how, you know, almost Naziistic Night of the Long Knives, the actual beginning of the what's called prescriptions, were. He talks about the speech where Sulla's killing the Samnites and addressing the senators, and he says, quote, The death squads had fanned out through Rome even as the Samnites were being butchered in the Villa Publica. Sulla himself made no attempt to restrain them. Even his supporters, inured to bloodshed, were appalled by the resulting carnage. One of them dared to ask when the murderers would be reined in, or at least, he added hurriedly, let us have a list of those you want punished. Sulla sardonically, obligingly, duly posted a list in the forum. It featured the entire leadership of the Marian regime. All were condemned to death. Their properties were declared forfeit, and their sons and grandsons barred from standing for office. Anyone who helped to protect them was likewise condemned to death. An entire swath of Rome's political elite was summarily nominated for annihilation. End quote. At first, it was just the obvious targets. The lion was going to eat the people that had cooperated with his enemies. Then, every day, new lists would be put up, and the public would literally run down to the square to see whose names were on it, and sometimes the people reading the list's names were on it. They'd be killed while they're walking away in shock from reading their name on the list because the deal was that you were allowed to kill anybody who Sulla had prescripted, you know, yourself. And if you cut their head off and brought it to Sulla, there was money in it. And he said, how much money? So these people would read their names on the list and there'd be a bunch of other people in the crowd reading the names on the list. And if the guy next to you's name was on the list, you could just turn around and kill him and make a little money. I'm not sure it happened that way, but that's basically what was made legal. And it quickly went from people who had cooperated with the Marian regime to people who had a lot of money. It's one of the ironies of this whole thing that Sulla sort of represents the property classes and the ones with money, but he was in dire straits, you know, for money himself. He needed to pay all these troops that had fought this big, long war, and the Senate had cut off Roman funding to them a long time ago. He owed those soldiers a lot of money. And the best way to get the money was to condemn rich people who owned a lot of stuff, put them on the prescription list, pretend that they had been part of the Marian cause, and then kill them, and then the state confiscates their stuff. One guy said that he was killed by his Alban farm, another by his hot springs, meaning, you know, they had a great house worth a lot of money, and so their name appears on the list, and they're killed. Sulla needed money and he wasn't too picky at a certain point in the process for which people his underlings picked to be added to the list. There were even people who were killed first and then retroactively added to the list so that it could still be legal and everything. A generation later, one of the big critiques against Sulla was that he wasn't more of an overseer of all these people who added names to the list of condemned. And Will Durant has a great line about the people who were making money off of these political killings. He says, The prescriptions became the foundation of many fortunes, and the main fortune was a guy named Crassus. Crassus already had a lot of creative ways for making money. He came from money, and then he would do things like buy his own fireman's service. You know, get a bunch of slaves together and make them into a fire brigade, because Rome had no official government 
you know, run fire brigades. And then when a house or a, one of these large tenements that the poor especially lived in would catch fire, he would run down there or have a negotiator run down there and offer to either buy the place that was on fire or go next door or places threatened by the fire, because once these fires happened in the ancient world, you were likely to lose a nice block of houses, and go to the people who own the houses and say, um, you want to sell your house? There's a fire down the street, and it's likely to eat up your house, and you can get some money from me now, or, you know, just lose everything, and most people sold, and when they sold, Crassus would have his own private fire brigade come and put out the fire. So he was already used to making money um, off of what we would consider to be rather dubious tactics today, and he was doing the same thing along with a lot of other people, it should be said, with these prescriptions. Somebody would be condemned to death, all their property would essentially go on the auction block to get cash for Sulla, and people like Crassus and future people like Catiline and a bunch of other people would go over there and buy these knockdown, you know, bargain sales at auction and eventually Crassus would, you know, increase his money exponentially. So would a lot of other people. There was a fortune to be made in the political violence currently going on in Rome. The ancient historian Plutarch has a great description of you know, how it was for this weird period in Rome where people were going down to read uh, the prescription list and find out if their names were on it. He says that Sulla initially put out, you know, the list of people to be killed, but then kept putting up more names over time. And here's how Plutarch describes it. Quote, Sulla prescribed 80 persons, and notwithstanding the general indignation, after one day's respite, he posted 220 more, and on the third, again as many. In an address to the people on this occasion, he told them that he'd put up as many names as he could think of. Those of which had escaped his memory, he would publish at a future time. He issued an edict, likewise, making death the punishment of humanity, prescribing any who should dare receive or cherish a prescribed person without exception to brother, son, or parents. And to him who should slay one prescribed person, he ordained two talents reward, even if it were a slave who had killed his master or a son his father. And what was thought most unjust of all, he caused the attainder to pass upon their sons and sons' sons, and made open sale of all their property. Nor did the prescription prevail only at Rome, but throughout all the cities of Italy, the effusion of blood was such that neither the sanctuary of the gods, nor hearth of hospitality, nor of ancestral home escaped." Men were butchered in the embraces of their wives, children in the arms of their mothers. Those who perished through public animosity or private enmity were nothing in comparison to the numbers of those who suffered for their riches. Even the murderers began to say that his fine house killed this man, a garden that, a third his hot baths. Quintus Aurelius, a quiet, peaceable man, and one who thought all his parts in the common calamity consisted in condoling with the misfortunes of others, coming into the forum to read the list, and finding himself among the prescribed, cried out, Woe is me! My Alban farm has informed against me! He had not gone far before he was dispatched by a ruffian sent on that errand. End quote. So you get a feel for this sort of reign of terror going on in Rome during this period when Sulla is enacting revenge. And we're told that the forum is decorated, Will Durant says, decorated with the heads of famous people, mostly on the other side, but even just famous people who happen to have a lot of money. And I keep trying to imagine what that must have been like, because we're told over and over by historians that the way the young people in Rome 
you know, the ones who come from families and backgrounds that are going to play a role in the next generation of Rome's political future, that those people learn how business is done in Roman politics by watching their elders, and that it was customary to bring them to the forum and allow them to watch the great speakers and watch the debates and watch politics play out. If those young people are going to the forum at this time, they're seeing the heads of all these people, for example, that they had watched and enjoyed watching them speak in the forum. I mean, you have to try to imagine something similar today. Imagine, you know, one faction in your country takes over and you walk down, you know, to the town square or the capital or wherever and you see their heads. I mean, the heads of ex-presidents and politicians who are famous and that you know and also heads of other people who've supported the other regime. I mean, you probably have um, today, if you thought about it, you'd have some famous activists actors' heads, maybe, and some famous journalists or authors, people who supported the cultural side of the political you know, leadership that was being beheaded left and right. It's kind of easy to see how and why the next generation of Roman politicians behaves as they do if you look at the influences they had while they were learning the tricks of the Roman political trade. And both Plutarch and Appian make it clear that this sullen reign of terror is not confined simply to Rome or even to Italy, but this manhunt for all of his enemies encompasses the whole Roman world. I mean, many of his enemies will flee to Spain, where the embers of the Civil War will continue to smolder for quite a while longer. Many of the prominent men flee to Africa. Uh, Carbo, the actual consul, uh, is caught on an island with a lot of prominent men, and living up to his reputation as the adolescent butcher, Pompey has all of the people around Carbo executed before they're even brought to him. He tells his people when he hears that they've been captured, just kill them. But he has Carbo brought to him and chains him up and sits over him and berates him. And Appian clearly sounds disgusted you know, with the Roman values of some 23-year-old or 24-year-old, you know, new-on-the-scene kid before he's about to kill a former three-time consul sitting there, you know, rubbing his nose in it. Here's what Appian writes, quote, Such being the situation in Italy, Carbo had meanwhile fled with many prominent men from Africa to Sicily and thence to the island of Caesarea. There they were arrested by men sent by Pompeius, who gave orders to the escort to kill the others without bringing them into his presence, but made Carbo, a man who had been three times consul, stand below him in chains while he ranted over him. He then put him to death and sent his head to Sulla. End quote. One more head to decorate a forum that must have been unimaginable to any of our eyes at this time. A most gory daily reminder, you know, of who was in power and what would happen to you if you even sniffed in the wrong direction. Heck, what might happen to you if you just had too much stuff? Just don't get on Sulla's bad side is sort of the message being sent. And, and there's a remarkable exception to this whole thing. Someone who gets away. And it's a famous incident that happens during the prescriptions because Sulla has his eyes on a potential future troublemaker. 
somebody in his late teens, very early 20s, a person from a noble family that Sulla's not much happy with anyway. And so he decides that this guy's going to die after all. Lots of other people are dying. Why shouldn't this person be added to the list? And a bunch of prominent people, even from Sulla's camp, ask that he be spared. And they must have badgered him a lot because eventually he gives in and says, fine, but it's on your heads, essentially. And he utters a famous line. There's like nine different translations. It can be said a bunch of different ways. But in effect, he said, but I'm warning you, in that man goes many a Marius. Or in that man goes a thousand Marius or a hundred Marius. I've seen it done a bunch of different ways. The point is the same. Sulla's warning you, if you thought Marius was bad, that guy is Marius on steroids. But hey, if you want me to spare him, I'll spare him. And Sulla doesn't do what he wanted to do. He wanted to kill the young Caius Julius Caesar. And he didn't. And that would really change future Roman history. Just ask Pompey. By the time the killing dies down, historians believe almost 5,000 people will have lost their lives. Now, I know that doesn't sound like money, especially when 50,000 people just perished in the battle to get Sulla into Rome. 5,000 doesn't sound like too many. But these are 5,000 hand-picked people. These aren't your average, you know, baker who no one knows the name of, working, you know, toiling their daily lives in, you know, anonymity. These are famous people. These are political figures. These are wealthy people. These are, in many cases, people that if you were walking around the forum looking at the gory warning that was all over the forum, bleeding, no doubt, onto, you know, the sides of buildings where they were placed, the heads of people who you would know if you saw them in your community, the prominent people, the people with money, people who had political notoriety, the people who were connected to the political elite, 5,000 important people were butchered as part of these proscriptions. And when they were over, Sulla began to reorganize the Roman state. He had himself declared a dictator, which is an office that had not been used in a long time, and normally only existed for one cause. You could be a dictator to finish a war, for example, and your term of office would last for six months and then it would be over. Sulla had himself proclaimed dictator to fix the Constitution and restructure the laws. I mean, that was basically what his job was, and there was no term limit. He was going to be dictator until the fire had cooled enough so the job was done. And then he goes on to try to reorganize the Roman state and essentially fix everything that had been determined to be wrong with the Constitution from the aristocratic point of view since the days of Tiberius Gracchus way back in 133 BCE. Part of what he tries to do is to eliminate the loophole that had been discovered by Tiberius in the Roman system, the power of the tribune of the plebs, to all of a sudden circumvent the august and aristocratic senate and go right to the people. Been screwing things up in the minds of people like Sulla and his supporters for, you know, 60 years. Time to change that. He neutered the tribune of the plebs position. What's more, he started to deal with something that was at the very beginning of this whole series of shows that we talked to you about. The idea of the hyperambition of the Roman governing class. These people who had ancestor walls at home designed to raise these young people in an environment where they literally burned for political honors. 
And we said that it was a double-edged sword because for a long time Rome really benefited from this essential game of king of the mountain where only the most, you know, tough and the ones with the most merit and guts and ability, you know, would claw their way to the top and govern. And the second they weakened, even for a second, you know, the next most meritorious figure would then get the job. For a long time, that benefited Rome, and you got a lot of good leaders that way. But the hyper-ambition also took advantages of all the sort of loopholes and problems in the Roman system. So Sulla does something fascinating. He tries to regulate the ambition of Roman political elites. He starts putting age requirements on certain offices. For example, the way he neuters the tribune of the plebs is he takes away any sort of ambitious payoff it would give you. Before, that could be the early step on the road to greatness. Now he said, if you're a tribune of the plebs, you're done. There are no offices that can come after that. So you can be a tribune of the plebs, but you just ended your political career when you decided to go into that job. All of a sudden, anyone with future political ambitions avoided that role in the Roman governing system like the plague. Killed the whole reason some ambitious Roman would want to have that job. He created a an ironclad system where you had to be this position before you could advance to that position, that position before you could advance to the next position, and you couldn't get to these positions so you had certain ages, and all these things were determined to sort of regulate and cool the ambitions of the Roman class, and certainly to make sure that none of these youngsters, even though, you know, he owed his success to a couple of them, guys like Crassus and Pompey, but also, on the other side, young Marius, that none of these youngsters could get into positions of power until they had already served quite a bit and been tested and run through the system and had reached a nice, seasoned Roman idea of middle age. Here's the way Will Durant describes Sulla's, you know, fixing, as he saw it, of the Roman system. Quote, Using his powers as dictator, Sulla issued a series of edicts known from his clan name as the Cornelian Laws, by which he hoped to establish a permanently aristocratic constitution. To replace dead citizens, he had franchised many Spaniards and Celts and some former slaves. He weakened the assemblies... Those are the people's assemblies, uh, the democratic institutions. He weakened the assemblies by adding these new members indebted to him and by again ruling that no measure should be put before the assembly except by consent of the Senate. To stop the flocking of poor Italians to Rome, he suspended the state distribution of corn. At the same time, he eased the pressure of the population in the city by distributing land to 120,000 veterans. To prevent the use of successive consulships as, in effect, a dictatorship, he re-emphasized the old requirement of a ten-year interval before the same office could be held a second time by the same man. He lowered the prestige of the tribunate by limiting its right of veto and making ex-tribunes ineligible for higher office. He took from the business class and restored to the Senate the exclusive right to serve as jurors in the higher courts, and he replaced the farming of taxes to publicans with direct payments from the provinces to the treasury. He reorganized the courts, increased their number for quicker trials, and carefully specified their functions and fields. All the legislative, judicial, executive, social, and sartorial privileges enjoyed by the Senate before the Gracchan Revolt were returned to it, for Sulla was certain that only a monarchy or an aristocracy could wisely administer an empire. 
To renew the full membership of the Senate, he allowed the tribal assembly to promote to it 300 members of the equestrian class. To show his confidence in this thoroughgoing restoration, he disbanded his legions and decreed that no army should be permitted in Italy. After two years of dictatorship, he resigned all his powers, re-established consular government, and retired to private life in 80 BCE. End quote. That's an amazing achievement for anyone. Now, many people must have disagreed with what Sulla tried to do, but he tried to look at the system logically from the time, you know, that everyone since has dated the decline and fall of the Roman Empire to the era of Tiberius Gracchus and his younger brother Caius. He said, what happened in the system since then? Let's turn around and fix that. It's a remarkable series of reforms that shows an amazing amount of understanding of what the current problem stemmed from. When you look back at Sulla, he looks like a horribly violent person. The ancient sources make him sound like he really wanted absolute power, but then they make it sound like he tired of it. That he went in there, he fixed all these things, and he also made it impossible, he thought, to ever have another one of him arrive. Disbanded his legions. He didn't have to do that. He could have been a king if he wanted to. Julius Caesar would later say that the one mistake Sulla made was not holding on to power. He voluntarily gives it up, we're told, and then will walk around Rome after he gives up the dictatorship without any sort of bodyguard or anything. This is a man who killed like 100,000 Romans. You would think the whole world wanted him dead. And yet, as one historian says, he killed everybody who even had a thought about killing him. He could walk around Rome as a private citizen with no bodyguard and no one touched him. I love the way Will Durant sort of explains his end. Quote, He was safe, for he had killed nearly all who could plan his assassination. He dismissed his lictors and guards, walked unharmed in the forum, and offered to give an account of his official actions to any citizen who should ask for it. Then he went to spend his last years in his village at Cumi. Tired of war, of power, of glory, perhaps of men, he surrounded himself with singers, dancers, actors, and actresses, wrote his commentarii, hunted and fished, ate and drank. Men had long since called him Sulla Felix, Sulla the Happy, because he had won every battle, known every pleasure, reached every power, and lived without fear or regret. He married five wives, divorced four, and eked out their inadequacy with mistresses. At 58, he developed an ulcer of the colon so severe, the corrupted flesh, says Plutarch, broke out into lice. Many men were employed day and night in destroying them, but they so multiplied that not only his clothes, baths, and basins, but his very food was polluted with them. He died of intestinal hemorrhage after hardly a year of retirement. He had not neglected to dictate his epitaph, which was, No friend ever served me, and no enemy ever wronged me, whom I've not repaid in full. End quote. That's a Clint Eastwood-style epitaph. Even in death, Sulla would prove to be a terrifying and divisive figure. There were those among the popular faction who thought he didn't deserve any sort of public funeral at all. After all, this is the man who marched on Rome and killed more Romans, perhaps, than any person in history. Certainly more than any other Roman. And the way Romans were treated after death was a permissible form of political punishment. Politics didn't end 
when a famous Roman died. After all, this is part of the reason why Sulla was said to have opened up the tomb of Caius Marius once Sulla got control of Rome again and scattered the bones into a nearby river. You don't honor criminals. That seemed to be what Sulla was saying in terms of Marius. And there were those in the opposite party that felt Sulla deserved a similar treatment. There were powerful entities in the Roman state that weren't going to deny Sulla his just deserts and the honors that they felt he deserved for fixing, preserving, and maybe strengthening and enhancing the Roman system. Here's what the ancient Roman writer Appian says. Quote, Dissension at once broke out over him in the capital. Some thought that his body ought to travel in solemn procession through Italy and be displayed in Rome in the Forum and have the honor of a public funeral. But Lepidus and his party contested this. Catullus and the Sullans prevailed, and Sulla's corpse was carried through Italy to Rome in regal splendor on a gilded bier, followed by a large number of trumpeters and horsemen and a throng of armed men on foot. Those who had served in soldiers under his command hurried under arms from every side to join the procession, and each, as he arrived, immediately assumed his place in military formation. A huge crowd of ordinary folk also gathered, such as had never been seen in any previous event. And at the head of this procession were carried the standards and the fasces which had accompanied him while he was alive and in power. When the body had been carried as far as Rome, it was conveyed into the city in a procession of stupendous pomp. More than 2,000 hurriedly made golden crowns were carried past, these being gifts from the towns and from the legions which had served with Sulla and from his individual friends, and it is impossible to describe the lavishness of the other items that were sent to the funeral. Frightened by the assembled soldiery, all the priests and priestesses in their separate colleges, and the whole senate and the magistrates wearing their insignia of office, escorted the body. They were followed by another group, consisting of the members of the equestrian class, and all the soldiers who had served under Sulla's command in their units. The latter had gathered enthusiastically, all hurrying to take part. They carried gilded standards and wore arms worked with silver, of the sort that are still used for processions now. There was a vast number of trumpeters, alternating mournful with melting melodies. Sulla's praises were chanted out, first by the Senate and the Equestrian Order in turn, then by the soldiers, and then by the ordinary people, some genuinely regretting his loss, others, even now, as frightened of his army and his corpse as if he were still alive. As they gazed at the spectacle that was taking place and remembered what the man had done, they were overwhelmed, agreeing with their opponents that he had brought the latter the greatest good fortune, but remained terrifying to themselves, even in death. When the body had been placed on the speaker's platform in the forum, the finest orator of the day gave the funeral address, because Faustus, Sulla's son, was still very young. Then some strong senators shouldered the bier and carried it to the Campus Martius, where only emperors are buried, and the equestrian order and the military galloped around the funeral pyre. Such was Sulla's end. End quote. Appian then ends ominously with the point that as they're walking away from the burning funeral pyre, the two consuls begin arguing amongst themselves already. Rather than provide the Romans with the stability that he seemed to be seeking for them, Sulla had merely provided a roadmap for how you achieve total power. As author Tom Holland so aptly describes it, quote, Sulla had given the Romans their first glimpse of what it might mean to be the subjects of an autocrat, and it had proved a frightening and salutary one. This was a discovery that could never be unmade. 
After the prescriptions, no one could doubt what the extreme consequences of the Roman appetite for competition and glory might be, not only for Rome's enemies, but for her citizens themselves. But what had once been unthinkable now lurked at the back of every Roman's mind. Sulla could do it. Why can't I? End quote. Sulla may have thought he was restoring the Constitution, reinstilling an aristocratic form of control over the Roman system, and stabilizing it for future generations. What Sulla had really taught the closely observing next generation of Rome's politicians, leaders, and generals is that the new rules of the Roman game of power and ambition were that there were no rules. And a mass of clever, gifted, and ruthless Roman leaders would take this lesson to heart. In the next episode of Death Throes of the Republic, the era of Marius and Sulla may have ended, but the seeds sown during that highly unusual, hyper-ambitious partisan and military warfare between those two figures and their respective political factions will reap an amazingly bitter harvest. A gifted generation of Republican Romans is coming of age, and they're operating under the new rules that Marius and Sulla had established in Rome by their conduct. Great figures like Caesar and Crassus, Pompey and Cato, and of course the great Cicero, will vie with each other both for their own personal ambition and to preserve, at least they say, their conception of Republican Rome. Can they possibly be successful amid the slave revolts, the mob violence in the street, the financial condition of Rome, the civil wars going on, and the treachery and conspiracies involving their own political rivals? We'll try to answer those questions in the next edition of Death Rose of the Republic. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. Go to dancarlin.com for more information on how to donate to the show. A buck a show, it's all we ask. What you're about to hear is part five of an eventual six-part series. If you are historically dyslexic, please feel free to start here. For the rest of you, you might want to catch the programs in numerical order. They tend to make more sense that way, although not always. And without further ado, Death Rose of the Republic, Part 5. December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. The events. The drama. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. What is it like to fight an elephant in hand-to-hand combat with a spear? That's a question we asked in an earlier episode of this podcast. And it demonstrates one of the techniques we try to weave through every one of these shows. And that's, you know, the first person level of things. You know, what is that like for the human beings involved in the story? And you have to realize, of course, that there's no way to get into the minds of these people. They were raised with such different cultural influences, such different expectations than we were. The only real way you can connect with them is through those elements, you know, that connect us over the ages, our humanness. 
there are certain things that you can say that that person had on their emotional spectrum that we have on ours because we are all human. And it's at that level that I find myself connecting with people from the past. And I know many of you do too. I happen to have this totally unscientific and unsupported by the evidence belief, mostly because it hasn't been studied, that about 20% of us have the ability to read about events of the past or hear about them or see them in movies or whatnot and empathize with the people in the story. You know, we're able to mentally have some sort of human connection where for one, you know, flash bulb insight moment, we are able in some tiny way, you know, almost like an aftertaste, an emotional aftertaste, we're able to, you know, connect with what that person's going through or at least wonder about it in a way that touches something inside us. I had one of these moments when I was reading the material, rereading the material, for this part in this story that I like to call the Dan Carlin version of the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. And while I'm reading about this particular event, which I've read about before, it's a famous incident, I had to put the book down because for one quarter of one second I had that strange little aftertaste of an emotional experience that I never experienced in my mouth. There's a whole range of human emotions and thoughts that the vast majority of us will never touch. You know, it's in the red zone on the emotional intensity meter. And because we're not going through the experiences these people we're reading about in history were, we can't experience in any other way but vicariously what they experienced. And I'm reading about this event that happened in 71 BCE, and I had to put the book down for a moment. For one quick second, I was able to put myself in the position of the person in the story. And in some, you know, I mean, it's an insult to say that other than in some tiny, tiny little way, you know, I could almost look over and see the man binding my left hand to the, you know, left arm of a wooden cross. And then I could look over in the other direction and see another man doing the same thing to my right hand. And then you get raised up on this cross, so you're suspended there, you know, 8, 10, 12 feet high. And you are waiting to die. And it could be a long time before you get there. Before you become delirious and, you know, out of your head with dehydration or one of the many other things that would drive you crazy at a moment like this. There's quite a bit of time to think. What's that person thinking about? What's on that person's mind? What do you think about one minute into a crucifixion? And, you know, I've got the book down in my lap and I'm thinking about this and it just reminds you what a horrible punishment crucifixion is. It was considered an extreme punishment in an era and by people who considered things we would consider to be sadistic ways to die normal. Crucifixion was such a terrible way to die that things that would normally be considered, you know, wanton, senseless, cruelty were actually considered merciful if it was being done to someone who was, you know, strapped up there, not nailed. The normal procedure was to rope someone to a pole or a cross. And those people would often try to sell whatever meager possessions they still possessed, for example, the clothing that they were wearing, to some passing soldier in the hopes that they could persuade this soldier to stab them in the side with a spear which, of course, is what's supposed to have happened to uh, 
the biblical Jesus Christ. And it's always portrayed as some sort of, you know, sadistic, um, you know, extra punishment on the part of the Roman soldier, when in effect that would have been, you know, merciful. Same thing with the breaking of the legs of the crucifixion victims. You know, they pay someone to break their legs because if that happened, all the weight of the body would be suspended on the two arms tied to the cross, and that would often have the effect of asphyxiating the victim. Anything would be better than sitting up there for three or four days before you died from exposure. Try staying in the same position for one hour and see how torturous that is without any of the other aspects. The cramping alone would be enough to act as torture. And for one second, in 71 BCE, I felt like I could see it in my mind's eye. Six thousand people being crucified, you know, the same day, or maybe the same week. They didn't go into detail how long it took to crucify 6,000 people. But if you had the army involved, you might do it in a single day. So now imagine seeing the view from the eyes of the crucifixion victim that I was reading about the other day, and when they raise that cross up so you're suspended above the crowd, you look and you see lots of other people going, you know, stretching far off into the distance in the exact same situation you're in, all along the Appian Way. And it doesn't take much imagination to understand why the decision was made to put all these people to death along one of Rome's busiest highways was obviously to send a message. When you see a person dying on a cross every 40 or 50 or 60 yards, it gets in your head a little bit. And the reason this message was deemed important enough to be sent was because the people dying on these crosses were slaves. Part of the largest, almost certainly largest slave rebellion in all human history. And the 6,000 or so temporarily surviving members of this slave army were going to send a message in their death throes to all the other slaves passing by. This is what happens when you decide to face the might of Rome. And the message was being sent by a specific Roman, perhaps in order to gain a political edge back in the elections at home. That's a heck of a campaign ad. These people who were being so cruelly executed along Rome's busiest highways for more than a hundred miles, and whose bodies would stay up where they were for months, as a reminder and warning, those people were the very last remnants of what had almost certainly been the largest slave army in all human history. And when I say that, I don't mean slave army in the way that the Ottoman Turks of the 13, 14, and 1500s you know, the recent historical era. I don't mean anything like them where they had these slave soldiers raised up from kids who formed the Janissaries in their famous Turkish armies. Nor do I mean the sorts of slave soldiers like a people such as the ancient Illyrians would employ, where the warriors would each bring five or six slaves to the battlefield each, and they would all fight alongside each other, you know, in the life-or-death battles. Not like that either. These crucifixion victims were part of a slave revolt, perhaps the most famous one ever. 
It's the slave revolt commanded by the Thracian gladiator Spartacus, known to historians as the Third Servile War. And in reality, the Third Servile War plays a really sidebar role in this story. The only reason it really matters in the question of the decline and fall of the Roman Republic is it becomes just another one of those crisis opportunities. Those situations that seem out of the norm, even though they happen so often they are in effect part of the norm now in Roman history, that allow these hyper-ambitious great figures to come forward and expand their powers in ways that we would call today extra-constitutional. And it was especially bad in Rome because they had no written constitution, and if something happened often enough, it was, you know, through precedent, constitutional. So the more that, you know, these figures like Sulla arrived on the scene and used special dictatorial measures to fix things, the more that stuff becomes little by little almost constitutional itself. And when you think about this era, you know, when the slave revolt that ends up with these people on crosses, you know, when you think about this era, it had to have been an amazingly unsettling time. Everything's happening so fast, it's hard to get your mind around how quickly things were changing. Remember, in 91 BCE, which is less than two decades before this period, that's when Rome has the famous war against her own allies. Then right after that ends, Rome has a civil war against itself. And that's when you have Marius and Sulla going at it, the prescriptions and the murder of political enemies, and Rome changes hands several times and every time is followed by a massacre. And then when that's over with, you get the dictatorship of Sulla. And then he dies, and the ashes aren't even cold before, you know, a populare consul tries to overthrow all the sullen changes. And then, you know, one or two or three years later, here we are again, and you've got Spartacus. And understand something. Spartacus's move could not have caught the Romans by surprise. After all, there's a reason they called it the Third Servile War, and that's because Rome had already fought two. And if you go look at the First and Second Servile Wars... The first one fought about the time of Tiberius Gracchus. The second one fought about the same time Caius Marius was beating up on the Cimbri and the Teutons. And both of them extremely large by any sort of modern standards. I mean, there may have been 70,000, 100,000 people involved in the First Servile War. When you get the Third Servile War, the only thing that makes it outrageously different than the first two is, one, the numbers are bigger, and two, the first two Servile Wars were off on the island of Sicily, far away in the Roman Italian's mind from where they were, and the farms being destroyed and the people being killed and the slaves being stolen away from their masters, as a Roman master would see it, that was all happening, you know, over the horizon. The Third Servile War happened in Roman Italy, and all of a sudden the farms that were being burned and the slaves that were being lured away were Roman ones in Italy, sometimes even, you know, near the Eternal City itself. And you know, every time I look at the Servile Wars, I get a million what-if scenarios, you know, firing off in my head. The first one that always comes to mind is, oh my gosh, what if that had happened in the USA before the U.S. Civil War? Or what if the U.S. Civil War never happened and the African-American slaves in the USA had to sort of get their own freedom through revolts? Because a, a bad revolt in the pre-Civil War USA is something like, you know, 70 to 90 slaves. Sometimes a couple hundred, but... One of the most infamous slave revolts in all U.S. history is the famous Nat Turner revolts, where 70 to 90 slaves caused panic in the southern states, 
All sorts of legal reforms were put into place after that one to make sure we never got another slave revolt that big again. What would have happened in the U.S. South if 120,000 African-American slaves were breaking into federal armories and taking weapons and fighting off southern militia armies put together to, you know, defeat them? And if they were defeated with all the horrible atrocities, judging from how other slave revolts in our country were put down, imagine what world opinion and opinion in the North might have been liked among the abolitionists. A lot of fascinating what-ifs. And it's not that outrageous to wonder about it, because 120,000 African-American slaves in 1850 would have been a much smaller percentage of the slave population than 120,000 Roman slaves out of an estimated million Roman slaves were, was. The slaves of Spartacus are famous because they fought off a bunch of Roman armies. You don't usually imagine that happening. At one point, there's 70,000 of them camped out on Mount Vesuvius, we're told, and they defeat a couple of militia legions sent up to deal with them. And then there's 120,000 of them, we're told, you know, running around Italy defeating consular armies that face them. And eventually, the Romans are desperate for a good general to shut this slave revolt down. Here's where... The reason this story is important to the decline and fall of the Roman Republic comes into play. Because most ambitious Romans don't want anything to do with commanding the forces putting down the slave revolt. There's nothing to be gained in most of their minds and a lot to lose. I mean, one of the reasons these ambitious Roman figures usually want to command troops is either to gain money, and conquering a slave army wasn't going to bring that, or renown. And if you lose to a slave army, which Spartacus had already proved could happen over and over again, you're going to look like an idiot. And if you defeat the slave army, everybody's going to kind of go, well, it's a slave army, and we're not going to celebrate a triumph for that. Who wants to be remembered for conquering a bunch of slaves? It was looked at as a not good opportunity, especially when that, you know, perennial bugbear, Mithridates, now an old man and getting ready to launch what will be called the Third Mithridatic War, is still making trouble in the East with all that money and gold and jewelry he's sitting on. The Roman commanders, worth anything, were almost certainly sitting on their hands thinking, I'll sit that Spartacus thing out, and I'll command the you know, upcoming war against Mithridates. So now Rome needs help. And the guy who steps into the gap to fill that role is one of these people that... Sulla hoped his dictatorial reforms would prevent from becoming too powerful. Marcus Licinius Crassus. Now, Sulla wasn't thinking that Crassus specifically shouldn't become too powerful. He was trying to arrange it so that these Romans did not get into positions anymore where they could take power beyond what was constitutionally allowable. And these crises that Rome kept finding itself in provided those opportunities. Think of, you know, multiple 9-11s. You know, the same role that 9-11 played in the last dozen years of U.S. history. That's what all these wars are. The wars against the Roman allies, the civil wars, the wars against the slaves. And when someone steps into the gap and starts involving themselves in the problem, you don't ask too many questions about the constitutionality of what they're doing because they're doing something, you know, they're dealing with an unusual extreme situation. And Rome's problem in all this period is that those situations seem to be coming with increasing frequency. By this time, Marcus Licinius Crassus is going to be the guy that profits from it. Now, understand something. Profit is a key word. Because Marcus Licinius Crassus didn't need profit, which is one of the reasons this war looked better to him than to a bunch of other Roman elites to whom profit was very important. 
Crassus may have been the richest man in the Roman world at this time, and if he wasn't, he was on the top ten list. Money was only important to him at this point. For what else it could do for him, he wanted what every Roman elite you know, member of the political class wanted. He wanted power. He wanted to be consul. And he had to overcome certain deficiencies. The first deficiency of note for Crassus was he didn't have a great military resume. He had all the money, all the connections. He'd loaned money to everyone. And it was said that you'd rather pay Crassus, I'm paraphrasing here, but you'd rather pay him his money with his interest back than have to owe him a favor because that's where he really got the most out of the people he lent money to. Crassus was perhaps the greatest hoarder of favors I've ever run into in my life and maybe the best at using them. Now all of Rome was going to owe Crassus for the service he was providing, putting down what looked to the law and order Romans to be a momentous uprising of criminals. And Crassus had reason to want some military achievements added to his resume because his main competitor in the minds of many Romans during this era was the rock star of military achievements during this era. He was a glorious figure, and Crassus was much more of a workmanlike figure. Hard to compete with the luminescence surrounding this person known as Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great, a guy who had been given a triumph before he was old enough to have one, a guy that had told the murderous great Clint Eastwood dictator Sulla at the height of Sulla's power that people worship the rising sun more than the setting sun, Pompeius, of course, being the rising sun, Sulla the setting sun, and there was something about Pompeius that allowed him to get away with it. He was, as author Tom Holland says, insufferably successful. And his successes were military achievements. One of the things about Pompey that's interesting is the ancient sources comment about how much of a status he had in the minds of the Romans. You know, the people of Rome really did treat him like some sort of, you know, music celebrity or something. But he was more popular when he was gone. It was almost like there was a mystique about him, and you would get the reports of his achievements in a place like Spain, or against the pirates, or what have you. And then he would show up in Rome for a while, and you'd actually see him on the streets, and the reality didn't quite live up to the hype. So when Pompey was away, he was a figure that sort of haunted someone like Crassus, because here's Crassus going about the dogged, determined, daily business of political maneuvering, and here's Pompey who's off doing his thing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and his legendary Alexander the Great-like status among the populares of Rome seems to be increasing, you know, all the time. He's getting more mileage way over where he is than Crassus, who's loaning money to everybody and learning the names of every lowly Roman he encounters in the forum so he could impress them by remembering their names. I mean, he even spoke better than Pompey. We're told Pompey would blush and get uncomfortable trying to speak to a crowd. He knew so little about the actual mechanics of Roman politics that he would need a cheat sheet written up for him by someone who knew better. Pompey wasn't about that stuff. That was boring, day-to-day, you know, political stuff. This was a romantic, glory-addicted figure who liked triumphs, 
who liked armies, and who liked achievements because it made him popular. This was the guy Crassus had to somehow overshadow, and it was hard to do. So he brought some troops that he had procured himself. Remember, Crassus is the guy that said you can't really call yourself rich unless you can afford an army. So he brings some troops that he put together himself. He's also given by the Roman you know, leadership a couple of the consular armies. Already we're seeing this extra constitutional stuff happening because of this current crisis You know, on his merry way to put down this slave revolt. And at some point, a couple of his legions do something against his orders. And so he lines them up. The ancient sources take good care to point this out. This is an example of the kind of character Crassus was supposedly bringing. You know, you can almost see the political machinations of his PR staff. He has the legionaries brought before him, and he imposes the ancient punishment of decimation, we're told. Well, one source says a little something different, but basically he tells the legion to draw lots, and every tenth man will be beaten to death by his comrades, or alternatively have to watch him beaten to death by his comrades. And this is supposedly something that will appeal to the law and order Roman voters. It looks like he's getting tough and weeding out all these softies and we're going to get tough and stop this slave rebellion now, which Crassus, by what must be admitted, rather remarkable strategic generalship, does a very good job boxing in you know, this giant army of slaves. I keep trying to imagine 120,000 people trying to you know, be fed every day and have their sanitary needs taken care of and have clean water. And I mean, you just think about how big the camp would have been. Think about it if it's even half the size, the ancient writers say. And what Crassus was doing was boxing them in. He finally has them cornered all the way into the tip of Italy, and he proceeds to have his troops build a fortification across the tip of Italy so they're cut off from the rest of the Italian peninsula. And he's just about to wrap these slave wars up when rumor comes to him that Pompeius Magnus is coming back from Spain and he's looking to get involved and get a little cut of the glory in this slave revolt situation. And of course, Crassus has it all won. Here comes Pompey to swoop in like a vulture and try to steal it from him. So he hurries up, he tries to get it all done with. He's basically got the slave army defeated. And at one point, Pompey swoops in and kills 5,000 stragglers who've gotten away from, you know, Crassus's blockade. And then Pompey goes under Rome and says, yes, I, I ended the war. He gives Crassus a little credit for setting the stage, but you know, when it comes to wrapping it up and putting the nail in the coffin, I got those 5,000 people and it's over. This infuriated Crassus and may have had something to do with him feeling a need to have the 6,000 people crucified along Rome's busiest highways as a way of saying, I don't care what you've heard. Here are 6,000, 1,000 more than Pompey slew right here. Imagine how many others I killed, you know, during the operations. This was a setup for the consular elections of 70 BCE. And right away, with hindsight, it seems very obvious this is a Pompey versus Crassus Roman election. It's flash and glory versus money and maneuverings. And the two men don't like each other. What's more, both these men had armies. And they took their armies back to Rome with them, and both of them camped outside the walls of Rome with their legions. And of course, this freaked out both the people in Rome and the Senate. Everyone can remember the last 20 years. What does it look like when you have powerful Roman individuals commanding 
legions, and they're outside the walls of Rome. Obviously, everyone is a little unnerved by the whole thing. And yet, the Senate of Rome is hoping that the fact that there's two of these powerful guys and that they don't like each other is going to help cancel out their power. Instead, Pompey and Crassus do the unexpected and join forces. You see, they had petitioned the Senate for some waivers. They both want to come in and run for the top job in Rome. They want to be consul. And remember, there's two consuls. The problem is is that they have these armies with them, and you're not allowed to bring your army into Rome unless you're celebrating a triumph. You'd have to disband your army. Well, Pompey didn't disband his army. He said he wanted his army for a triumph, but he had to come in and get elected. Then he would go back out and bring the army in and use them for the triumph. He didn't want him to go home. And then Crassus understandably said, well, I'm not disbanding my army if he doesn't disband his. These are two of the leading figures of the forefront of a new Roman generation coming of age in Roman politics, even though Crassus is, you know, about 40 now. These are the people who learned how to play the Roman political game during its most bloody and, you know, bloodthirsty period. The civil wars. These guys understand, you know, the power and potential of legions and how having them can get you all sorts of rules waived. Pompey is supposed to have famously said while he was working for Sulla, you know, somebody started quoting some regulations to him about things that he could or could not do when he and a bunch of soldiers showed up on a scene. And Pompey famously said, don't quote laws to men who have swords. That's the lesson, and Crassus and Pompey both understood it, so they had swords with them in the thousands outside the gates of Rome, and they were both going to join forces and share the consulship after all. There's two of them, one for Pompey, one for Crassus, and the Senate gave way. As historian David Schotter says, providing a wonderful first example of how the Senate would give way under the pressure of a combination of great men. Both Pompey and Crassus were elected, overwhelmingly, and part of the reason why was they had done all the right things. They'd promised all the right things to all the right groups, both of them were promising to give in to the demands of the Roman business class for changes in the way Asia was being administered. Asia was where all the money was. And if you weren't squeezing Asia hard enough, the business class would get upset and squeal, and they were squealing, and Pompey and Crassus were saying, you know, if they were elected, things would change, and Asia would become more profitable, and you'll all be happy, business class. And the people had been screaming ever since Sulla died about wanting to overturn all those constitutional changes he made. They want their offices back, especially the Tribune of the Plebs. They want it empowered again so it can really do things. And the way a populare, like most of the Roman plebs were, um, you know, the way they thought about doing things was having a Tribune who could do what Tiberius Gracchus and Caius Gracchus and all those guys did a person who could really go in there and start chewing through the Roman system and getting them things they wanted. And remarkably, Pompey and Crassus, both protégés of the guy who, you know, made that illegal, promised to restore that too. And in 70 BCE, they did all these things. Author Anthony Everett had a very interesting speculation where he suggested that returning the tribune of the plebs power to the people was not a completely disinterested measure. That's how he put it. Because he said that that would give generals a new tool that they could use if they couldn't get past the Senate somehow, once again finding a loophole in the system that could be exploited by people who were 
you know, looking for loopholes. After the consulships of Crassus and Pompey expire, both men try to go about their normal business, although they're still probably the two most powerful men in Rome. Crassus goes back to money lending and widening his ever-expanding group of people who owe him favors. Pompey tries to get down to the day-to-day job of a Roman senator, but it all seems a little boring for him. The hearings, the glad-handing, just doesn't seem to suit a guy who's used to being a flashy general, and the sources indicate that he's looking around for an opportunity to get that sort of gig again. And while all this is going on, you begin to see the emergence from the historical you know, fog of the rest of the generation that Pompey and Crassus represent the leading edge of, the group that historian Eric Grun calls the last generation of the Roman Republic, and a bunch of leading figures who could compete with any generation the Roman Republic or Empire ever produced for formidable human beings. One of them represents one of the few times in history you actually see a historical legend seemingly reborn. That's a um, common myth across cultures all over the world and all different eras. The best example is probably the idea of King Arthur in Great Britain. And the idea always was that King Arthur, whether or not he really existed, um, you know, will return someday when Britain is in time of need. And you can go to cultures all around the world and see some heroic figure who's dead, who did great things, died, and now everyone believes will come back when the nation really needs them. There are a few times in history where you actually see something that make you scratch your head and go, wow, that's a pretty good example of what it might look like. And in this era, it comes in the form of a man who's named, just like the historical figure, he's sort of the reincarnation of. His name is Cato, and he's known as Cato the Younger in history, because Cato the Elder was the person who he almost looked like a twin of, at least someone who certainly modeled himself very well after his ancestor. Cato the Elder had been the one back during the Punic Wars, the one who ended every speech by saying, oh, and by the way, Carthage must be destroyed, a paragon of Roman virtue. That's exactly what Cato the Younger set out to be as well. He would become almost a stock character, someone writing a play could make a two-dimensional you know, figure out of this guy because he was the moralist. He was the goody-two-shoes who lived a life that was so clean it made everyone else look bad. He's portrayed as being devoted to the ancient Roman virtues from the get-go. And he's not really a letter-of-the-law kind of person. He's a spirit-of-the-law kind of person, which makes him even you know, harder for other people to swallow. They may be very lawyerish, and they can find little loopholes in the law. Cato didn't go in for loopholes. He was all about walking the walk, and that's what he was known for. He lived like a monk in his private life. The only thing he did that anyone could look at as a fault was he was a big drinker and liked his wine, but it never left him the worse for wear. He never, you know, didn't get up early. He never didn't do his job ever and he made you look bad because of how well he did it. The stories of his upbringing are extremely interesting. First of all, he was an orphan. His parents had died. So he was brought up in the house of Marcus Livius Drusus, the Roman figure who was killed, assassinated at his house in 91 BCE, touching off, you know, the war with the allies in Rome. Then, during Sulla's dictatorship, 
the young 14-year-old Cato, we're told, is often brought to see the dictator while he's dictator. And while he's there, he watches, you know, the heads of Sulla's political opponents, the victims of the prescriptions, being brought in, you know, for examination by Sulla. And Plutarch writes a piece where he talks about how, you know, Cato's in the room as a 14-year-old, and you can just hear the sighs in the room as some famous person's head is brought in on a platter. Here's what Plutarch says about, you know, Cato visiting with the Clint Eastwood dictator figure of Sulla when he's but 14 years old. Quote, Sulla, who was a friend of their family, sent at times for Cato and his brother to see them and talk with them a favor which he showed to very few after gaining his great power and authority. Sarpedon, that's Cato's teacher and minder at the time, Sarpedon, full of the advantage it would be, as well as for the honor as the safety of his scholars, would often bring Cato to wait upon Sulla at his house, which for the multitude of those that were being carried off in custody and tormented there looked like a place of execution. Cato was then in his fourteenth year and seeing the heads of men, said to be of great distinction, brought thither, and observing the secret sighs of those who were present, he asked his preceptor, Why does nobody kill this man? Because, said he, they fear him, child, more than they hate him. Why then, replied Cato, did you not give me a sword, that I might stab him and free my country from this slavery? Sarpedon, hearing this, and at the same time seeing his countenance swelling with anger and determination, took care thenceforward to watch him strictly, lest he should hazard any desperate attempt. End quote. See, Cato would turn out to be a very conservative figure in the Roman political scene, because conservative is hearkening back to the ancient virtues and laws of Rome. But Sulla, who is also considered a conservative, was breaking those ancient laws by being a dictator. And Cato at 14 said, why doesn't anybody kill the guy? And his mind are sick because they're afraid. He said, well, why don't you give me a sword? I'll kill him. And his minder took that seriously, based on Cato's, you know, look at the time. That story exemplifies, you know, the Cato image. But the Cato image was considered to be out of touch with reality by most Romans. As the great lawyer Cicero said, Cato acts as though he lives in Plato's Republic, instead of inhabiting the sewers of Rome. His philosophy wanted an ideal and the Rome he inhabited was far from that. Historian Will Durant had an interesting line about Cato, where he pointed out that Cato preferred to be ruled by an aristocracy, you know, all the old noble families of Rome with the famous last names, rather than be ruled by all the rich people that were now becoming very powerful in Rome, the business class with all its extra money, and Cato being one of those old-fashioned guys who looked back toward, you know, early Roman values, would see the ancient families as the only logical, powerful counterbalance to the, you know, new Bill Gateses and George Soros and Donald Trump types that were emerging in Roman society, guys like Crassus, for example. Here's what Will Durant writes. He says, quote, he scorned the business classes and defended aristocracy, or rule by birth, as the only alternative to plutocracy, or rule by wealth. He warred without truce upon the men who were corrupting Roman politics with money and Roman character with luxury. End quote. So a fascinating figure reminds you of some of the modern moralists, except you'll never catch Cato in some brothel or involved in some major scandal unless it was that he had a little too much wine the night before.
The next figure to emerge from this historical fog is the man we just mentioned a second ago, the great Roman intellectual Cicero. And Cicero is supposed to have said once that writing is the only true form of immortality, and he's the case that proves it, because one of the reasons that Cicero is as famous as he is is because of an almost historical case of good luck. A ton of his writings have come down to us. I can think of a thousand historical figures we would be just as enamored with as Cicero if their writings had managed, you know, by hook or by crook or some form of historical good fortune, come down to us. Not only we have Cicero's official stuff, we actually have his personal letters to his best friend, you know, the places where he expressed his innermost thoughts, but also, you know, he would express to his friend the tactics he was using, you know, his political tactics, whereas if you got the official stuff, all you saw were the political tactics being used. It creates a very three-dimensional figure and contributes to the complexity of this era. We're starting to get a lot of writing from a lot of the principles in this you know, story. And not just that, they have a partisan agenda in their era when they write this stuff. So you get a complete three-dimensional image. Sometimes you get you know, political slander, and it's hard to know what's true and what's not. Cicero's a wonderful example. Was Cicero this high-minded defender of the Roman Constitution, or was he this venal politician who, you know, saw defending the Constitution as a wonderful political position to adopt, you know, to grab the widest cross-section of Roman voters? There are several different traditions about this guy. He is, though, the only figure in our story that's truly an intellectual, that that's all he does. He's not known as a general. He's not known as a rich guy. He's known as someone whose oratory is devastatingly dangerous and feared. After his death, after his murder, for having a big mouth, I guess you could say, or having a silver tongue or what have you, the Roman tradition is that it will be cut out and a pin stuck through it before it's displayed on the rostrum as a way of getting back at the man's most dangerous weapon. Cicero's tongue was lethal. And it wasn't just the way that Cicero expressed his ideas. Sometimes the ideas themselves were revolutionary. Historian Michael Grant was a big Cicero fan. And here's what he writes about the uh, Roman orator, statesman, lawyer, Quote, Cicero, despite all his own faults and faults of his age, had accepted the Greek idea, now current among Roman jurists and other thinkers, of natural law, which was a corollary of the admission of non-citizens to Rome's legal system and which ought to be observed by all mankind. That is to say, he was convinced that right is right and wrong is wrong objectively, and that no pronouncements or laws can make them otherwise. And what was most wrong of all, he believed, was for one person to tyrannize others, Following up on the precincts of the Stoic philosophy founded two and a half centuries earlier, he accepted its injunction that men and women should treat one another generously and honestly. They must do so because all human beings have their own personal value and importance. This is because, according to the Stoic doctrine, all individuals share a spark of divinity that makes them akin to each other, irrespective of race or status or sex, in the universal brotherhood of humankind. That was one of the principal elements, Grant says, 
in the Humanitas, upon which Cicero insisted in a series of wonderfully well-written treatises on moral themes. Shunning dogma, in accordance with the views of the contemporary Athens Academy, these essays adopted Greek philosophy to Roman life, and both exemplified and demanded an enlightenment of mind and character, a recognition not only of one's own unique personality, but also of the personality of others. This was the most civilized ideal for practical purposes of living that the world had ever seen. It has deeply influenced Western thought from his time to our own. End quote. One gets the impression that there are other sources, both from you know, his lifetime and since, that could be found that would contradict such a high-minded, long-term view of Cicero. But that's just sort of the controversial figure all these people are starting to be as we get more information you know, from this period. As history sort of opens up wider, all of a sudden our perspective gets less two-dimensional. That's especially true with the next person to arrive, you know, past those historical mists and come to the fore. He's one of the most famous people in all human history. I'm, of course, talking about the great Julius Caesar. Caius Julius Caesar is the full name. And under the old standards of history, the so-called great man version of history, as opposed to the more multidimensional type of history we have now that looks at regular folks and people from all different walks of life in the old Churchillian style of history. And by those standards, Julius Caesar very well may be the greatest figure in all history. And it's hard to not go overboard when you're talking about him. First of all, he appears to me to have been a genius, a born genius, someone like a Mozart. In the same way, Mozart was born a musical genius when you read about the talents that Caesar had, they seem to be almost in that same sort of genre. He was different from birth, and his talents were specifically, you know, handy if you happen to want to do what he wanted to do and what most Romans of any era wanted to do. He was from an old family that had fallen on hard times. He could trace his lineage, and remember, in the Roman system, if you had someone famous in your background, they appeared at every family funeral and any event, and there was a wall probably in his house growing up showing these people from a long, 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 long time ago that had the same last name or middle name as he had. He could trace his descent, according to him, all the way back to the gods. He was related to Venus, you see, and that's a pretty good family tree. Add to that some consuls that had ruled, you know, Rome 400 years previously. I mean, it's a great long lineage, but he lived in a not-so-big house in a bad part of town where the brothels were and the bars and the seedy lowlifes, and he was the first real gifted person in his family to be born in quite some time. Here's how Pliny the Younger describes him. Quote, Caesar is said to have been tall, fair, and well-built, with a rather broad face and keen, dark brown eyes. He was something of a dandy, always keeping his head carefully trimmed and shaved, and has been accused of having certain other hairy parts of his body plucked with tweezers. His baldness was a disfigurement which his enemies harped upon, much to his exasperation, but he used to comb the thin strands of hair forward on the top of his head, and of all the honors voted him by the Senate and the people, none pleased him so much as the privilege of wearing a laurel wreath on all occasions. He constantly took advantage of it. 
His dress was, it seems, unusual. He had added wrist-length sleeves with fringes to his purple-striped senatorial tunic, and the belt which he wore over it was never tightly fastened. Hence, Sulla's warning to the aristocratic party, beware of that boy with the loose clothes, end quote. I can't help but think of Caesar as sort of a rich punk rock type of guy. He was setting fashion trends at all times. I mean, people a couple of years after Caesar did something, you know, it would be all around Rome. He set the fashion trends. And he had a certain arrogance about him that he could pull off because he was utterly charming. This was another one of these things that in a system of government where you didn't just get to be born a king like Alexander the Great. Alexander never had to be particularly charming if he didn't want to be. In Caesar's world, which was a political world, in a republic, even, you know, at this late stage, his personal charm and his personal magnetism and his ability to get along with people and relate to them was a huge part of his success. And dressing provocatively and standing out and being a sort of a fashion plate and at the same time nonconformist was intoxicating. He was a little bit of a celebrity, even from the very beginning. Historian Michael Grant, who is not as enamored of Caesar as he is of Cicero, still had to write this about the qualities of the man's you know, personality. Quote, Equally disconcerting, and indeed unnerving, was Caesar's extraordinary charm. Whenever he chose to exhibit it, the people in whose company he found himself were overwhelmed by the fascinating manner, amusing conversation, and hilarious good humor of this supremely courteous, cultivated, urbane man. Grant then goes on to say, though, But the gift which contributed most largely to his success was an abnormally energetic ability to get things done. He quotes Pliny the Elder who was explaining what Caesar did all the time when he was traveling from place to place. He would travel usually in a litter, and people would carry it. And while he was going from place to place in the litter, he'd be doing work the whole time. Here's what he wrote. Quote, Caesar was accustomed to write or dictate and read at the same time, simultaneously dictating to his secretaries four letters on the most important subjects, or, if he had nothing else to do, as many as seven. Here's what Grant says about Caesar's ability to do all these things at once. Quote, the point was that he could do everything with extraordinary speed. The orator Cicero, who hated him utterly, described his rapidity at the beginning of the Civil War as something horrifying and monstrous. Caesar lived at a faster tempo than the people who had to contend with him, and this gave him an enormous advantage, offering the widest scope to that capacity for the unexpected, unpredictable action, which his friends found such an irresistibly attractive feature of his talents. End quote. Grant then goes on to point out his belief that this is why Caesar had such an amazing ability to trust his own luck. And he points out that to a lot of ancient peoples, the Roman included, luck wasn't just chance. Luck indicated some sort of favoritism from the gods or the divine or what have you. A lucky person was lucky for a reason, not just because he was lucky. Now, another aspect of Caesar's character that makes him wonderfully suited to being a soap opera historical figure is that apparently he was sleeping with everyone. The Roman story of this period reminds me a lot of a very open version of Victorian England, where the public morals are supposed to be kind of, you know, strict, 
but everyone's still sleeping with everyone else behind closed doors. And Caesar will have a reputation and, and, and will really actually not just sleep with a lot of women, he will sleep with a lot of women who are married to the very people he's contending with and fighting with. He's sleeping with celebrity women, essentially, famous wives, the people who are both the friends and enemies of him personally. There's a famous story with Cato, who's issuing a harangue about a plot that was supposedly uncovered that he thought Caesar was involved in. And he's yelling and screaming about this plot and someone wants to overthrow the government. And all of a sudden, while all this is going on and Caesar is sitting there watching Cato impassively, someone brings a note quietly to Caesar who opens it up and reads it. Well, Cato sees that this is happening and he points to Caesar and says, see, you know, there's evidence where he's reading notes right here. That's probably, you know, from one of the conspirators. Hand over that note at once. So Caesar hands it to Cato and it's a love letter from Cato's sister, an explicit one. That was vintage Caesar. When he was still in his teens, he was sent to Bithynia, which is over in Asia Minor, and supposedly the king of Bithynia took a fancy to him, and they had an affair, or not, but the reputation of having maybe lost his virginity to the king of Bithynia followed Caesar around for the rest of his life. Some historians suggest that he didn't care that much because at least it was getting his name out there in front of the public and everyone would know who he was. That's the same reason you walk around the forum in a toga with sleeves with fringe on it, a little like Elvis Presley, and wearing your belt really loose and your toga hanging, you know, off of you in an almost wanton fashion. Bit of a punk rock prodigy with the charm to pull it off, it seems to me. And Caesar had guts, real guts. He would tell people who had the power to lop his head right off, no, when they told him to do something. It happened to him when the dictator Sulla told him that he needed to divorce his wife, and Caesar said no. And all the historical evidence suggests that Caesar's wife was not someone he had a passionate attachment to. After all, he was having affairs all the time. But Sulla told him to do this or essentially face the consequences, and Caesar told him where to go. Now, the reason that Sulla told Caesar to do this is because Caesar's wife was the daughter of the revolutionary Cinna, who with Caius Marius came in from the Populare side and took over Rome and killed all those people. You could hardly mention their names anymore in Roman society. And not only was Caesar married to that woman, but he was a relative through marriage of Caius Marius. It's like a double negative. And still, Sulla's going to not kill him. Just all you have to do is divorce your wife. And he said, I'm not going to divorce my wife. And he's still a kid, basically. That marks him out as special right there. After getting on Sulla's bad side, but managing to avoid being killed, Caesar leaves Italy for a while, you know, let the heat die down. And then when Sulla dies, he comes back to Italy, but then quickly leaves again and has one of those experiences that could be part of the movie. You know, the life and adventures of young Julius Caesar because he's not anybody but a young up-and-comer now, and he gets captured by pirates. And here's how historian Will Durant relates that famous, you know, pirate story from Julius Caesar's young life. Quote, Pirates captured him on the way, took him to one of their Calician lairs, and offered to free him for 20 talents. He reproached them for underestimating his value, and volunteered to give them 50. 
Having sent his servants to raise the money, he amused himself by writing poems and reading them to his captors. They did not like them. He called them dull barbarians and promised to hang them at the earliest opportunity. When the ransom came, he hurried to Miletus, engaged vessels and crews, chased and caught the pirates, recovered the ransom, and crucified them. But being a man of great clemency, he had their throats cut first. Then he went to Rhodes to study rhetoric and philosophy. End quote. I think perhaps the part I like the best about that is then he went to Rhodes to study rhetoric and philosophy. Interesting people, these Romans, eh? That's a great story, though, because what it essentially tells you is that Caesar's charm was such that he was interacting in a friendly way with these pirates who captured him and jokes, you know, in a not-so-joking fashion that, you know, as soon as I'm out of here, I'm going to come back and kill you all. And they were kind of going, okay, you know, all right, good luck. And when they try to offer a ransom, Caesar feels insulted by how low it is and offers them almost triple what they're asking. I mean, these are the kind of things... And then, to go, well, and then to go do it, then to go and raise the crews and come back and crucify all these guys who he knew by name while he was captured with them, you can see right there, you're not dealing with a normal human being. Now, even though Caesar had supporters on both sides of the major political divide in Rome. After all, if he hadn't had conservative supporters, he never would have escaped Sulla's purges when Sulla said that that guy has a bunch of Mariuses in him, and he lived anyway. But for the whole of his life, Caesar would be probably the most steadfast Roman politician that there was for the populare cause. And normally, the Roman politicians supported whichever cause... You know, the moment dictated. There were some that were firmly in one camp or the other all the time, though. And Caesar's one of the ones who's most firmly in, you know, what might be called the, you know, people's side of the equation. The ones who supported the people's assembly over the Senate and who opposed, for the most part, the oligarchy. Very difficult to oppose the oligarchy all the time and still do well in Rome, although money helped. And Caesar was able to get his hands on plenty and spent it lavishly. In addition, Caesar was known for his clemency. When he would get in positions of power, especially with Romans, but sometimes even with barbarians and other people, Caesar's clemency and willingness to spare people's lives was unusual. And it's very, very possible that it was more of a political tactic than anything else. In the same way that Crassus would loan you money and you would owe him a favor, Caesar would spare your life and you would owe him for that. There are people later on in this story that will kill themselves rather than owe Caesar for their continued existence. Caesar's populare sympathies were worn on his sleeve as well. Remember, Sulla had told him to divorce his wife because his wife was the daughter of Cinna, the revolutionary, and Caesar had told him to go jump in the lake. Well, after Sulla is dead, in the post-Sullan climate in Rome, you're not allowed to talk about people like Cinna and the great Caius Marius. Their statues had been removed in the city, and in polite conversation, their names were never brought up. Well, Caesar has a couple of important funerals early on in his political career, and funerals were the place, remember, where the Romans would display, either with images or statues, or with wax death masks, or with actors dressed up in the parts, their famous ancestors. It was part of, you know, pumping up the family reputation. It had political ramifications. And when Caesar's aunt and his wife died, he brought out the banned images of Gaius Marius to the funeral. That's wearing your political sympathies on your sleeve 
And at the same time, it was so unusual, such an outrage, that people were told stood up at the funeral and started yelling and screaming about what an outrage it was. And to show how divided and repressed a society it was, where all of the people who had supported the popular cause had to kind of bite their tongues for years, other people at the funeral stood up and shouted down those who originally yelled about seeing the Gaius Marius funeral displays. When Caesar gets a little older and he gets one of those junior magistrate positions in Rome, you might compare it to being in charge of parks and recreation, and one of the things he takes care of is the maintenance of the city's many statues. And one morning, the people of Rome wake up, and they wipe the you know, sleep from their eyes, and they get on the road to head to their place of work or wherever their day takes them, and all of a sudden, all over the city, there are statues of Gaius Marius, ones that had cropped up overnight without anyone having any idea this was coming. All the old statues commemorating the great seven-time consul's many victories, saving Rome from the Germans, they were all back out on the streets. Caesar had had them made again, probably. They were probably destroyed, either made again or brought out of storage, and all of them put back overnight in their original spots. That's a little like saying it's okay for all of you populare people out there to proclaim, you know, your political affiliation openly again, because I just did, in a more open way than you're ever going to do. Now, all three of these important figures I just introduced, Cato, Cicero, and Caesar, will come to the fore in a famous event in Roman history. And one of the reasons that they are likely as powerful as they are in this story is because the most powerful man in the Roman world is gone when it happens. Pompey the Great, Pompeius Magnus, has had it with, you know, the slow day-to-day grind of legislating in the Senate. He finally finds his great cause that will allow him to go be the superhuman, you know, rock star again in military endeavors because the pirates, the same ones who had captured Julius Caesar, are out of control in the Mediterranean. And it's gotten so bad, you know, they don't even know if they could import the grain to feed Rome's, you know, poor huddled masses. And it becomes a crisis. And Rome's Senate debates the issue and decides that it's so bad we have to give all this power to one man again. And this power is going to give whomever gets a hold of it total control in the whole Mediterranean plus 50 miles in from the coastline everywhere around the Mediterranean. Historians have pointed out that this would give control of the vast majority of the population of the known world to whomever got this command. Guess who got it? Pompey the Great. What's more, one of the few, maybe the only one to stand up and say, yes, I favor giving this enormous amount of power to one man, was this young person few had even paid much attention to, except that he was obviously awesome, but at the same time, he's a young guy and his name was Julius Caesar. He spoke out for this extraordinary amount of power to go to Pompey, whereas Cato and a bunch of the other traditionalists were absolutely, you know, petrified with the idea of taking already probably the most powerful figure in Rome and giving them total power, the right to go make all this money, train this army to peak efficiency, and then come back here and celebrate the whole thing. To them, it looked like a whole Sulla redo, but Pompey got his command and promptly in Pompeian fashion was amazing. He lines up a fleet, essentially, in the west of the Mediterranean, and like a net, just moves it east, trapping all the pirates up against the coast and resettling some, killing others. He's amazing at it. And then he goes from there and wraps up the last of the three wars against Mithridates, the great of Pontus, who now runs away and pays 
the most ironic price you can imagine for spending his whole lifetime building up his immunity to poisons so that family members can't poison him, you know, in his sleep or something, in his castle. Instead, now he tries to poison himself with the Romans, you know, fast on his heels, and the poison won't work. So he has to have a slave either kill him or he kills himself, and Pompey gets away with all of Mithridates' loot, including his personal stash of antique mementos, which is supposed to include the great Alexander's cloak, which Pompey will start wearing around and bring back with him to Rome and wear in a parade. Meanwhile, he's got more conquests to make, so he goes down and starts ripping apart the Seleucid Empire, which is what will give Rome command of you know, the whole Holy Land. And while Pompey's gone, Caesar and Cicero and Cato take part in an event that I can't really describe to you because I don't know what happened. You see, there's something now that happens in Rome, and it's quite important, called the Catiline Conspiracies. The problem is, is that we only have information on this from people who had a very vested interest in one side of the story. The more you study this, the more it looks like Oliver Stone's you know, JFK movie, a John F. Kennedy conspiracy. You can't, you know, in the light of day now in modern times, figure out what's happening. And, you know, really reputable good historians differ profoundly on this point. Here's what you can tell for sure. We've been saying since the beginning of this series on Rome that Rome's going through tough economic times. Well, the last 20 years with slave revolts and revolts of the Allies and civil wars and, you know, the problems in Asia and everything else has contributed to now, in the 60s BCE, the very worst of the economic climates. Now, this will get fixed relatively soon when Pompey comes home because he's raking in money, and some of that money will go to himself, but some of it will go to, you know, Rome and Italy, and he'll bring it back, and, you know, it'll be wonderful when it happens. But Pompey's off just starting that whole situation. No one knows how it's going to turn out. And the situation in Rome is desperate. And it's desperate amongst a lot of different people. For example, the lower classes, it's desperate because it's been desperate for a long time. One of the interesting things about Rome during this period is many sources from the era explain that Rome was really getting the worst people from all of, you know, the Roman world congregating in it the people who lost their jobs or were essentially homeless or couldn't make ends meet or were crazy or whatever were leaving all the other cities and going to Rome because you could get free food. The grain that was subsidized as part of a program usually to keep the people happy and get their votes created a climate where people who couldn't make it in the other Roman cities would flock to Rome, creating an underclass that was always angry, always poor, always living at a poverty level, and probably were the dregs in whatever society they had emigrated from. Rome had more than its share of, you know, the lower classes. And a lot of times, the Romans would try to start colonies elsewhere so that they could take these people that were not considered to be, you know, adding much to the Roman story and get them out of Rome. That class had been destitute a long time. But add to that all of Sulla's veteran legionaries who had been rewarded with the land grants a decade or so previously. A lot of them didn't make good farmers. They were in default. Or they'd been given really terrible land and sort of cheated, and they were angry and veterans, and they'd seen what working together could do for them. A lot of the really upper classes, though, were absolutely broke. They were borrowing tons of money because that's what you needed to run for office in Rome. And 
if you lost, the credit dried up instantly. It created an absolute desperation among Romans when they ran for office that if they didn't win, you know, it was all lost. Caesar himself is famous for running for the Pontificus Maximus, and he's running against a much more seasoned person who has a lot of money, and he finds out that Caesar's kind of hurting for cash, and he goes up and says to him, listen, if you just drop out of the race, I'll pay all your debts and give you some money, which to Caesar looked like an act of weakness, so he went out and borrowed even more money from the moneylenders, and then told his mother as he kissed her goodbye on election day, either I win this or I'm not coming back. Because if he'd lost, he would be considered a bad risk for his political creditors. The credit would dry up and he'd be done. Well, this was the exact situation that Lucia Sergius Catiline found himself in while running for the consulship. See, Catiline, like all Romans running for high office, has you know maxed out his credit, borrowed heavily to win the top job. One of the people he's running against, though, is Cicero also trying to get the top job, and who has much less money. One of the reasons that Catiline is seen as so much of a devil by history is because Cicero, you know, takes his silver tongue and uses it to just make Catiline look terrible. One of the debating tendencies of the day and the things that lawyers would use is absolute, you know, smear of character, and Cicero was an expert at this, and he made Catiline sound like some sort of hideous zombie who would tear the Republic apart. And Catiline kind of gave him a little ammunition because Catiline was proposing something that was called new tablets in the Latin. Now, new tablets meant an erasing of debt. He was calling for the situation where everyone was in hock up to their ears to be essentially wiped out overnight. Obviously, there was a lot of popular support for this. And not just amongst the classes you would expect it from, all the poor folks, there was a ton of the nobility that had impoverished themselves up to their ears, and the idea of having their debt wiped out didn't sound too bad either. At the same time, this was something that would obviously be amazingly disruptive to Roman society, and since there weren't really banks and whatnot, as one historian's pointed out, all it would do is move the debt and who suffered from default to other people but it was an immensely clever political ploy, and Catiline was not the first to use it. Other populares had thrown out similar ideas earlier. This freaked out the oligarchy, of course, who then threw their weight behind Cicero. And Catiline does not get the gig. It makes him more bitter than you can believe. So he decides he's going to try one more time. You get the feeling that he's got enough backing financially to try one more time. And this time, because he's the outgoing consul, Cicero, who's now made a powerful enemy of Catiline, has to be the one to carry out and sort of manage the elections. This is when the so-called conspiracy, if it happened, comes to a head. Now, the traditional story of the unfolding of the Catiline conspiracy is so full of drama that I'm tempted to just relate it you know, in its traditional form, the way Cicero explained it, or Sallust, or guys like that. But I can't do that in good conscience, because the reason it's such a great dramatic story may be because it was concocted to be one by guys like Cicero and Sallust. Cicero made his reputation in this situation. The Catiline conspiracies are important to this story of the fall of the Roman Republic because of the stage that it set for certain people to perform on. And this was Cicero's time to star. He would break up what Michael Grant 
a uh, Roman expert says was a second-rate conspiracy, um, and then basically claimed to have saved Rome. He'll be hailed as the father of his country, the second savior of Rome, for, for stopping this attempted overthrow of the Roman state when there's real doubt about what this was at all. This is the ancient world's version of the JFK assassination, and you can drown in the conspiracies and double conspiracies. And I mean, for example, it's very possible Catiline, bitter about the way things have gone, feeling cheated. There are letters that he supposedly sent to people that have come down in history, and they're great to read, but they may be forged too. That's how deep this conspiracy goes. The forging may be an attempt to once again, show that Catiline and all of his evil followers were trying to do horrible things and needed to be stopped. But the letters are great stuff. I mean, it shows, if nothing else, how the Romans focused on, you know, their own personal dignity and how important it is to climb that rung of honors and get to the top job. And when Catiline was blocked in a way that he probably saw as maneuverings or illegal, um, you know, the story says that he went out there and tried to get power by other means. And because he was promising to erase everyone's debt and distribute land to a lot of people, there were a ton of folks in his following that were very desperate. People who, if they could get Catiline into power, stood to have all their debts erased, and you know, they're almost bankrupt or up against it. You could be sold into slavery, by the way, depending on your class, if you, uh, you know, were bankrupt. And these are people that if Catiline lost, they'd have to pay all those debts. The numbers on their books would be real. So there was real desperation out there, and Catiline was obviously appealing to it. But if you read the sources, it sounds like Catiline is the second coming of, you know, the most evil, quasi-moto, Ivan the Terrible type guy in history. They, guys like Salas lay every sort of blame on him you can. And do we really want to trust sources like this? Let me read to you Salas's description of Catiline. And understand that, you know, of the few sources we have on this guy, this is the kind of bias you have working for you. Here's what Sallust writes. Quote, From the very first, Catiline, as an adolescent, had committed many unspeakable acts of illicit sex with a noble maiden, with a priestess of Vesta. That's a Vestal Virgin, folks. That's an executable, you know, that's a death penalty offense, having sex with a Vestal Virgin. Back to the piece. And other deeds of this type, contrary to divine and human law. Finally, he was captivated by love for Aurelia Arestola, in whom no good man ever praised anything but her appearance. But, because she hesitated to marry him through the fear of a stepson of adult years, it is believed, for certain, that he killed his son, thereby ensuring an empty house for the criminal marriage. In this affair, above all, which seems to me to have been his reason for speeding up the deed, for his vile spirit, hostile to gods and men, could not be calmed by wakefulness or repose. To such an extent was his conscience preying upon his unquiet mind. Hence his bloodless expression and his ugly eyes, and his walk alternating between fast and slow. In short, there was a derangement in his demeanor and face. End quote. So pretty much... Sallust makes him out to be some kind of insane person who walks fast, has a weird sort of gait, who looks strange, who kills his son so he can have... I mean, this is your unbiased source. And Cicero, this is a man who will be proclaimed father of his country for saving Rome from this conspiracy that he first brought up, then provided the documentation for and made the case for, and then benefited from personally. This is the biggest political success, arguably, in Cicero's career. 
and to expect him to be unbiased about how large the demon was that he slayed um, is unrealistic. In fact, there's a way you could look at this, the Dan Carlin way, I would suggest, that I think makes sense. And all you're doing when you come up with these theories is siding with some historians, because historians ever since this period, the end of Republican Rome, have been arguing about who Catiline was and what was this conspiracy, and did he really plan to sweep into Rome and have his followers kill a bunch of senators and the two consuls and light parts of Rome on fire and bring in an army from Maturia? There was an army, a couple thousand guys, small, but I mean, it was there. Was all that, you know, true? Because what happens is Cicero supposedly gets word in the middle of the night from Crassus, and Crassus, the richest man in the world or whatever, has received a warning note from somebody who says, you know, you got to get out of town. Something's about to go down, and uh, you know, you're going to be one of the first targets. Get out now. And so Crassus, with a bunch of other people who supposedly receive similar warnings, you know, knocks on Cicero's door at midnight, wakes him up, shows him the notes. He runs down to the forum. Everybody convenes, and he says, this terrible thing's about to happen. They end up, and this is one of the reasons why the story becomes important to later history, they end up scotching the whole deal in advance. A note trying to get a Gallic tribe on the side of this, you know, rebellion that's coming is intercepted, and a bunch of the people supposedly involved in the plot, although not Catiline, including some, uh, you know, rather upper-class Romans, uh, are captured. And then there's this debate, this famous debate, over what's going to be done with them. And this is another reason you can't trust Cicero, because... What Cicero is advocating should be done with them is basically something that a lot of Romans after this time will say is unconstitutional and that violates all these uh, rights that Romans have. And so Cicero's got a vested interest after this date of making it seem like this was a, you know, you don't understand what a unique, terrible event this Catiline thing was. And this is the case he's making to, you know, this group of senators all gathering around. What should we do with these five or six captured important people in the plot? And Cicero's arguing, that look, the plot's still going on. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we could have a crisis situation in a minute. And of course, Rome doesn't really have a prison system per se. So Cicero's arguing that these guys have to be killed. And he's working under a decree that gives him emergency power. But you know, he's not a nobleman. He's not one of the great Romans. He's from that same small town that Gaius Marius was from. He has to sort of appeal to the more powerful senators. He says, I think he should die. What do you guys think? And basically they start voting for death. And then one guy stands up, one of the young senators, and says, I don't think we should kill him. Says, I think they need to be um, locked up or put in someone's houses under their, you know, honor or whatever until this whole thing can be sorted out and we can decide this when, you know, calmer heads prevail. After all, you know, you're not allowed to go deprive a Roman of his life without, you know, putting it to the people. That man is Gaius Julius Caesar. And then all of a sudden, a lot of these senators that had just said, yes, we have to kill these men, um, changed their minds. All of a sudden, the whole Senate's kind of thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't do it. I don't know. That's a pretty persuasive argument. And Cicero calls on Cato. Cato, the one who always appeals to the old Roman way and the Stoic Roman values and gets up there and shames everybody by how unflinchingly Stoic and inflexible he is when it comes to the moral issues. And he gets up there and basically says, you know, two things. One, we should kill all these people. And two, he, he implies that Julius Caesar might have been in on the plot. And there's a lot of people saying Crassus might have been in on the plot. Again, once you dive into the Catiline conspiracies, you might as well be just... I mean, there, it's one of the great ones. I mean, JFK is one of the great ones, too. The rabbit hole goes so deep on that, you could just go into it for hours. What it means for Rome, though, is Cicero takes these you know, captives that they have and very quickly has them killed has them executed, just marches them right off to the jail, they're strangled there, and it's over. 
before. It, it almost feels like it was done so that it would be over and no one would be able to say a word and it's a fait accompli. I've read some of these people who say that that was to get people out of the way that could contradict Cicero's side of the story. Catiline will end up fleeing. He'll put himself at the head of this small army. They'll fight a battle. He'll be killed. So will the army. And so ends the Catiline conspiracy, really. But if you ask me, if I had to choose between the various conspiracy theories here, what I think Catiline was was just another version of the same pattern we've seen in the Roman Republic going back to at least Tiberius Gracchus. These reformers uh, who rise up and get slammed down by the governing oligarchy, and sometimes these reformers are genuinely, you know, humanitarians, basically, and sometimes they're young noblemen who can champion the cause of the masses and, you know, benefit politically at the same time. Some of them cynically, but I think some of them looked at it as the best of both worlds. How will I get to be a great Man, which of course is all of our goals, right, Romans? Well, I will champion the cause of the people, I will be doing good, and I will become great at the same time. Here's the letter, maybe forged, but here's the letter that comes down to us that's supposed to be an explanation by Catiline, probably on his way to death, facing the might of the Roman state now that his you know, supposed plot has been exposed. Here's his justification for doing what he's doing. It's interesting, and it tells you a lot about the Romans of the period and what they valued, whether the letter is forged or not. Quote, I do not intend to make any formal defense of my new policy. I will, however, explain my point of view. What I'm going to say implies no consciousness of guilt, and on my word of honor, you can accept it as the truth. I was provoked by wrongs and insults and robbed of the fruit of my painstaking industry, and I found myself unable to maintain a position of dignity. So I openly undertook the championship of the oppressed, as I had often done before. I saw unworthy men promoted to honorable positions and felt myself treated as an outcast on account of unjust suspicions. That's why I have adopted a course of action, amply justified in my present circumstances, which offers a hope of saving what is left of my honor. I intend to write at greater length, but news has come that they're preparing to use force against me. So for the present, I commend Aristilla, his wife, to you, and entrust her to your protection. Shield her from wrong. I beg you in the name of your own children. Farewell. End quote. How wonderfully dramatic is that? Impossible to know, but the story itself is fascinating. And in my mind, the oligarchy of Rome was past the point where they could just kill these populare troublemakers like Tiberius Gracchus and Caius Gracchus. The old mob violence way in the old days wouldn't work anymore. You had to have some sort of excuse or justification to, you know, sell it to the people. Wasn't the oligarchy trying to protect our own interest? These guys were going to bring violence and death and destruction to all of Rome again. Remember Marius and those guys? That's the way they made it sound. This is how you kill a Tiberius Gracchus 60 years after Tiberius Gracchus when the old excuses don't work anymore. That's kind of how it looks to me. And there's little bits of evidence of the fact that these guys were heroes to the lower classes because for years after the death of Catiline and the crushing of the conspiracy by the now hailed as father of the nation Cicero, the poor people were still draping flowers all over the grave of Catiline. Not the kind of thing you do for a deranged sexual pervert that tried to bring death and destruction to Rome, right? No histories from that period have come down to us. 
championing the point of view of those people, putting flowers on Catiline's grave. Instead, it will be up to more modern historians to attempt to give the perspective from the side that was defeated in the Catiline affair. Modern historian Will Durant writes such an epitaph when he says, quote, being essentially a man of thought rather than of action, Cicero was surprised and impressed by the skill and courage he had shown in suppressing a dangerous revolt. The direction of so great an enterprise, he told the Senate, seems scarcely possible to merely human wisdom. He compared himself with Romulus, that's the mythical founder of Rome, folks, but considered it a greater deed to have preserved Rome than to have founded it. Senators and magnates smiled at his language, but they knew that he had saved them. Cato and Catullus hailed him as father of his country. When, at the end of 63 BC, he laid down his office, all the propertied classes in the community, he tells us, gave him thanks, named him immortal, and escorted him in honor to his home. The proletariat did not join in these demonstrations. It could not forgive him for violating the laws of Rome by putting citizens to death without appeal. It felt that he had made no effort to remove the causes of Catiline's revolt or to mitigate the poverty of the masses. It refused to let him address the assembly on that last day and listened in anger when he swore that he had preserved the city. The revolution was not over. With Caesar's consulate, it would begin again. End quote. Durant comes from the historical camp that sees all of these affairs since Tiberius Gracchus in 140 as manifestations of the same revolution, a movement that in his mind ebbs and flows like a forest fire. And sometimes you'll get a great leader like a Tiberius or a Caius Gracchus, and then it flames up again, and then when it's crushed by the oligarchy, it lays low for a while only to flame up again, you know, with the next inspirational popular leader. There are many people who, after Catiline's rebellion was crushed, felt that Caesar and Crassus got off lightly. They would be tarred and feathered for you know, the rest of their careers for involvement in the Catiline affair that some felt had never been brought out. In fact, there's a story of a person who appeared after Catiline's death who said that he had proof of the involvement of one or both of those men, and he was shouted down and hustled away and put into jail, and by morning he was dead. As I said, you could drown in all the wonderful eddies connected to the Catiline conspiracy. After the threat of the conspiracy is removed, life gets back to some level of normalcy. Caesar's elected to the top religious position in Rome, the Pontificus Maximus, in 62 BCE. And that's the same year that he has to divorce his wife. And he has to divorce his wife for reasons connected to probably the most historically important case of cross-dressing in human history. That and the entire rest of the story, no matter how long it takes, in the next edition of Death Throes of the Republic. Coming up in the next episode of Death Throes of the Republic, we're going to do something we've never done before as part of this program. We're going to try to tie up a multi-part series in one very long episode. We'd like to get past this to more different historical tales, and yet we don't want to cheat this story at all because we're obviously in love with it. So we're assuming if you've stuck around five episodes already, you'd be fine with an extra long one to tie it all together, and that's what we plan in episode six. 
We'll take this story to the Ides of March. We'll talk about the first triumvirate. We'll talk about, you know, the deaths of some of the great men in this story, and then we'll give you a little postscript at the end. In other words, we'll give you the rest of the story, no matter how long it takes. In Death Rose of the Republic, Part 6. Do you shop online at Amazon.com? If you do, consider doing so through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com. Your shopping experience will be the same as always, but Amazon will give Dan and Ben a little kickback for sending you there. Remember that you can purchase the archives of all of our old shows by going to the website and clicking on our merchandise link. We also want to thank you all for posting reviews on podcast sites and comments and blogs about the show. It's really helping. This show is the last in a multi-part series on the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. This show is also, by leaps and bounds, the longest podcast we've ever done. In an attempt to move along and get the Rome story taken care of so we can move on and deal with other subjects, we have taken what probably should have been two or three separate normal hardcore history episodes and lengthened it out to one long piece. It's much more of an audio book now in tone and feel than one of our regular podcasts. We hope you will listen with that in mind. After doing this now for quite some time, I've gotten the hang of the pacing and the rhythm and the form that our normal, you know, somewhere around an hour and a half long episodes require. This was different. And it takes a whole different sort of mindset to record something that's five hours long and have the highs and lows and the drama and have the story all get covered and to intermix the interesting little points within a framework of a much longer time frame. We assume you will listen to this more like you would listen to an audiobook too, with stops and starts and pauses and, you know, getting back to it when you can. We hope it lives up to your standards, but really, this is in a category like nothing we've ever done before. We hope you enjoy it. It is the last in a multi-part series, as I said, in the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. It's Death Rose of the Republic, Part 6. December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. The events. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The figures... The drama. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I remember watching an interview with a psychiatrist once on television. And he was talking about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And he was talking about how there was always going to be a natural resistance on the part of the public to accepting the idea that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy, you know, alone by himself, the way the traditional narrative goes, because people couldn't accept the fact, they found it unsettling to think that a single non-entity could have such an effect on his times and could wreak havoc on subsequent human history. We are normally taught history, especially in the old days. It's better now. But we're normally taught history in a way that, that sort of excludes the average individual 
from having any impact on world events. As we said before, there used to be a great man theory of history where the kings and the emperors used to decide the way history went and it was their clashes that, you know, would send history off in new directions. But it was all above our head. And then that was followed by the trends and forces theory of history where large impersonal things like agricultural revolutions and technological change and social movements sort of limited the framework of options that we human beings had to impact affairs. One way or another, it was mostly out of our hands. But a Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone, as a loner, planning to change the world himself and then actually doing it, that's hard for us all to handle and certainly not the way history was ever taught. That's a nobody going rogue and changing the world. Now, if Oswald really did all those things, the way the narrative goes, he accomplished what he was trying to do. He wanted to change the world. It's interesting to look at human history, though, and see how single individuals outside, you know, the power elite can change the world like Oswald did without ever intending to do anything of the sort. Serendipitous little things. If you look at your own life, you can see how this plays out, too. How little things will all of a sudden change the direction of your life and, you know, the way it goes forever. And you never could have foreseen that that little event that did that would have been able to cause such great change in your life. Well, human history is simply the collective history of all of us. And it seems to take those same kinds of turns in places you never could have seen it coming. Case in point, what blew the top story off the proverbial front pages in Rome in 62 BCE. Now, of course, at this time, Rome almost certainly has no front pages, but the story that would have been big is the story that was big at the end of the year before. In 62 BCE, they are living with the fallout of the crushed Catiline conspiracy. Remember, that's a strange event that is hard to get your mind around, hard to figure out what really went on. But what you could say for sure is that in early 62 BCE, Catiline and his army are beaten, he's killed, it sort of ends this whole thing, whatever it was. And for the rest of 62 BCE, Rome's political life is involved in the blowback and the after effect and the fallout from that. There are hearings and trials and inquests and lots of fingers are being pointed and all sorts of things are happening because of the Catiline insurrection. And then an incident happens totally outside the political sphere that blows up in Rome's face. And I keep wishing I could be a fly on the wall when the decision was actually made that led to all of this story that I'm about to tell you now. The story involves a religious festival. It's called the uh, Rites of the Good Goddess. And it's a female only religious festival. And once a year, the prominent women get together and they include some vestal virgins to make it official. And they take over one of the uh, homes of one of the top public officials in the year 62 BCE. It was the home of the Pontificus Maximus, Rome's highest religious figure. And uh, the Pontificus Maximus's mother, a woman named Aurelia, will preside over the ceremonies. His wife will also be there and it will take place in his home. He won't be there because it's just for women. Now, the way the story goes is that Aurelia uncovers all the sacred religious instruments and sacraments and begins conducting the ceremony, as is normal, 
when an encounter happens somewhere else in the house between one of the maids or slaves from the household and a woman that she encounters in the halls. She questions the woman, and this story is told differently in several different sources. My favorite is the most common, and supposedly she questions this woman that she's run into in the halls that she can't figure out who it is, you know, as to why she's not in the other room at the ceremony. She entreats her to join her at the ceremony. Let's go back to the lit room, and she can't get an answer. Finally, after pressing her more and more, she says, what is it you're doing here? What do you want? And the other woman answers with one word, Pompeia. Now, that's the wife of the Pontificus Maximus. But none of that registers with the household maid. All she notices is that the word is uttered in an unquestionably masculine voice. That person dressed in women's clothing that she was talking to was a man. And she screams. And that's when all hell breaks loose. We're told that the mother of the Pontificus Maximus Aurelia acts with decisiveness. She instantly has all the religious implements covered up again lest they be contaminated by a man. She orders all the doors latched lest the intruder escape. And she organizes a room-by-room search with the other women by torchlight. Eventually, we're told, this man in women's clothing is found cowering in the dark corner of one of the rooms. He is unmasked and the women are told to take a good look at him. They no doubt know who he is. His name is Publius Claudius Pulcher, and they're told to go back and tell their husbands what he's done. By morning, it seems like everyone in Rome has heard the story. Now, part of the reason why everyone in Rome might have already known about this story is because this Publius Claudius Pulcher guy, known to history as Clodius, is one of the most gossip-worthy people in the whole story of the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. By gossip-worthy, I mean one of those individuals that just has a life where the rest of society can't help but talk about them. You think of the celebrities that make the tabloid front pages decade after decade that are so interesting to, you know, the general public that they're interesting even after they die. Elvis, Michael Jackson, Princess Diana, Madonna, whatever it is. Certain people just have it, whatever it is. And this Clodius guy was one of them. Part of it was his family. His name, Publius Claudius Pulcher, involves the word Claudius. He was a member of the Claudii family. The Claudii family are one of the great families of Rome, maybe the greatest family of Rome. They're a family that put a guy in Rome's top job, the consulship, in every generation going back to mystical times, hundreds and hundreds of years. They were one of Rome's most august families, and they knew it. They remind you of a Kennedy clan, and like the Kennedys, they had certain qualities that you associated with the family. There are things that you could read about some obscure Kennedy cousin doing, and then you might say, well... That's a Kennedy for you. The Claudii were known for their own brand of personal qualities. They were said to be arrogant and high-handed. They knew who they were, and they expected you to know it too. He was a womanizer. He was also the black sheep of this family, and he'd gotten into trouble from a very early age. The first we hear of him is when he is sent as a youth to be schooled in the Roman military tradition. 
was common when you sort of came of age to be hooked up with an older male officer in the Roman army and to go serve your time, get your seasoning. The great families in Rome had been doing this from time immemorial. And as a youth, Clodius is sent to fight in the wars against Mithridates in Asia Minor. And he's sent with his brother-in-law, his older brother-in-law, a man named Lucullus. Lucullus has been all around this story already, although we haven't introduced him. In this case, he gets to play the ignoble role of the guy who beats Mithridates almost to death and then gets the army taken away from him at the last minute, has it given to Pompey the Great, who gets to finish the job and take all the credit for it. Lucullus is left having only earned the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars and doesn't get any of the credit he feels he deserves. Now, the reason he doesn't get to finish the war against Mithridates is directly due to young Clodius. Here he gives his brother-in-law this chance to learn the ropes under his tutelage, and we're said that his brother-in-law doesn't feel like he's getting enough credit for being a member of the August Claudii, and he goes and tells the soldiers that um, Lucullus is a bad general. What's more, he basically says to them, you know, Rome's just going to keep fighting. Rome's going to keep taking over the world. After this war, there'll be another war. And what'll happen to you? You'll just get worn out. They'll just keep wearing you out. No one cares for you. It's all about the rich Roman elite. And there's wars after wars, and they'll never end. And the soldiers kind of look around. And this, by the way, is an army that had deserted another commander earlier. So they'd done that before. Clodius stirs them up, and they do it again. Lucullus has a mutiny on his hands, and he goes back to Rome fuming when Pompey takes over the army that Clodius stripped away from his own brother-in-law. How's that for gratitude? Lucullus comes back to Rome and publicly says the next thing that makes Clodius so gossip-worthy. He talks about Clodius's sisters publicly. Clodius's sisters are some of the most desirable women in Rome. They have reputations. Well, let's put it this way. They're part of what some historians call the new woman in Rome. This is a woman that does not follow the normal conventions of a Roman matron. These are, by the standards of their day, wild women. They are overt and forward and funny and creative and sexual. And we would think of them in some ways as being very modern. Add to that the fact that, of course, Clodius' sisters are just as noble of birth as he is. They're very attractive, we're told. There's several of them. And Lucullus, this general who returns from Asia Minor, is married to one of them. I always think of Angelina Jolie um, when I think of the sisters who are named Clodia, by the way. And Lucullus gets back to Rome talking about his brother-in-law, who's turned his army against him. And he says that while he was away, Clodius was sleeping with Lucullus's wife. Lucullus's wife is Clodius's sister. If Rome had had any tabloids and Clodius wasn't on the front page before then, he would be the next day. Incest in one of Rome's most august families, that's front page paparazzi news. So with that sort of a history behind him, you can kind of see why discovering who it was dressed up in drag at the rites of the good goddess might have elicited some shocked responses from the women there. Here he was, the bad boy of the Claudii family, caught red-handed in drag at the home of the Pontificus Maximus, 
And apparently it was assumed because he was there to see the religious leader's wife for a sexual liaison. Now, some of the ancient historians suggest it was to continue an ongoing affair with her. Others suggest it might have been to start one. But that was the general feeling at the time was that there was shenanigans going on and that in and of itself was scandalous. You have the wife of the highest religious figure hooking up behind his back during a religious ceremony with this guy who was known for sleeping with his sisters, turning his brother-in-law's army against him in Asia Minor and being from one of the you know, most august families in Rome. And oh, by the way, he was supposed to be very handsome, which was something his last name, Pulcher, is supposed to mean. That side of his family was known to be good-looking, and here he was apparently carrying on that tradition as well, in drag, in the home of the Pontificus Maximus. And, oh yeah, the Pontificus Maximus is Julius Caesar, himself perhaps one of Clodius's few rivals for gossip-worthy individuals in the Rome of this period, someone who's also known as an adulterer about town, and someone who was involved in a recent scandal to even get him the job of Pontificus Maximus at all. Clodius had almost certainly inadvertently involved himself in a scandal that pinged off of other scandals and turned into a perfect tabloid storm. The fallout would change history in a way that no one could have envisioned. The immediate fallout is that the story's all over Rome. We have letters, which is, it's one of the really cool things of the period. You have letters from famous people to other famous people saying, did you hear what that guy did? One of them is from Cicero. He writes a letter to his friend Atticus in Greece that says this, quote, I imagine you've heard that P. Clodius, the son of Appius, was caught dressed up as a woman in C. Caesar's house at the national sacrifice, and that he owed his escape alive to the hands of a servant girl. A spectacular scandal. I'm sure you will be deeply distressed. End quote. You can almost hear the relish come out in the words as Cicero is telling his friend in Greece the story, and yet it's a sign of the magnitude of the story that he assumes his friend in Greece has already heard it. It's such an unprecedented incident, Rome doesn't even know what they're supposed to do about it. Are they supposed to have a trial? Was a law broken? They don't know what to do, but there's a general feeling that something has to be done. Caesar's the first to act. He divorces his wife. Now, this may have been a wonderful opportunity to rid himself of a woman whose um, family's political background was becoming a problem for him. There's lots of speculation, but he didn't wait around. He lets her go, and the next we hear from Caesar, he's appearing as a witness, I guess you could say, on the stand at a trial. The trial is for Clodius. And here's how that comes down. The Roman Senate decides they have to act. They don't want to take responsibility for doing so, so they put the question to the people at the assembly. What should we do about this? Should we have a trial for Clodius? This becomes a very dicey situation that you can see the Senate's trying to handle with some sort of tact because Clodius, like Caesar, is a member of a couple of different important groups. The first group is one that's been around a long time. He's a populare guy. The people seem to look to Clodius as one of their leaders. And the last thing the Senate wants to do is to appear to be taking the good goddess scandal as an opportunity to get rid of a popularis leader. Clodius is also from a powerful family. 
He carries that same high-handed, bitter vindictiveness that makes him an enemy you don't want to have. Caesar always had a good eye for things like that, and now he's caught in a situation where he's sort of an adversary of this Clodius by no fault of his own. They also are both members of the cool crowd in Rome. Another element of the story that just looks like we're looking at sort of a distant mirror is you can actually see the appearance of a counterculture movement in this era in Rome. A cool, smart, hip, a little beatnik and bohemian counterculture movement. These are rare things to have come down to us from ancient history. And you don't know if they're rare because they didn't happen very much or because the sources just never provided the information. But what you seem to have going on in Rome is a generation gap between a crowd that we would recognize today as a beatnik, bohemian, artistic crowd that is opposed to the old-fashioned values of their elders, things we take for granted in the modern world. We always think that the next generation is going to come up having different music that their elders hate, doing different things that we can't stand, questioning our old values. That's just, you know, cyclical life in the modern world. That was not something you saw very much in the ancient world, certainly not with the sources that have come down to us. I had a conversation years ago with someone who talked about why you didn't see that very often in tribal societies. And that's because in tribal societies, carrying on the views of your elders often was a matter of survival. There was a reason there were things like taboos. The Apache Indians in the old days didn't eat fish. And historians have suggested that maybe the reason why is that once upon a time, the tribe did eat fish and a lot of people got sick and died. So they created a taboo that said, you know, no eating fish. You didn't often get young Apache leaders arising that said, to hell with you, old man, we're eating fish. That stuff didn't happen very often. You almost had to come to a time in history where you could have enough luxury and survival was not so precarious so that you had leisure time and money and generations who could grow up like this generation in Rome was growing up, very different than their elders. As we said in the last show, this is the last generation of the Roman Republic. And the upper classes of this generation have grown up rich. And they've grown up with the same old codes of conduct and standards of what duty and honor really means. But it's more lip service now than it was in the old days. Even their elders have slipped and are doing a lot of bad things behind the scenes. But they still maintain public faces where they're showing off the old honor. Hasn't come to the point where they flaunt it. But now there's a younger generation in Rome that does flaunt it. You can almost hear the words of the who's my generation where they say people try to put us down just because we get around the things they do look awful cold. I hope I die before I get old. That's a song that would have made sense to some of these Romans in this period. And it was a crowd that both Julius Caesar and Clodius belonged to. As a matter of fact, they were two of the ringleaders. In the last episode, we told you about how Caesar dressed differently than his peers, He wore a toga with fringe. He wore it loosely belted. He had all sorts of peculiar qualities that made him stand out. And a few years later, people who would have been, you know, his little brother's generation were imitating him. If you look at other counterculture movements, you can often see that the people who lead the way are a few years older than the rest of the crowd. In the late 1960s, for example, John Lennon, who was an icon of the 60s counterculture movement, about five, six years older than your average rank and file person. 
Caesar played that same role with the new cool party set in Rome. And this is a party set that modern historians notice and identify and consider a truism. It's not something that historians from earlier eras were able to really discern. You almost have to have a culture that understands the idea of hipness and coolness and beatniks and hippies to see that in an earlier generation. The German historian, for example, Theodore Mommsen, writing in the 1800s, he couldn't see this coolness. It took Will Durant in the 1940s. He's the earliest of the historians that I've seen recognize that something was going on from a bohemian beatnik side of things. And it's interesting because in the 1940s, when Durant wrote that, was the era that Somerset Maugham published his book, The Razor's Edge, which talked a lot about a bohemian beatnik period that happened after the First World War. So maybe this is a modern historian seeing something recognizable in Rome that a guy like Theodore Mommsen in Germany writing in the 1800s would have had nothing to compare to in the Germany of his time. A beatnik or bohemian-style movement that included the great artists and thinkers of their day. Here's what Durant writes, and he's writing about one of Rome's famous poets. Quote, Quintus, or Caius, Valerius Catullus, had come to Rome some five years before, from his native Verona, where his father was of sufficient standing to be frequent host to Caesar. Quintus himself must have had a substantial competence, for he owned villas near Tiber and on Lake Garda, and had an elegant house in Rome. He speaks of these properties as choked with mortgages, and repeatedly proclaims his poverty. But the picture we form of him from his poems is that of a polished man of the world, who did not bother to earn a living, but enjoyed himself unstintingly among the wilder set in the capital. The keenest wits, the cleverest young orators and politicians, belong to this circle. Marcus Celius, the impecunious aristocrat who was to become a communist, Licinius Calvus, brilliant in poetry and in law, and Helvius Cinna, a poet whom Antony's mob would mistake for one of Caesar's assassins and beat to death. These men oppose Caesar with every epigram at their disposal, unaware that their literary revolt reflected the revolution in which they lived. They were tired of old forms in literature and of the crudity and bombast of Nevius and Ennius. They wished to sing the sentiments of youth in new and lyric meters and with a refinement and delicacy of execution and known once in the Alexandria of Callimachus, but never yet seen in Rome. And they were resentful of old morals, of the mons maiorum perpetually preached upon them by their exhausted elders. They announced the sanctity of instinct, the innocence of desire, and the grandeur of dissipation. End quote. Folks, that's a full-fledged romantic movement breaking out. Like the 1920s bohemians, like the late 50s beatniks, like the late 60s hippies like the punks of the late 70s. And it's only with the more modern historians, probably due to the fact that they can recognize those kinds of cyclical occurrences in their own societies, that this part of Rome is revealed. Here's how author Anthony Everett describes this new up-and-coming generation of young Romans who grew up in an era where they not only had wealth, but conspicuous wealth was becoming less scandalous and looked down upon than it had in previous times. They're also the generation that grew up during the violence and insecurity and cynicism, no doubt, that was the result of the civil wars. This is a different generation of Romans, and amongst the elite was this cool set, as author Anthony Everett describes them, quote, 
These young men and women had plenty of money and were socially and sexually liberated. They turned their backs on the severe tradition of public duty, no longer defining themselves exclusively in terms of community, family, gens, patrician or noble status, and rebelling against authority. They lived for the moment. End quote. We're told that one of the popular pastimes was to get insensibly drunk at parties, co-ed parties, of course, and rip off all your clothes and dance wildly on tops of the tables. Now, considering the fact that dancing all by itself was something that was frowned upon by the old mores of Rome, you can see what a rebellious move something like that was. The older generation of Rome not only saw these people as turning their back on the old Roman values of shirking their duty, but they saw them as effeminate as well. You can read about the very things that they did to stand out from the squares around them. And the elder generation saw those moves as effeminate as the World War II generation would see the long hair and the clothing of the hippie generation, which was also labeled as being effeminate. Author Tom Holland writes, quote, The signs of effeminacy were also the signs of knowingness, of superiority, of savoir-faire. Fashion served the function it always had, of distinguishing those who followed it from the common herd. In a society as competitive as the Republic, this gave it an obvious and immediate appeal. Rome was filled with ambitious young men, all of them desperate for marks of public status. To be a member of the smart set was to sport precisely such marks. So it was that fashion victims would adopt secret signals, mysterious gestures such as the scratching of the head with a single finger. They grew goatees. Their tunics flowed to the ankles and wrists. Their togas had the texture and transparency of veils. And they wore them, in a much-repeated phrase, loosely belted. He continues, quote, this, of course, was precisely how Julius Caesar had dressed in the previous decade. It is a revealing correspondence. In the 60s, as in the 70s, Caesar continued to blaze a trail as the most fashionable man in Rome. He spent money as he wore his toga, with a nonchalant flamboyance. His most dandyish stunt was to commission a villa in the countryside, and then the moment it had been built, tear it down for not measuring up to his exacting standards. Extravagance such as this led many of his rivals to despise him. Yet Caesar was laying down stakes in a high-risk game. To be the darling of the smart set was no idle thing. End quote. Clodius was also one of the darlings of the smart set, and to have Caesar sitting on the stand as a witness against him must have been a difficult situation. Caesar, with typical brilliance, managed to get around the problem. Cicero would not be so lucky. We're told that on the day the vote happened to decide if there was even going to be a trial, all these young, cool people show up in the forum to support their guy Clodius. Historian Fergus Miller points out an interesting fact. Rome had no police force. So actual physical control of the forum when votes were happening could really be helpful. You could intimidate the voters. And the day of the vote to decide what they were going to do with Clodius, all the young toughs from the cool crowd show up to sort of take over the forum and push and shove and sort of intimidate the voters who are there to decide if they're going to vote for an inquest or trial of Clodius or not. Cicero writes about them coming down and taking over the forum. 
quote. When the day came for the bill to be put to the assembly under the terms of the senatorial decree, there was a flocking together of our goateed young bloods, the whole Catalinarian gang, with little Miss Curio at their head, to plead for its rejection. Clodius's roughs had taken possession of the gangways. End quote. There are so many wonderfully insightful things in that little paragraph. First of all, Clodius's tufts taking possession of the gangways means just what Fergus Miller says it does. They're there intimidating the voters to get their way. Cicero calls them the goateed young bloods. Having the goatee was part of what made this cool crowd seem effeminate, and so he's sneering at them. He calls them the whole Catalinarian gang. Remember, Catiline's insurrection had just been crushed. Catiline was another member of the cool set, and the cool set wasn't just cool. They were, in modern terms, liberal. These were populares. It was cool to be a populare. One of the theories about how Publius Claudius Pulcher got his name Clodius is that he just adopted the accent that the urban crowd at the street level used. And the way they talked, Claudius came out like Clodius. His sister did the same thing, maybe before he did. Acting cool and street and urban was cool at this time in Rome. Ring any bells? That kind of looks like looking back into a distant mirror, doesn't it? Finally, Cicero calls Curio, who happens to be a man, Little Miss Curio, another slur at the effeminacy that the older crowd in Rome always associated with these beatniks of antiquity. So many of these goateed youngbloods had shown up in the forum, it seems like there was no chance to take a vote. One way or another, the Senate manages to get a trial going. And at the trial, Julius Caesar's put on what we would call today the stand. He's in this position. And remember, he's walking this tightrope, doesn't want to upset Clodius, doesn't want to upset the cool crowd. But he is both a victim here. It was his wife, after all, that Clodius was sneaking in to see. He's also the head of the religion. He's also a cuckold. It's embarrassing. It's also kind of like karmic justice. Here's the great adulterer himself, the victim in a very public way of adultery as well. And he gets up on the stand and he's asked, you know, what he knows about this whole thing. Now, a guy like Lucullus, who was angry at Clodius and had already said publicly that um, Clodius was sleeping with his wife, would have taken this as an opportunity to publicly embarrass Clodius. And this would be a very embarrassing affair for Clodius anyway, because the whole incest with his sisters would be brought up again at this inquest or trial or whatever it was. Caesar, on the other hand, says he doesn't know anything. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I don't know what happened. The Inquisitor comes back with a great line. He says, if you don't know what happened and you don't suspect your wife, why'd you divorce her? And Caesar comes back with one of the great lines of all time, one you will still hear today in regards to similar kinds of issues. He says, because the wife of Caesar must be above suspicion. That was a great line. Got him out of a lot of trouble. He got off the stand. He'd gotten rid of that wife. Hadn't made an enemy of Clodius. Hadn't looked bad to the cool crowd. And yet the evidence against Clodius was overwhelming. It looked like there was no way he wasn't going to be convicted of something. The nail in the coffin was going to be Cicero's testimony. This is where Cicero makes one of the great mistakes of his life. And I can't figure out why he did it, but it's also part of the gossipy story. You see, Cicero was last year's consul. 
He didn't need to be involved in this affair at all. Clodius was almost certainly going to be convicted without him saying anything. But Cicero's wife didn't like Clodius's Angelina Jolie sleep-around sisters. In fact, she thought one of them had her eyes on her husband, Cicero. So she told him to go in there and blow up his alibi. Clodius's alibi was that it couldn't have been him dressed up as a woman at the right of the good goddess. He wasn't even in Rome when it happened. He was out of the city. Cicero, however, had encountered him in the city that very day. And he went up on the stand and testified to that fact. Now, maybe Cicero figured Clodius was going to be exiled, so no reason to fear that guy who had this reputation for high-handedness, arrogance, bitterness, and, you know, almost homicidal anger, maybe. But that's not how it turned out. Just before the vote is taken, the jury asks for protection. Now, that's a logical thing to ask for because you still have all those goateed young tough guys out there just waiting to pay back some jurors who convict their man. So they ask for this protection so it looks like, well, he's going to be guilty and then the jurors will need the protection. Instead, they vote to acquit. Some of the ancient historians say that they just wrote their verdict on the tablet in such illegible writing that nobody could even figure out what they said. But one way or another, the majority voted to acquit Clodius. When the acquittal happens, one of the famous august people at the inquest, a guy named Catalyst, turned to the jurors and say, Why did you ask for a guard? Were you afraid of having your bribe stolen from you? Cicero wrote his friend Atticus explaining what he thinks had happened. Quote, Inside of a couple of days, with a single slave, an ex-gladiator at that, for go-between, Crassus settled the whole business called them to his house, made promises, backed bills, or paid cash down. On top of that, it's really too shocking, some jurors actually received a bonus in the form of assignations with certain ladies or introductions to youths of noble families. Yet even so, with the optimates making themselves very scarce, 25 jurors have the courage to take the risk, no small one, preferring to sacrifice their lives rather than the whole community." As for the other 31, they were more worried about their empty purses than their empty reputations. End quote. So Clodius gets acquitted. Caesar gets out of it with minimal amounts of trouble. And Cicero makes a deadly, deadly enemy. The celebrity scandal of the good goddess in 62 BCE will have huge ramifications, especially for Cicero. After the legal proceedings around the Clodius affair wrap up, Caesar tries to leave Rome. Now, you can see a lot of reasons why he might have wanted to go. After all, the gossiping probably hadn't died down all that much. Not just that, Caesar owed a lot of people a lot of money. And he got himself a job as praetor in Spain, in the Roman provinces there. And whenever you got a job like that, you got an army. And when you had a province and an army you stood to make a lot of money. All the Romans who had those things working for them made a ton of money, with the exception of Cato, who would do it and be so scrupulously honest, in typical Cato fashion, that he wouldn't make much at all, and Cicero, who would be more honest than almost anyone else and claim that he only came away making like a million dollars. So Caesar's eager to get out and start recouping some money so that he can pay back his creditors, but before he leaves, his creditors get their hands on him. 
and they're not going to let him leave for his gig in 61 BCE until he gives them at least some money to keep them happy. He gets that money from the place that most influential Romans who need money get it. There are no banks in this era of Rome, so in this sophisticated ancient society, certain people played that role instead. Caesar went to the bank of Crassus, the great rich money lender whom everyone in Rome owed for favors because he helped them all out, helped Caesar out with about 840 talents, which is an amazing sum of money, but which was only a security deposit on the full amount. Caesar, by the way, had accrued these expenses the way that most Romans in his position had, by buying the equivalent of campaign ads in ancient Rome. The equivalent of campaign ads in ancient Rome were to get these positions where it was your job, for example, to throw on games, and you would put on magnificent gladiatorial combats, and you would have banquets for the people, and lavish religious ceremonies all out of your own pocket instead of the state paying for it. It was like an advertisement for yourself. Caesar had gone so overboard in that regard that the Senate had actually stood in and put a cap on the amount of gladiators that could be involved in a gladiatorial combat because Caesar was employing so many of them, it was actually a potential danger to the state to have that many armed gladiators at the same time. The ancient historian Appian says, quote, The debts he had incurred by his ambition far exceeded his assets. This was when he was alleged to have said that he needed 25 million sesters just to owe nothing, end quote. That's how lavish Caesar was with his spending. That's why 840 talents from Crassus was a mere security deposit on what he owed. It may not have been Caesar's first time going to Crassus. In any case, he, like many, many other influential Romans, owed Crassus a favor. But at least it got him to Spain with his army. Now, as Caesar's leaving the scene, one of the few people that will ever compete for his greatness is coming back, Pompey the Great. Pompey, of course, had left Rome previously to fight pirates. He found that being a glad-handing politician in Rome was nowhere near as fun as being an adventurer out doing things, managed to get himself that job to eliminate the pirates in the Mediterranean, was granted extraordinary and extrajudicial legal power to do so, and left. While he was gone, he not only destroyed the pirate threat, conquered Mithridates for the last time, went in and took a bunch of other kingdoms, besieged and took Jerusalem, took Syria, and just in general, almost seemingly without even trying or authority, conquered, you know, much of the eastern Mediterranean world. What's more, he set it up administratively so well it's been declared genius by many subsequent historians. And when the Senate finds out Pompey's on his way back, they panic. Because right now, if anyone could be the dictator of Rome, it would be Pompey. And everyone had, you know, memories of not that long ago when the man that Pompey was a mere protege to, Sulla, had done exactly that. To a lot of suspicious and wary senators, it looked like Pompey had finally gone and gotten all he needed to come and march on Rome, including a deadly veteran army. Instead, Pompey lands in Italy and promptly disbands the army. This move shows really the truth behind Pompey, that he didn't want to be the dictator in sole charge of things. He just wanted to be the most admired and august citizen in the Republic. And you would think the Republic would be thankful, because with Pompey's landing in Italy comes 
all the money he's bringing for Rome. Pompey's conquested a bunch of things. The first thing is you cannot minimize what he did with the pirate threat. The reason there was a pirate threat was Rome's fault to begin with. Rome kicked the hell out of all the maritime powers in the Mediterranean. Those powers had previously used their own fleets to keep the pirate threat from becoming a problem. Rome, you know, destroyed those naval powers and then essentially never stepped in to do the job they'd been doing. The pirate threat then went out of control. This was destroying trade in the Mediterranean, and the Mediterranean was the principal trade route in, you know, that part of the world. Untold amounts of money were being lost. The pirates were capturing people hand over fist and ransoming them and turning them into slaves, and it was a terrible threat. And no one could even figure out how to begin dealing with the problem. Pompey solved the problem. It was an amazing feat. Then he finished the war against Mithridates, the one that Lucullus had pretty much finished. But it was Pompey who was there when Mithridates died. He was the one who wrapped it up, and then he went and conquered a bunch of other places. Came back wearing Alexander the Great's cloak that he got from Mithridates' trophy room. And brought so much money to the treasury that he instantly eliminated the fiscal crisis Rome had been dealing with for more than a decade. I can't think of any parallel. It would be as though we sent a spaceship to another planet and they conquered the planet and they brought that planet's natural resources all back to us and all of our money problems and fiscal problems and economic problems were solved, you know, for as long as you could imagine. And it wasn't just the cash that he brought with him, a lot of which he kept himself, making himself the richest man in Rome with Crassus. But it was the fact that he had essentially taken a Mediterranean that had been shut down as the main trade route in the world and reopened it. All of a sudden, Rome's problems with the granary supply and the trade imbalance. I mean, it was just it was an incredible change in Rome's fiscal fortunes and the fiscal fortunes of the entire Mediterranean overnight. The Senate may have been afraid that they were looking at a potential second dictator, but they had to admit that he deserved a triumph for his achievements. Now, Roman triumphs are fascinating cultural affairs. Pompey's was the biggest Rome had ever seen to that point. And it's wonderful to see how thoroughly modern these things appear to be. What they are is a parade, a parade where a Roman general gets to act like a god and with his army show off all the stuff that he wants to show off. Pompey had so much stuff, he couldn't show it all in these parades, even though he took two days to parade. What's more, you would throw banquets and festivals and at the expense of the general, and it would be a cause for celebration as well as an amazing PR festival celebrating the general. Pompey's triumph was so grand that the descriptions still resound today. Historian Will Durant breaks down Pompey's achievements for Rome since he left to deal with the pirates. Quote, Pompey had just returned from the east after a succession of military and diplomatic achievements. By clearing the Sea of Pirates, he'd restored security to Mediterranean trade and prosperity to the cities it served. He had pleased the capitalists of Rome by conquering Bithynia, Pontus, and Syria. He had deposed and set up kings and had lent them money from his spoils at lush rates of interest. He'd accepted a huge bribe from the king of Egypt to come and quell a revolt there and then had refrained from carrying out the compact on the ground 
found that it was illegal. He had pacified Palestine and made it a client state of Rome. He had founded 39 cities and had established law, order, and peace. All in all, he'd behaved with judgment, statesmanship, and profit. Now he had brought back to Rome such wealth in taxes and tribute, goods captured and slaves ransomed or sold, that he was able to contribute 200 million sesters to the treasury. Add $350 million to its annual revenues, distribute $384 million among his soldiers, and yet keep enough for himself to rival Crassus as one of the two richest men in Rome. End quote. What Durant neglects to mention there was that Pompey also did something very interesting. He turned a lot of these kings and foreign leaders into his own personal clients. And we've talked about how Rome had a client relationship situation that was common where in an almost mafia godfather way, these rich Romans would help out their less wealthy, less august clients, and then the clients would be expected to pay them back someday. Pompey was making clients out of kings. This ipso facto made the king's subjects clients of Pompey. When Pompey got back to Rome, he had maybe millions of foreign clients who owed him allegiance. And the area that owed allegiance to Pompey was incredibly wealthy, as the many things on display at his triumph made clear. As historian Adrian Goldsworthy writes, quote, Like any Roman aristocrat, Pompey took care to quantify his success, and the processions included placards declaring that he had killed, captured, or defeated 12,183,000 people, taken or sunk 846 warships, and accepted the surrender of 1,538 towns or fortified places. Each kingdom, people, or place he had overcome was listed in turn on the great floats carrying the spoils he'd taken from them. Then there were the paintings showing famous episodes from the wars. Other signs, in the uh, triumphal parade he's talking about, told of how every soldier in the army had been given 1,500 denarii, equivalent to more than 10 years' pay, and proclaimed that the vast sum of 20,000 talents of gold and silver had been added to the state treasury. Pompey boasted that as a result of his efforts, the annual revenue of the Republic had been more than doubled, from 50 million to 135 million denarii. At the end of the procession, he writes, was an enormous float presented as a trophy of victory over the known world. People were saying that Pompey had triumphed over all three continents, Africa as part of his first triumph, Europe and specifically Spain in his second, and now Asia in his third. Ahead of Pompey walked over 300 senior hostages, including kings, queens, princesses, chieftains, and generals, all wearing their national costume. The general himself rode in a chariot decorated with gemstones and wore a cloak captured from Mithridates, which he claimed had once been owned and worn by Alexander the Great. Appian, writing over a century and a half later, thought this unlikely, but Pompey reveled in the parallels often drawn between himself and the greatest conqueror in history. End quote. Historian Mary Beard puts the amount of money that Pompey brought back into perspective. She said it was considerably more than the annual tax revenue of the whole Roman world at the time, or, as she says, to put it another way, enough money to keep two million people alive for a year. At the back of the parade, in his gem-encrusted chariot, face painted red to represent the god Jupiter, 
is Pompey. And at his side, in the traditional position in these triumphs, is a slave whose job it is to continually whisper in his ear, remember that you are mortal. Because in the position Pompey was in at this time, that might be an easy fact to slip your mind. Any delusions of divinity that Pompey may have been harboring after his triumph were quickly dashed against the rocks of traditional Roman political rivalries. Must have reminded Pompey very quickly about why he'd left Rome in the first place to do all these great deeds in the East. He couldn't deal with the day-to-day glad-handing life of a politician in Rome. Now he was back in Rome, and he was running right into the politics, and it seems to have almost caught him by surprise. Pompey never struck me as a devious political mind. He always seemed to be much more straightforward, almost a little naive, really. He's one of the hardest characters in the story for me to deal with complexity-wise because he's a combination of things that you would not expect to see. Um, He has a puppy dog need for adoration, for example. He also, as I said, seems a little bit naive, and it's hard to reconcile his accomplishments with somebody who fits that description. For example, he comes back to the Senate, asks for a few things, and is shocked when he doesn't get them. The first thing is a standard thing. It's become the common, you know, agreement between Romans and their armies in this whole period. He comes to the Senate and asks for a land grant for his victorious soldiers. That's what legionaries often fight for in the, you know, era we're talking about here. The legionaries almost have a private deal with a particular general, and the deal is we will fight for you, and those of us who make it through your wars alive and are successful will then be given a plot of land each. Think about it as an ancient legionaries version of an old age pension or a military disability deal. It's almost a formality at this point. Pompey goes to the Senate, says, my soldiers have done these great things. The least we can do is grant them this land. And he doesn't get it. What's more, he asks for a simple favor. He's got a friend of his who's campaigning for a position in Rome, and Pompey wants to go around town and use his popularity to boost his friend's chances, you know, with the voters. Would you just delay the election, you know, a little bit till I can get there? No. The last thing was a little larger. He asked for, you know, all of the things that he had done in the East to be rubber-stamped. And it's hard to quantify what Pompey did in the East. He basically set up new governments. He put kings on thrones, deposed other monarchs, changed the boundaries of countries, created whole trade systems. You know, there was a whole society in the Roman East at this point running on a template that Pompey designed but wasn't officially approved by anyone. There must have been a lot of people on pins and needles in the East who had a vested interest in, you know, whatever this new reality was that had cropped up since Pompey changed things hoping that the Senate would say it was okay. The Senate didn't say it was okay. Pompey seemed shocked. Cicero writes a letter to a friend, and how he would have known this is anyone's guess, but he claims that Pompey could be seen sitting in a room holding on to his purple toga that he wore in the triumph and just sort of staring at it blankly for long periods of time. That would seem to imply, wouldn't it, that he's just stunned by how quickly his fortunes have gone from 
you know, remember that you are mortal to someone who can't help but realize every day that he's human. Now, the thing to understand about all this is that Pompey's reverses make a lot more sense to you if you're not as naive as Pompey seemed to be. He didn't understand why he wasn't getting gratitude from the Senate. He was a strange character in terms of motivation. You know, he had all the money in the world at this point. He didn't need money. He could have marched on Rome and made himself the second dictator when he got back from the east, but instead he disbands the legions and comes in with just a few friends to the adulation of Rome. This guy's motivation in life seems to be, you know, adoration. He's a praise junkie. And he wants it from everyone. He wants the lower classes to admire and love him. He wants the business classes to. Most of all, he wants the Senate to. After all, they're the most respectable, largest people in Rome. And if you have their respect, well, if you're Pompey, what more would you want? He was in a catch-22, though, in terms of how to get it from the Senate. The only thing he seems to be able to do to get their approval is to go out and do bigger and greater things and then come back and essentially say, how about that? Wasn't that great? Are you happy with me now? Not seeming to realize that the greater he became, the more he cut into the ambitious hopes of these individual senators. They resented his success. They were jealous. Not just that. As a body, the senators were afraid. The greater he became, the more he became the number one threat of someone who might overturn the government and once again, just like in Sulla's day, shunt the Senate off to the side. Pompey couldn't seem to win. And now he realized that somehow he'd lost the Senate. He was looking for allies, someone he could side with that would help bring back some of this luster that seemed to be in danger of getting tarnished. He turned to Rome's most incorruptible man, Cato. Now, Cato had played a very interesting role in the story that just happened. Cato had opposed Pompey left and right in all these things, getting the troops, you know, land grants, rubber stamping the stuff in the east. Cato had been one of the leaders in sort of getting those things shot down. Pompey seems to have thought if he could just get Cato on his side, the big obstacle to him getting what he wants would be removed because he has no chance with the other obstacle. There's another obstacle that's in his way, but it's the anti-Pompey. It's the super rich guy, Crassus, the guy who's been vying with Pompey every step of the way. A personal enemy to Pompey, really. There's an old line that when someone would say, Pompey the Great is coming, Crassus would say, really, how big is he? I mean, there was just no respect there. And Crassus was paying bribes to all sorts of people. He'd underwritten the campaigns and the loans of a ton of these senators who were now voting no for Pompey. He was trying to cut Pompey down to size a little bit, too, and leave a bitter aftertaste in everyone's mouth about that wonderful victory in the East. As a matter of fact, Crassus was almost using Lucullus, the commander that had had his troops mutiny and that Pompey took over from. He was almost using Lucullus as a sort of a hand puppet, as a surrogate. Lucullus was out there every day, bankrolled by Crassus, saying what a fraud Pompey was. And how that army that Pompey was victorious over had been reduced to almost nothing by Lucullus's efforts. And so there was a political effort to undercut Pompey's political achievements in the East, and he just seemed stunned. He turns to Cato, tries to ally himself with the old constitutionalist, because after all, Cato's reputation is such that you would just glow in the reflected light if you could get his stamp of approval. 
So he asks for Cato's niece's hand in marriage, figuring he's going to cement the relationship that way. There's a lot of that in Rome at this time. And there's a great line from Plutarch who records, or says he does, what Cato's answer is to Pompey's messenger who brings the deal to him. Essentially, he says, you're not going to outflank me in the bedroom chamber. Here's what he says. The, um, the go-between for Pompey's name is uh, Munadius. Quote, Go, Munadius, go and tell Pompey that Cato is not assailable on the side of a woman's chamber. I'm grateful indeed for the intended kindness, and so long as his actions are upright, I promise him a friendship more sure than any marriage alliance. But I will not give hostages to Pompey's glory against my country's safety. End quote. That's a typical Cato line. In this case, though, it's a little less high-minded than that. Cato's sister, Servilia, who's having an affair with Caesar is married to Lucullus. That makes two unfaithful women now in a row for poor Lucullus. He'll have to content himself with his many bazillions of dollars and, um, you know, bad luck with armies and marriage. So now the great Cato rebuffs Pompey too. What is Pompey to do? He seems to be in a bind now. He needs these things done. The Senate seems to oppose him. Cato opposes him. He and Cicero are not on good terms right now. He needs help. Help is on the way, whether he knows it or not, from Spain. And it's coming at an unusually quick pace. It's Julius Caesar. And in 60 BCE, he is rushing back to Rome with the same sort of decisive speed that he left it the year before. He left Rome before his command had officially started. He left Spain to go back home before his command had officially ended. He seems a man always in a hurry. And there's an incident that's supposed to have happened to him while he was in Spain that historians have psychoanalyzed for millennia to try to determine how much this played a role in the way Caesar was, you know, constructed as a human being. But supposedly, while he was in Spain, either at the foot of a statue of Alexander the Great or while reading about Alexander the Great, he's supposed to have stared off into space for a moment and then burst into tears. And when asked why he was weeping, he's supposed to have said something to the effect of, you know, by his 32nd year, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. What have I done that's worth remembering? At this time, Caesar's about 40. So maybe he feels, you know, the ambition version of a biological clock ticking within him. And he hurries back to Rome so that he can get in under the wire and stand for the consulship, the top job in Rome, one that Caesar's never held. After all this stuff that he just did in Spain, kind of fleshes out his resume perfectly so he can take that job. And he doesn't want to wait another year, but it's going to be a quick race to see if he can get back before the date when you have to declare, you know, that you're running. And we're told that he gets there with one day to spare. Now, there's a little complication for Caesar. But it's a good problem to have in theory. He's done so well in Spain and he's brought back so much money for the Roman treasury that he's been given a triumph by the Roman Senate. Now, it is hard to explain how amazing an honor a triumph was and how few people actually got it. You know, you're used to reading history where you're reading about these superhuman figures and they'll get a triumph here and there. And it seems common, but it was anything but. Most great Roman figures never sniffed near one. Pompey, the greatest man of his age in 
that respect, had celebrated three, and that was considered unbelievable. So for Caesar to have been granted one at the age of 40 helps make up a little bit for the fact he's so far behind a guy like Alexander the Great, who, of course, let it be remembered, and this is what I would have said to Caesar you know, to console him had I been there, Alexander the Great was born to the throne. A guy like Julius Caesar has to make up all that ground himself before he can even start to build on top of that legacy. It helps a lot when you get to be a king from birth. Caesar's efforts in Rome in the 60 BCE era were an attempt to reach that top job so he could begin to do great things. Having a triumph was going to make it that much easier. What a PR bonanza that's going to be for a guy who wants to come back and advertise that he's back, he's tan, he's rested, he's ready, and he's ready to run for consul. There's a problem, of course, a hitch. Wouldn't you know it? Caesar is not allowed to go into the city as a general under arms. It's that old little bugaboo of a rule that you're not allowed to, you know, cross that sacred stream in Rome under arms. And as a general waiting to celebrate a triumph, that's exactly what you are. He's a general under arms. He can't go into the city. So he sends an emissary or an agent or a letter and asks the Senate for a favor very similar to what Pompey had recently done when he wanted to help a friend of his get the top job and the Senate said no. Caesar says, can I have a proxy stand in for me? Not a big favor, not a huge request, but that would allow him to both run for office and uh, have his triumph too. He wouldn't have to come into the city. Now, our sources begin to get a little mixed here in terms of what you hear. Some say that the Senate was against this idea right from the beginning. Some say that the Senate was okay with this idea, just like some had said that they were okay with the idea of granting Pompey the favor. Other sources say that the Senate was against it from the beginning, but if they weren't against it from the beginning, once again, it was Cato who would rally them to being against it, you know, after he'd explained his reasoning. And the reasoning is interesting. I've got works here from the ancient period that try to explain why Cato denied Pompey his favors. It's the same reason he was going to deny Caesar his. The way Plutarch explains it is just like this, using the John Dryden translation, for those of you who care about those kind of things. Plutarch writes about why Cato thwarted Pompey. He says, quote, Cato, only not so much thinking that this delay would be of great importance, but desiring to cut down at once Pompey's high expectations and designs, end quote. He rallied the Senate to say no to Pompey's promises to cut him down to size. The last thing they needed is a more august, more popular, more powerful Pompey, right? Cato felt the same way about Caesar. And for the same reasons, when the Senate held a vote that day, remembering you have like 12 hours to go before you have the deadline when you have to declare your candidacy by, and the Senate meets to have this vote on whether or not they're going to grant Caesar this favor, and Cato goes up to speak, obviously in opposition of it, and he starts speaking, and he keeps speaking, and he speaks more, and he just keeps going. And at a certain point, Caesar realizes that he's not going to stop, that he's going to continue to talk past the deadline when Caesar has to declare for office. In other words, he's not going to be given a definitive answer one way or the other, whether or not he can have his triumph and run for the consulship as well. Now, at some point, historian Adrian Goldsworthy says, Caesar realized what Cato was up to and in typical decisive Caesarian fashion makes a decision. 
and he sends his people outside the city. He cancels his triumph. He brings his people back in, and he announces he's declared for the consulship. Now think of what this man has given up. A triumph is the greatest thing most of these ambitious Roman figures desire. It's going to be remembered with trophies in your house, you know, for generations. Time immemorial. These are huge things. Caesar may never sniff another triumph again. And in a moment, he makes the decision to sacrifice that and go for the power instead. It's pretty easy to convince yourself that a guy like Pompey, a praise junkie like that, would have made the exact opposite choice. Caesar comes into the city, announces that he's going to run for consul, and now something starts to manifest, I guess you could say, that it's very hard for us now to realize what was happening. You see, there's a real old-fashioned conspiracy going on in Rome right now, and because it was secret, like conspiracies tend to be, no one is really in on the details of when it started and who was brought in when. I mean, historians don't even know if this conspiracy started when Caesar was in Spain or when Caesar got back to Rome before the election or when Caesar had been elected. Sources differ. But here's the gist of the story. While Caesar was in Spain, he's sending letters all the time back to Rome. He's also sending agents. One of these agents is a uh, millionaire that he met in Spain, and he's sending this guy back to Rome, and, and that guy's talking to many of the powerful people and sort of keeping Caesar on the front burner while he's away doing this job in Spain. This is the guy who becomes the go-between for this conspiracy. It becomes apparent that several of the most powerful people in Rome want stuff that they can't get. And it's weird because most of these people can get whatever they want. But there's a few things that the Senate is denying them. Caesar starts working these people. The main guy is Pompey. When Pompey is rebuffed in all these things that he needs, a guy like Caesar sees that as an opportunity. The most powerful man in Rome, probably Pompey, is frustrated and without allies. And it seems that at some point Caesar reached out to him. Now, you also have the other most powerful man in Rome, the guy who hates Pompey and is working against him, you know, hand over foot. As a matter of fact, kind of seen as an ally to the Senate in their efforts to keep Pompey at bay. It's Crassus, the money lender, the richest man in Rome. Caesar has a long-running relationship with Crassus. Heck, the two of them, there were allegations that they were both involved in the Catiline conspiracy together, and Crassus, among thousands of other noblemen, is loaning money to Caesar, right? Caesar goes to Crassus, too, because Crassus wants stuff. Pompey wants the land deal for his veterans, and he wants the rubber stamping of all his decisions in the East. Crassus has problems in the East, too. Or not problems so much as favors he needs to grant. A lot of the people who, you know, he requires to have the good graces of are tax farmers in the East. And the tax farmers screwed up big time um, in a situation that reminds one of the banking crisis we had not that long ago in our modern world. In fact, there was even talk about what you might call a bailout where Crassus and these tax farmers in the East wanted the Senate to bail them out. And Cato said something to the effect of, we're not going to bail out a bunch of greedy businessmen who made a mistake. Crassus was working to get around that, and he was running into the same opposition from this Cato guy that Pompey was running into and Caesar was running into, and in some ways even Cicero was running into. And what's amazing about Cato is you have to understand, this august figure who's about 35 years old has never been consul. He's, 
He doesn't have the resume to justify this amount of respect, except he has this reputation, this uncorruptible throwback to old Roman values that no one else practices anymore, but they're still in love with. And they, they, they love Cato. They admire Cato. And yet they hate him. He's not a likable guy. But people still revere these Roman myths about Romans. And Cato is the living embodiment of that. That's where his credibility comes from. That's why Pompey wanted to sidle up to him when things didn't look like he was looking too good because, you know, put your arm around Cato and you instantly have associated yourself with the very best things from the Roman past. At some point, Caesar contacts Pompey. He contacts Crassus. He contacts Cicero. And he tries to work out a deal. Now, depending on which historian you read, the deal can be portrayed as nefarious or it can be portrayed as a simple agreement, but it was a simple agreement that was not made known amongst the most powerful people in Rome. And Caesar was easily the least powerful of the group. This is one of the coups that Caesar really was able to pull off. He was able to patch up things amongst a bunch of powerful people, being really a tool for these people, And by using them that way, made himself the master of all of them. The ancient historians do a good job of explaining the ramifications of this triumvirate, as it's come to be known, the first triumvirate. And it doesn't include Cicero. At the last minute, Cicero backs out, thinking that, you know, surely the Senate and all that's still going to prevail, and I'm going to side with them. It's my natural proclivity anyway. And he backs out of any deal, leaving Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar. And here's what Plutarch has to say about the whole thing, picking up the story when Caesar gets back from his command in Spain. Quote, Caesar now returned from his command and designing to get the consulship and seeing that Crassus and Pompey were again at variance, was unwilling to disoblige one by making application to the other and despaired of success without the help of one of them. He therefore made it his business to reconcile them, making it appear that by weakening each other's influence, they were promoting the interest of the Ciceros and the Catali and the Catos, who would really be of no account if they would join their interest and their factions and act together in public with one policy and one united power. And so reconciling them by his persuasions, out of the three parties, he set up one irresistible power, which utterly subverted the government both of Senate and people. Not that he made either Pompey or Crassus greater than they were before, but by their means made himself greatest of all. For by the help of the adherents of both, he was at once gloriously declared consul. End quote. Writer Anthony Everett explains, you know, what this means. Quote, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus went ahead without Cicero and sealed their secret agreement. With their money, their influence, their access to military force, and their ruthlessness, they were in a position to act more or less as they wished. They could control the results of elections and arrange special commands or postings almost at will. A cabal was now in command of affairs, which was willing and able to bypass the Senate. When a later contemporary, Caius Asinius Polio, wrote one of his first histories of the period, it was no accident that he opened his narrative with this alliance, which signaled the bankruptcy of the old order. End quote. This is the event that becomes the first viable place you can say the Roman Republic ended. Most historians don't. Most go farther. Some go extremely far. They'll go into the, you know, a couple emperors into the imperial period before they say it's, you know, really dead and buried. But this is the first time, the first triumvirate, as it's called, that you see some historians say 
you know, the Republic ended then when you had this cabal of powerful people who could run roughshod over the Senate. And it's interesting to think why this is kind of possible. There's all sorts of interesting theories. But some historians have have pointed out that the Senate is a shadow of its former self quality-wise. And the reasons are interesting. There's been an almost anti-Darwinian process going on now for a generation or so in the Roman Senate, really since we started the story, 133 BCE. Because normally these senators are the most august, most brave, most, you know, I mean, throw in all the adjectives you want. Those are the greatest men in Rome, right? Except that you've had civil war. You've had different factions take over Rome and execute the most scary people on the other side of the political fence to them. In other words, the most august people, the bravest, the most dangerous, the most willing to resist the other side are the ones that get their head lopped off when, you know, the Marians and the Populare folks take over the city or when the sullen conservatives retake over the city. So who are you left with? You're left with the families and the senators who were not big enough fish or not brave enough or not seen as a problem by the opposition. You're left with the meekest and the mildest and the least gifted. What's more, whenever the Senate was depopulated by these civil wars, eventually they would be repopulated. And they were always repopulated by someone with a vested interest in making sure they were repopulated with a bunch of sheep. When Sulla added hundreds of new people to the Roman Senate, he basically picked people he could rely on. He picked a few from the other side, but by and large, you weren't getting a bunch of lions. You were getting a bunch of lambs. And comparing it to the Roman Senate during the Punic Wars, and it's easy to see it's a much less formidable opponent to a triumvirate of Rome's, you know, top three powerful people. That's what it is. It's like a, you know, battle royal. Rome's top three most powerful individuals against the Senate, you know, and who they have. And Cicero's caught in this weird place because he's not feeling like he wants to be a total opposition leader. He doesn't want to fight with Pompey, loves Pompey, doesn't want to fight with Crassus, even though they hate each other. Um, He was hoping to kind of turn Caesar. He said he wanted to make Caesar better earlier on. He could see all of his qualities, thought he was way too associated with the lascivious, cool crowd and the popularities, thought he could turn him into a respectable quality leader. This is not where Cicero wanted to be. Remember, he almost joined the triumvirate. Now he was forced to be on the side opposing it. Cato had no such split allegiances. He was the sworn enemy of the triumvirate, and it was he who would take the lead in marshalling the Senate's opposition to it. And the Senate's opposition to it starts right with the consulship. Caesar's run for office. The main reason this three-headed monster, as the Roman historian Vero would call the triumvirate, was formed at least from Caesar's viewpoint. And Caesar's taking no chances. Remember, this is the guy who participated in one of the most bribery-fueled elections in Rome's history when he won the Pontificus Maximus job. He's a guy who knew how to use money. He was hooked up with other people who knew how to use it. And the elections of 60 are one of the most corrupt in Rome's history. It might have seemed an improvement, though, because the elections the year before may have been the most corrupt in Roman history. And it's great to look at Roman corruption because there's no bones made about it. Here's what historian Will Durant says about it. Quote, 
The collegia that had once been mutual benefit societies became agencies for the sale of great blocks of plebeian votes. The business of vote buying reached a scale where it required a high specialization of labor. There were divisores who bought votes, interpretees or go-betweens, and sequestrators who held the money until the votes had been delivered. Cicero describes candidates, he said, as going about purse in hand among the electors in the field of Mars. Pompey, he writes, had his mediocre friend Afranius made consul by inviting the leaders of the tribes to his gardens and there paying them for the ballots of their groups. So much money, he writes, was borrowed to finance candidacies that the campaigns raised the interest rate to 8% per month, end quote. Now, it should also be pointed out that politics was so cutthroat in Rome that you couldn't just think about the election. You had to think about after the election, too. Because what was going to happen to you was likely you were going to be dragged into court as soon as you, no longer, had the protection of a public office. As long as you were in a public office, they couldn't drag you into court. The minute that ended, all of your enemies were going to basically do what we would call today, sue you. And the court system had become as corrupt as the political system. Will Durant continues about that, quote, The courts, now preempted by senators, rivaled the polls in corruption. Oaths had lost all value as testimony. Perjury was as common as bribery. Marcus Masala, being indicted for buying his election to the consulate, was unanimously acquitted, though even his friends acknowledged his guilt. Trials are managed so venally, wrote Cicero to his son, that no man will ever be condemned hereafter except for murder. He should have said, says Durant, that no man of means, for, quote, without money and a good lawyer, said another advocate at this period, a plain, simple defendant may be accused of any crime which he's not committed and will certainly be convicted. Durant continues, Lentulus Sura, having been acquitted by two votes, mourned the extra expense he had gone to in bribing one more judge than he had needed. When Quintilus Calidus, praetor, was convicted by a jury of senators, he calculated, quote, they could not honestly require less than 300,000 sesters to condemn a praetor, end quote. The reason that's important is because you are going to have to have both money and political office to avoid a terrible fate once your political enemies could get their hands on you. This reality was in the back of all these people's minds. They were not just planning for the next political office, or what they do when they got it, but how they were going to manage to survive afterwards without being brought down, you know, with judges and courts and lawyers afterwards. Caesar's enemies, for example, were salivating at that opportunity. This, to me, is the genius behind the first triumvirate. You can almost see Caesar reading recent Roman history and learning from the mistakes of guys who were trying to do what he was trying to do now and who paid the ultimate price for their efforts. I mean, just look at the list of popular reformers who came before Caesar and their fates, and we've dealt with many of them. In 133 BCE, you have one of the most famous of all, Tiberius Gracchus. What's his fate? Oh, yeah, he's murdered by the Senate. And then 10 years later, you get his little brother who learns a few lessons from his older brother, but not enough. He also is murdered by the Senate. Then you get guys like Saturninus who learn even more lessons. He's captured by the Senate and then killed while in custody. A guy like Marcus Livius Drusus who comes afterwards, he learns that you can't even leave the house because they'll get you. He is assassinated on his front porch by assassins unknown right before an important vote for a populare cause. You begin to see the pattern here. To be one of these charismatic, popular reformers is to court death. 
and yet each one seems to get a little bit better at learning how to avoid that fate. Caesar's creation of the first triumvirate seems to be the best idea yet. First of all, you co-opt the richest man in the country. That's a good idea. Very rarely in history do you see the cause of the average people, the populare cause throughout many regimes in history, have the richest man in the society on their side. In addition to that, you have the greatest war hero of the age, Pompey, as well. And he's not just the greatest war hero. He's a guy who's got the best veterans in the country right now, admittedly disbanded, but running around Italy grumbling about the land grant that they were supposed to have that the Senate hasn't given them yet and ready at a moment's notice if Pompey calls them to return to the colors and get what they have coming to them. The one rule of the triumvirate seems to be that no one will do what any member of the triumvirate doesn't want done. So the only way anything gets done is if they all agree on a course. And the deal was contrived based on certain realities. Crassus wants something. We'll work on that. Pompey wants something. We'll work on that. Caesar wants something. We'll work on that. And it starts immediately. The first thing that happens is the election to choose the consul for 59 BCE. And we're told that this is one of the main things Caesar wants out of the triumvirate. And according to the historian Appian, he knows he needs either Pompey or Crassus' support, but he doesn't want to go to one and then make the other one angry because they don't like each other. So by reconciling them, he can then get the support of both of them. The bribery is outrageous. The election is dirty as heck. But Caesar wins. And he runs with a running mate, and the hope is that they'll get both the consulship jobs and be able to govern with sort of one mind. Unfortunately for Caesar and the cabal, his running mate loses. And the conservative, you're tempted to say, puppet that the Senate put forward, a guy named Calpurnius Bibulus, he wins the other consul job. And he's sort of the pawn of Cato in this whole thing. And as a matter of fact, the Senate is so scared of what a Caesarian victory would do here in the three-headed monster in power that they not only tell Bibulus to, you know, bribe everyone he can to compete with the money coming from the other side, but even the inflexible, moralistic Cato, who's so anti-corruption, decides that this is such a unique case that it's worth bending the rules, and he encourages Bibulus to you know, bribe the population too. Gives you a, an example of the magnitude that these people felt was at stake here. If the three-headed monster gained victory, the Senate would be outflanked. The fact that they were able to get Bibulus in office gave them some hope that they could use his veto to keep Caesar in check. But unfortunately for the Senate, Bibulus was no match for the genius, the political genius of Caesar. Again, something Alexander the Great never needed to have. The first thing we're told happens is that Caesar gets up and proposes what everyone admits was a good land bill. One of the things about Caesar is when you look at him in a position of advantage, he often doesn't take advantage. He tries to put something forward that the other senators can even agree is necessary. Even Cato, who never wanted this and who opposed it and put a guy in office to oppose it, has to admit that it's a good land bill and that it's necessary. But he justifies his opposition to it as not wanting the three-headed monster to get any credit for reform. Remember, we've seen this oftentimes in the later Republic, where the main reason sometimes to block some good thing that some politician wants done is so that they can't get the credit for it. Because if they get the credit for it, the rest of the people look bad by comparison. So when Caesar proposes the idea to the Senate saying he wants to be cooperative and let's heal the wounds of the election and the whole thing. The state needs this. I'll put it forward. And the senators are kind of wavering. Well, maybe it's a good idea. 
And they ask Cato what he thinks, and he stands up, and he starts talking about it, and he keeps talking about it. And once again, the famous Cato filibuster is taking place. There's a rush on this land bill, and if Cato can keep talking and keep the Senate from doing anything, the whole thing is going to go down in flames. Caesar sees this again, just like he saw it when Cato did this to prevent him from having both the consulship and a triumph. This time, Caesar acts. He has his men arrest Cato, and now he's gone too far. One of the rare times that Caesar misjudges the situation. The only way, though, he can get Cato to stop talking is to get him out of there. He's got a right as a senator to keep talking. So he keeps talking as the guards are taking him away to prison. Cato's milking the situation. He knows what this looks like. He's conned Julius Caesar into overplaying his hand and looking like a tyrant. How could he take the great Cato and arrest him and throw him out of the Senate for simply talking? We're told that one of the respectable, grizzled military veterans, 30 years in service, serving in the Senate, starts walking out after Cato's ejected. And Caesar says something to the effect of, where do you think you're going? And he turns around and says, I'd rather be in prison with Cato than here with you. That's when Caesar knows he's gone too far. We're told he plays it up like an actor, though. I love the way Plutarch puts it. He says uh, about Caesar entering office, quote, When he entered on his office, he brought in bills which would have been preferred with better grace by the most audacious of the tribunes than by a consul, in which he proposed the plantation of colonies and the division of lands simply to please the commonality. The best and most honorable of the senators opposed it, upon which, as he had long wished for nothing more than for such a colorable pretext, he loudly protested how much it was against his will to be driven to seek support from the people, and how the Senate's insulting and harsh conduct left no other course possible for him than to devote himself henceforth to the popular cause and interest. And so he hurried out of the Senate, and presenting himself to the people, and there placing Crassus and Pompey, one on each side of him, he asked them whether they consented to the bills he had proposed. They owned their assent, upon which he desired them to assist him against those who had threatened to oppose him with their swords." They engaged that they would, and Pompey added further that he would meet their swords with a sword and a shield, too. These words the nobles much resented, as neither suitable to his own dignity nor becoming the reverence due to the Senate, but resembling rather the vehemence of a boy or the fury of a madman. But the people were pleased with it. End quote. What's fascinating about what Plutarch says there, and Appian does the same thing, is something that's twisty to our modern democratic minds. We're so used to the idea that the people's side is the good side. Plutarch and Appian are not bound by these same modern restrictions. They're not so sure. And what they've managed to do is something that's kind of twisty to the modern mind. They've turned Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar into like a Darth Vader kind of, you know, presence, an ominous presence. And this ominous presence wants to give land to the people wants to have democratic reforms. This is hard for us to understand. This shouldn't look ominous, but it does. If you want to get even twistier, there's another way of looking at this, and this is how Appian and Plutarch might have. They looked at what Caesar and the Triumvirate were doing as bribing the people in order to get power. This is a critique we've heard before, right, with some of the other tribunes, that they're not really democratic, that they just want to be kings, and they will bribe the people with stuff so that they can get the people's support so that they could become kings. 
In this case, they're bribing the people with land reform. Other times you bribe them with free grain from the public granaries. There's all these things that the Senate looks like, you know, when they say cozying up to the people, flattering the people. That's what this is in the minds of some historians. You can go look at other historians, though, who've written since. There are some, for example, that look at this through the lens of class warfare who see this is akin to something like in revolutionary France, the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? The people finally getting control through a guy like Caesar who has to act and meet the murderous nature of the Senate in defending their prerogatives. After all, they've murdered plenty of other people in Caesar's position. And you have to meet that level of force with, you know, equal and opposite force. And Caesar is the first one of these populare reformers to manage to do that. This is one of those times in Roman history that you could interpret a lot of different ways. And over the ages, historians have done just that. This is hard for us to understand. This shouldn't look ominous, but it does. And Caesar takes the opportunity sometimes to rub that in. When he addresses the people, some sources say the next day, Plutarch sometimes makes it sound like the same day. He goes out there and he says that the Senate's thwarting him and all this. And he says, are you with me, Crassus? And Crassus steps up to the side and says, I'm with you. And he says, are you with me, Pompey? And he goes, I'm with you. And he goes, well, what if these people come at me with swords? What's he talking about there? He's talking about what happens if these people treat me the way other tribunes had been treated before. That's exactly what both Plutarch and Appian said, that he's acting like one of these Tiberius Gracchus-type tribunes. But he's the consul. What happened to those tribunes? Well, the Senate murdered them. Is the Senate going to murder Caesar? I don't know. Pompey just said he'll have a sword and a shield and, oh yeah, a bunch of military veterans to prevent that outcome from happening. Checkmate. Caesar figured out a way around one of the classic senatorial strategies for dealing with a guy like himself. Just kill him. Caesar was willing to fight fire with fire. We're told that in the forum when he's proposing these great land bills directly to the people, the same thing that the consul of almost 100 years ago, Tiberius Gracchus, was murdered for doing, we're told that the conservatives in the Senate came out in force. And the forum is filled with populari supporters. And in pushed the conservatives to try to block what they see as the passage on the part of the people of this land reform bill. Here's what Plutarch says, quote, Lucullus, Cicero, and their friends joined with Bibulus, the other consul, to hinder their passing, and foremost of them all, Cato, who already looked upon the friendship and alliance of Pompey and Caesar as very dangerous, declared that he did not so much dislike the advantage the people should get by this division of the lands, as he feared the reward these men would gain by thus courting and cozening the people. And in this he gained over the Senate to his opinion, as likewise many who were not senators, who were offended at Caesar's ill conduct, that he, in the office of consul, should thus basely and dishonorably flatter the people, practicing, to win their favor, the same means that were wont to be used only by the most rash and rebellious tribunes. Caesar, therefore, and his party, fearing that they should not carry it by fair dealing, fell to open force. First, a basket of dung was thrown upon Bibulus as he was going to the forum, and then they set upon his lictors and broke their rods. At length, several darts were thrown and many men wounded, so that all who were against those laws fled out of the forum. The rest with what haste they could, and Cato, last of all, walking out slowly, often turning back and calling down vengeance upon them. End quote. So look at what's happened. When Caesar proposes these laws right after the election to the Senate, he has to arrest Cato to stop him from talking, and then he has to back down because that move was going too far. So then he comes to the people and addresses it to the people. 
at one point pointing to Bibulus and saying that you could have all these laws. He just has to agree to them. You know, and they're hooting and hollering at Bibulus, and he makes a fatal mistake in the same way that Cato had outmaneuvered Caesar and made him look like a tyrant. Caesar outmaneuvered Bibulus and made him look like an elitist because when Caesar said you could have the laws if this guy would just approve them, Bibulus turns to the people and says, you won't have these laws this year even if you all want them. Then he gets dung thrown on him. Then things start getting thrown out of the crowd, darts, probably rocks and trash of all kinds, and the conservatives run away from the Senate holding you know, their hands over their heads to avoid getting hurt. Several were. And Cato just walks out at a slow pace, allowing whatever anyone had the guts to throw at Cato to hit him, and occasionally turning around, and as Plutarch says in such wonderful terms, and occasionally calling down vengeance upon them. Pompey's veterans were mixed in with the crowd, shoving and pushing and breaking the other consul's signs of high office. This was open force, and you can see why some historians call this the end of the Republic. And the strong-arm tactics are apparent even in the legislation. For example, the recently passed land reform law that gives Pompey's veterans their land and the poor some public land, that has a clause in it. And the clause requires all the senators to swear that they will uphold that law and they won't try to overturn it later. This is highly unusual. And with that clause comes a penalty. Any senators who won't swear get to be exiled for their trouble. Some sources say put to death, but that's not in keeping with Roman legal practice, and most say exile. So, meekly, most of the Senate just complies. After all, they'd seen what happened to Bibulus and Cato publicly and the conservatives. It was becoming a threatening situation, and they were somewhat cowed. Even Cicero took the oath without much trouble. Only two people resisted. One was an old and ill senator who presumably couldn't get down there to do it. The other was our good friend, Mr. Unyielding himself, Cato. And Cato's in a weird position because, in a sense, this whole promise that they are required to make may have been an attempt to simply ensnare Cato using his own morals. The triumvirate may have been very aware that this is exactly the sort of thing Cato would refuse to do, and then he would be exiled, and then he would be out of the way. After all, he was the one truly superior enemy that they faced in the Senate. And Cato was leaning that way. It was his friends and family who persuaded him that it would do no good to avoid the promise and that, in a sense, he would be helping the very people that he was trying to morally oppose. Plutarch has the phrasing go this way, quote, Thus the other party not only carried their point of dividing the lands, but also ordained that all the Senate should swear to confirm this law and to defend it against whoever should attempt to alter it, inflicting great penalties on those that should refuse the oath. All these senators, seeing the necessity they were in, took the oath, remembering the example of Metellus in old time, who, refusing to swear upon the like occasion, was forced to leave Italy. As for Cato, his wife and children with tears besought him. His friends and familiars persuaded and entreated him to yield, to take the oath. 
But he that principally prevailed with him was Cicero, the orator, who urged upon him that it was perhaps not even right in itself that a private man should oppose what the public had decreed, and that the thing being already past altering, it was folly and madness to throw himself into danger without the chance of doing his country any good. It would be the greatest of all evils to embrace, as it were, the opportunity to abandon the commonwealth, for whose sake he did everything, and to let it fall into the hands of those who design nothing but its ruin, as if he were glad to be saved from the trouble of defending it. For, said he, though Cato have no need of Rome, yet Rome has need of Cato, and so likewise have all his friends. End quote. Eventually Cato yields and takes the oath, and the triumvirate wins. And they were going to win either way. Either Cato was not going to take the oath and he was going to be exiled, or he was going to take the oath and he would have to just sit there, bound by his own moral code, and not do anything against the laws the triumvirs had passed. Now, the bonds between the triumvirs are strengthened early on in Caesar's consulship because he marries his daughter off to Pompey. This is more twisted than it sounds. First of all, Pompey is six years older than Julius Caesar, so he's a lot older than Julius Caesar's daughter. Julius Caesar's daughter was betrothed to another person, and her wedding was only a few days away when her father snatches her away and gives her to Pompey instead. Now, This makes Julius Caesar, who is six years younger than Pompey, Pompey's father-in-law. It's even weirder because the only reason that Pompey is single again after divorcing yet another of his wives is because that wife was supposedly unfaithful to him with, among other people, Julius Caesar. By the way, Caesar was also at times sleeping with Crassus's wife, the other member of the triumvirate. And so Caesar had slept with the wives of both of his, you know, partners in power. We told you before, this Rome of this era was remarkably Victorian in the sense that a lot of the famous people were sleeping with each other. Now, during his consulship, Caesar handles the needs of his fellow triumphers. He gets the land deal that Pompey's veterans need passed. He passes through the rubber stamping of Pompey's conditions that he created in the East— He goes to the businessmen that Crassus was representing and knocks down what they owe the state by a third. This is a pretty good compromise for everyone and a better deal than the business class thought they were going to get. So Appy and the Roman historian says at this point the business class is worshiping Caesar. And he says it's more important to have the business class on your side than the people. At least for the moment, Caesar has them both. It wouldn't last, though. And one reason it wouldn't last is because the truly formidable enemy that the triumvirate has is continually hammering them. Cato will not let up. While Caesar's co-consul Bibulus, scared of the violence that breaks out whenever he seems to want to go, you know, tell the people that there's yet another bad omen that we shouldn't conduct business, runs into his house and conducts business there. The conservative members of his party join him there and they try to kind of do business there. And every time they want to interfere, he comes out and says there's another sign of bad omens on the horizon. Meanwhile, Caesar simply bypasses him and bypasses the Senate and does all his deals directly with the people. That's how he gets Pompey's deal passed. That's how he gets Crassus's deal passed. And it seems that they're still hoping that a guy like Cicero will see that they're doing good things and join them. Instead, Cicero's working in the opposite direction, and he's about to pay a big price for doing it. See, historian Michael Grant says that the triumvirate were getting nervous, and they were getting nervous because their position was only secure now that they were in office. 
in the not-too-distant future they weren't going to be in office, and they were a little insecure about it. When Cicero, in the morning, during a trial, slammed the triumvirate, by the afternoon, Caesar and Pompey were already taking measures into their hands to deal with Cicero. If he wasn't going to join them and he was going to criticize them openly, then they were going to create a counterweight to Cicero's influence. They held a religious ceremony, and they took a person of noble birth, and they changed his birth certificate, essentially, and turned him into a person of common birth. They did this at the urgent and persistent request of the individual himself. Kind of unusual, isn't it? A person born to the highest levels of society, begging to be legally removed from that class and put into a lower class. But our good friend, perhaps the most influential cross-dresser in history, at least one night, has never been normal in that respect. It's Publius Clodius Pulcher. And if he hadn't already changed his name from Claudius to Clodius, he did so now. There was a method to his madness, though. Clodius wanted a Roman governmental position that he was not allowed to have unless he was more of a common birth sort of person. This legal ceremony by Caesar as Pontificus Maximus and Pompey acting as his second turned him into a person of that class, and now he could run for that position. The position is the ever-famous chink in the Republic's armor, the Tribune of the Plebs. And Clodius was looking at that office as a wonderful weapon with which to use on Cicero the man who testified at Clodius's trial during that famous cross-dressing incident when he didn't have to and blew up his alibi. Now, the man who was going to be tribune of the plebs was going to use that office in a way that would reduce Cicero to groveling in the streets of Rome. Cicero could not have been surprised, though, by Clodius's desire for revenge. After all, it ran in the family. There's a famous story about someone accusing his sister of being a prostitute and the repayment for that slander that happened. Here's how author Tom Holland describes Clodia's defense of her reputation. Quote, Clodia Mattelli, for instance, had found herself stuck with the mortifying nickname of Lady Copperbit after the low-rent hookers who plied their trade on street corners. One spurned lover described her as selling herself, quote, on crossroads and back alleys, end quote, while another sent her a purse filled with copper coins. Clodia was susceptible to these slanders because of her reputation for promiscuity and her raffish sense of fashion. But slang was not the limit of her taste for gangster chic. Disrespect was invariably punished. Humiliations were answered in kind. The humorist responsible for the gifts of coppers had soon had the smile wiped off his face. Publicly beaten and gang-raped, he was the one who had been used as a whore. End quote. And these are the sorts of tactics her brother would have found attractive as well. Gangster chic is an interesting word for Holland to use for this era because there are definitely echoes of street gangsterism. And Publius Clodius Pulcher is one of Rome's gang leaders. And this is part of his appeal to people like Caesar. Clodius has the street muscle that a guy like Caesar, who needs someone defending his interests while he's away, requires. 
This is another example where Caesar's not implicating Clodius at the trial of the good goddess works in his favor. And another example where Cicero's testimony at the trial works against his. What Clodius does is wins the office of the tribune of the plebs, again with Caesar and the triumvirate's help because everyone getting into office is basically their people. And he brings Cicero up on charges. The charges are killing Roman citizens without a trial. This goes back to when Cicero, in what he called the crisis of the moment, had executed those people that were implicated in the Catiline conspiracy, whether or not that really happened. There were people at the time telling Cicero that this would come back to haunt him, and Clodius was now making sure it came back to haunt them in a legal way. Cicero was in trouble. And the damage to his reputation and the public embarrassment unhinges him. The Roman historian Appian writes, quote, Such were Caesar's actions as consul, and as soon as he laid his office down, he immediately left Rome to take up the next. Clodius impeached Cicero for breach of the Constitution because he had put Lentulus and Ketigus and their followers to death without trial. Although Cicero had displayed a most noble spirit of resolution in the affair itself, when it came to being prosecuted, he collapsed. He put on miserable clothing and threw himself down, covered in filth and squalor, in front of those he met in the streets, without even being ashamed of bothering people who knew nothing of the matter." So that thanks to his inappropriate behavior, he became a figure of fun instead of an object of pity. Such was the state of cowardice he fell into over a single case which involved himself, a man who had all his life won a brilliant reputation in the cases of others. End quote. Appian says that one day when Clodius insults Cicero in the street while Cicero's doing his begging and scraping routine, Cicero decides to leave the city in exile. He's followed outside the gates by a crowd of people who still support him, and Clodius leads a crowd of populares to Cicero's house and burns it down. It's a little like saying, glad to see you go, don't come back. And it's just as well that Cicero left the city, because something bad would have likely happened to him had he stayed. Already, he could hardly leave his house because Clodius's gang members were waiting outside to pelt him with mud and rocks and debris of all kinds. It was only a matter of time, probably, before that escalated. Clodius was doing all these reforms as tribune that only helped his street gang credential and his ability to build a following willing to go outside the homes of the rich and powerful and pelt them with rocks. For example, he made the government grain distribution to the poor entirely free. That was something that made him very popular among the urban proletariat, as it was called. Um, he also made it legal again to form the famous workers' guilds or unions or PACs or business associations. I've heard it described a million different ways. But it's basically a place where Clodius could find people to populate his gangs. And this was all part of his actual strategy. Writer Anthony Everett lays it down. He says, quote, Clodius's originality lay in his perception of what could be achieved by consistent violence on the streets and in the forum. For half a century, politicians of every persuasion had resorted to force from time to time. The scale of public spaces in the city center, the absence of wide streets or avenues, and the fact that there was no police force and that soldiers were forbidden to cross the pomorium meant that gangs could temporarily take over the seat of government, terrorize office holders, and force legislation through or impede it. 
Clodius saw that this could be turned into a permanent state of affairs. He developed the concept of the standing gang, equipped and ready to act at any time. Once his tribuneship was over in December of 58, this would become his power base. He realized that this private army would need an operational headquarters, and apparently took over the Temple of the Casters in the Forum for a time, turning the building into a fortress by demolishing the steps that led down from its high podium. This was insurrection as a means of government, rather than as a means of overthrowing a government. End quote. Now, Everett goes on to speculate Clodius's motives, because a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas. To some, he's really a popular Democrat out to finally turn the tables on, you know, Rome's elite and go directly to the people for power. But even Everett looks at this as just another Roman, you know, well-born youth finding his own path to personal aggrandizement. No one can ever get inside the heads of these people and figure it out. It's also hard, more than 2,000 years after the fact, to figure out whether Clodius was acting in his own interests or whether he had shadowy people behind the scene backing him and pushing him to do certain things. I mean, already it was thought that he was working as Caesar's agent in Rome while Caesar was in Gaul, defeating, you know, one Gallic army after another in what's now modern-day France. But there are other suggestions that he may have been working with Crassus at this time in order to undercut Crassus's traditional political opponent. Crassus never liked Pompey, even though they were in the triumvirate together. Crassus may not have been able to go after Pompey directly and overtly. After all, you know, they have a deal. But you could do a bit of asymmetrical warfare, perhaps. And Clodius at this time is the king of asymmetrical warfare. He commands almost paramilitary forces in Rome. And he's now managed to get Cicero, his biggest enemy and one of the Senate's biggest heroes, out of the way. He'd already gotten Cato out of the way, too. Similar kind of thing. He couldn't bully Cato like he could bully Cicero. Cato's incorruptibility protected him from that. But Clodius used Cato's incorruptibility as an excuse to get rid of him. Had him brought in and said, guess what? We're going to annex this Mediterranean island, and there's a huge potential for all sorts of malfeasance, so I need a guy with your honest reputation to go handle it for us. And Cato looked him straight in the face and said something to the effect of, you don't need me to go do this island. You just want me out of the way. And Clodius is supposed to have smiled back because they both knew it was true and said, well, you know, regardless of the reason, you're going. And Cato had such respect for the tradition of Rome and service of the Romans to the state when needed that he went anyway, knowing even that it was a ruse to get him out of there. So he gets the two most powerful tools that the Senate has out of the way, and all of a sudden Clodius, a tool of the plebs, the urban population is all of a sudden going after members of the triumvirate, the very people that the Senate feels impotent to deal with, especially now that their two most powerful weapons are gone. All of a sudden, Clodius is basking in the glory of senatorial approval while he goes after Pompey. And his gangs start giving Pompey the same treatment they give Cicero, throwing things at him, dung and garbage of all kinds. Supposedly, they set up a little office right outside his home so that every time he walks out of his house, there's a gang there waiting for him. We're told he has some upsetting moments in the public eye. For example, he goes to a theater to see a performance, and Clodius is there with his mob, and they start jeering Pompey publicly and making fun of him. This is not a position that Pompey, the praise junkie, would have found too acceptable. The difference between a Cicero and a Cato and a Pompey, though, are that while Cato and Cicero may not have had a ton of options to deal 
with the king of the streets' ability to produce violence at a moment's notice. Pompey did. And eventually he was pushed to a point where he decided to fight Clodius's fire with fire. If you have problems with a gang, get your own gang. And it was pretty much inevitable that powerful interests would start employing their own street gangs to counteract what Clodius was doing. Because if you didn't do that, you were essentially ceding Rome to this guy, this gang leader, this person who was able to exploit a loophole in the Roman system, the loophole being that you couldn't have troops in the city, that they had to stay beyond that mythical boundary. Oh, and the fact that you didn't have a police force. That's a loophole that allows the guy with the biggest gang to own the city. Well... There were powerful interests who weren't going to let Clodius's gang, you know, claim victory without some sort of struggle. And a couple of tribunes are provided with the means, and no one knows who's financing either side. No one knows who's really financing Clodius's gangs, although Crassus's name is always mentioned. And no one really knows who's financing Titus Annius Milo's gang. That's the name of the Tribune. He's works with another Tribune, but he's the famous one. And both of those guys are routinely called by modern historians disreputable characters. I've seen that word used over and over. It's like they're copying each other. A couple of disreputable characters. But this Milo guy and his partner are provided with the means to hire their own street gangs. And we're told it gets sophisticated and deadly because... This is not an unusual occurrence in Roman history that there would be some sort of street gangster activity. After all, the very rich and powerful had always had their clients around them walking around. So if you wanted to call their supplicants a kind of a street gang, you could get away with that and say that this was not really new. What was new is that deadly encounters were not just happening. They were sought after and expected. The group of amateurs that usually comprised these sorts of gangs were now supplemented by, you know, paid gladiators that were interspersed amid the amateurs so that when, you know, something did break out between the various factions and the gangs, you had experienced deadly fighters with you. And Milo and Clodius's gangs would clash numerous times in the city. Many people dying. And it taking a toll on Rome's ability to even do governmental business. These clashes were shutting down the government. And the fact that this was happening was creating a sort of a backlash against some of Clodius's normal defenders. The, the urban plebeians, the mob, the rabble, as a guy like Cicero might describe them, those people still loved him, but he was losing the support of everyone else. The upper classes never supported him, but there were these middling classes and, you know, the, uh, the knights of Rome and other people who sometimes would go either way. Clodius was losing the support of the rest of the people because he was essentially shutting the city down, a one-man gangster. And now he made the doubly fatal mistake of adding a new personal enemy that he seemed to be working against. Remember, he was openly working against Pompey, and they had an open grudge. Now he started working against Caesar. He started working against some of the legislation that Caesar passed when he was consul. Now, of course, he's up in Gaul fighting Celtic people and doing very well. He thought, it looks like from the history books, that Clodius was his agent in Rome. Now his agent is kind of going free agent on him and going after Caesar's policies too. There are those who think, and we've told you before, this is what makes this story so complicated. There's so much political infighting, and the people of the day weren't even sure all the time who was lining up with whom. So it's especially hard for us now, with much less evidence, to define 
you know, which side is which. But it's very possible that Crassus was working against the triumvirate here and pushing Clodius in every respect. It's also possible that Clodius was doing this on his own and Crassus was just happy with what he was doing. It's hard to know, but what Clodius is doing is he's prying apart the triumvirate and he's exposing, you know, little cracks and making them larger. And Caesar can tell all the way in Gaul that he's got to do some patching up if he wants this arrangement to continue because Crassus and Pompey are going to go after each other's throats if something doesn't intervene. And the triumvirs going after Clodius have to be careful because... Clodius is such a hero of the people, you have to sort of go at him in a roundabout way. Bringing Milo and his gangs involved is a perfect example. You blame it on Milo. It's not the Senate's fault. It's not Pompey's fault. Another way that the triumvirate thinks that they can counterbalance Clodius's influence now is by bringing back the very guy that they brought Clodius in to get rid of in the first place. They realize that exiling Cicero was a mistake and that they need him to counteract Clodius. Maybe Pompey thought it was a mistake. It seems like Caesar thinks he was almost punishing Cicero a little bit for not joining the triumvirate when he had the chance, and that if he comes back now, Caesar wants a deal from him. He doesn't just want to bring him back to counter Clodius. He wants to put Cicero in his pocket. And so the historical sources make it clear that Caesar was basically saying to Cicero, "Um, you can come back. Because Cicero was very unhappy away from Rome, and everyone knew it. He says, you can come back on the condition that you don't criticize us like you were doing before you got sent away. In other words, he's buying Cicero's silence against the triumvirate if he comes back. Cicero apparently okays the deal and arrives back in Rome to cheering crowds. I mean, he's met at the docksides, and it's like he's another hero all of a sudden. The Roman... You know, populace seems very fickle in terms of when they decide they hate somebody and when they decide they love them, and sometimes they, you know, freely shift around. So Cicero arrives back, and he immediately starts doing, you know, what he's there to do, which is be a thorn in Clodius' side, and in a sense, by doing that, help the triumvirate. One of the ways he supports the triumvirate is by getting Pompey a command to solve a problem. There's a corn problem in Rome, not enough of the supply, someone needs to go handle it. Cicero helps push Pompey for the role, which is something Pompey wants because it gets him back into a public position of power. So Cicero comes back to Rome and the paybacks begin immediately. The gang violence seems to have reached some sort of equilibrium where there was a you know, rough parity between the powers of Clodius's gangs and the powers of Milo's gangs. But you can see in this report, Cicero writes to a friend about what a public meeting was like. You can see how the gangs influence the politics of Rome. Both sides bring their gangs to the public forum, and they dominate the scene. Here's what Cicero writes. Quote, Pompey spoke, or at least tried to, but when he stood up, Clodius's gang began yelling, and he had to put up with this for the whole time he was speaking, getting interrupted not just by shouts, but jeers and insults. When he had finished, he showed great determination, given the situation, never flinching. He said all that he meant to say, some of it even in silence, coming from his force of character. But anyway, when he stopped, up sprang Clodius. He was greeted by yells from our supporters. We were pleased to return the compliment, and lost control of his spirit, voice, and expression. This went on from the sixth hour, when Pompey finished speaking, to the eighth hour, with all sorts of abuse and foul verses about Clodius and Clodia, his, uh, notorious sister. Cicero continues, 
Enraged and white with anger, he called out questions to his gang, and he was heard clearly above the others shouting, Who was it who starved the people? Pompey, his cronies replied. Who wanted to go to Alexandria? Pompey, they called. Who do you want to go? Crassus, they replied. The latter was there, Cicero writes, but without any goodwill towards Milo. End quote. In other words, Clodius is there whipping the people up into a frenzy and saying, you know, who do we want to go here and who do we want to go there and what do we want the government policy to be? And of course, who's benefiting? Crassus is. This is why so many historians suspect he was behind this, because while Clodius is using his influence with his gangs to punish Pompey, he's pushing up Crassus. He's pulling the triumvirate apart. Caesar sees this and calls for a conference in the north of Italy, near where he's basing his forces. And whether this was an official meeting, as some historians say, or sort of an unofficial improvisational meeting, the other triumvirs show up to the north of Italy, and they have a conference. And what they do is they renew the triumvirate again. This time, though, as the triumvirate is renewed, Caesar's no longer the junior partner. His wars in what's now modern-day France have assured him a much higher place, And as a matter of fact, right before the conference, he announces that he's been completely victorious in Gaul. It's not true. There will be more fighting. But the money from his conquest starts pouring into the city at just the right time, right when he needs the city to kind of ignore the fact that the triumvirate is consolidating their hold on Rome. The people in Rome are ecstatic, and all sorts of praise and honors are heaped on Caesar, even as he and his fellow triumvirs are conspiring to extend their commands. And that's essentially what's going to happen at this meeting. And it has to happen because where these guys are really vulnerable is if any of them becomes a private citizen again. That's when their opponents will have access to the law courts, which are thoroughly corrupt at this point, and are used primarily you know, when dealing with these big figures to cut them down to size legally and we're told that Cato especially is waiting for Caesar's immunity to lapse. As author Tom Holland writes about Caesar, quote, No matter how much glory he won in Gaul, and no matter how much gold, a hard core of opponents would continue to regard him as a criminal. For as long as Caesar remained a proconsul, he was safe from prosecution, but he could not remain in Gaul forever. The five years would pass, and at the end of them, Cato would be waiting, ready to move. Justice demanded it, as did the needs of his country. If Caesar was not destroyed, then force would be seen to have triumphed over law. A republic ruled by violence would barely be a republic at all. End quote. Cato might be waiting for Caesar to become a private citizen again, but the stipulations laid down by the renewal of the triumvirate would make sure that Caesar didn't become a private citizen for a very long time. He was given another five years term of office in Gaul with his veteran killer army and assured of a second consulship when that lapsed. Pompey's given Spain and an army to go with that. He's also given a special provision that allows him to stay in Rome and let the army be handled by his aid. Crassus is given the uh, territory of Syria and an army himself. All of these commands are for five years. That's an extraordinary length of time. It keeps them out of the courts. Cato is thwarted. After the renewal of the first triumvirate, Caesar takes his army back to Gaul because there's still a lot of hard slogging to go before that conflict's over. 
I should say that Caesar's wars in Gaul, as fascinating as they are, are really a sidebar story to the decline and fall of the Roman Republic. It's the aspects of it that impact the political realities on the ground in Rome that we're dealing with here. And those incidents in Gaul affect the realities in Rome deeply, for example. During the course of the Gallic Wars, Caesar will do all sorts of interesting things. His work on the Gallic Wars that he wrote himself is some of the best military reading you will get from the ancient world and one of the few times we have the direct memoirs of an ancient commander. Now, you have to take it with a grain of salt. This stuff is written for consumption back in the home city in Rome. Caesar's a politician. This stuff carries not a little bit of, you know, political propaganda. It's fascinating nonetheless. Caesar will, during the course of these wars, go to Britain twice with his army. And just to show you the magnitude of that, there had never been an army from the, you know, quote-unquote civilized Mediterranean Greek and Roman world to ever go up there. And when Caesar would write about it, the people in Rome would snap up the, the books because it was a little like being on the receiving end of, you know, what Columbus's chroniclers may have written back and you're in Spain gobbling up all this stuff about the New World. Same sort of attention I'm sure we will get when someday some human being sets foot on some foreign planet and writes about the inhabitants. The stories of, you know, vicious tribesmen who would paint their bodies and faces blue. I mean, the whole story made fascinating reading. He would also encounter German tribes along sort of near where the French and German border are today. And he was having all kinds of problems with them because as he was pacifying these Gallic peoples and essentially demilitarizing them, the Germans were coming over and taking advantage of that. One of their main kings, a guy named Ariovistus, um, encountered Caesar. And Caesar tells you what he says. I mean, whether or not it's true. But he has a great line where he says that something to the effect of, you know, there's a lot of people in Rome that would like me to kill you to Caesar. And what historians since then have sort of divined from that statement is that there were people in Rome's political world that were in contact with the barbarian leaders of even the deepest and darkest realms. Because remember, Caesar's portraying this encounter with the Germans as like, you know, also like meeting an alien race kind of, but they're already in contact with Caesar's enemies back in Rome, if indeed that's true. It is worth noting, though, that there's a note from Cicero to a friend where he says something to the effect of, listen, you never know what might happen to Caesar in Gaul. Maybe we don't even need to be afraid of this guy. After all, generals die in battle all the time. If you wanted to form a conspiracy theory, you might be able to say that Cicero might have heard something about somebody being in contact with some German general that, you know, Caesar might come into contact with. You never know. It's fun speculation. That's the funny part of getting, you know, if you have no evidence from an era, it's hard to speculate. If you get a little evidence like this, you can start to build all sorts of fun little conspiracy theories if you want to. The problem is in Rome, the first triumvirate itself is a conspiracy theory. And it's one that the Romans are quickly waking up to. When Caesar goes back to fight the Gauls, Pompey and Crassus do what was part of the deal, you know, that they made at the renewal of the triumvirate. They both run for consul. But Cato's got conservatives. He's lined up to run for consul, too. And when Pompey and Crassus are questioned about whether or not they're going to run, when it becomes apparent they're thinking about it, people are like, wait a minute, these guys are going to run again and they're going to run together? Remember, they served together once before. Um, you know, Plutarch has a story where he talks about, you know, how people were beginning to wake up to how this was, you know, coming down. Here's what Plutarch writes about it, picking up the story from when Pompey and Crassus come back from the meeting that renewed the first triumvirate. Quote, 
But when they returned to Rome, their design was presently suspected, and a report was soon spread that this interview had been for no good. When Marcellinus and Domitius asked Pompey in the Senate if he intended to stand for the consulship, he answered, perhaps he would, perhaps not, and being urged again, replied, he would ask it of the honest citizens, but not of the dishonest. Which answer, appearing too haughty and arrogant, Crassus said, more modestly, that he would desire it if it might be for the advantage of the public, otherwise he would decline it. Upon this, some others took confidence and came forward as candidates, among them Domitius. But when Pompey and Crassus now openly appeared for it, the rest were afraid and drew back. Only Cato encouraged Domitius, who was his friend and a relation, to proceed exciting him to persist, as though he was now defending the public liberty, as these men, he said, did not so much aim at the consulate as at arbitrary government, and it was not a petition for office, but a seizure of provinces and armies. Thus spoken thought Cato, and almost forcibly compelled Domitius to appear in the forum, where many sided with him. For there was, indeed, much wonder and question among the people. Why should Pompey and Crassus want another consulship, and why they two together, and not with some third person? We have a great many men, not unworthy to be fellow consuls with either of the one or the other. Pompey's party, being apprehensive of this, committed all manner of indecencies and violences, and among other things lay in wait for Domitius as he was coming thither before daybreak with his friends. His torch-bearer they killed, and wounded several others of whom Cato was one. And these being beaten back and driven into a house, Pompey and Crassus were proclaimed consuls. Not long after, they surrounded the house with armed men, thrust Cato out of the forum, killed some that made resistance, and decreed Caesar his command for five years longer, and provinces for themselves. Syria and both the Spains, which being divided by lots, Syria fell to Crassus, the Spains to Pompey. End quote. So you can see how the violence in Rome has been building, and now this triumvirate question comes to a head and basically Pompey and Crassus who were hoping to run for office and have this have the appearance of some sort of normalcy were forced out into the open by Cato's activities and forced to essentially you know as gang leaders themselves beat their way into the jobs and then when they got the jobs they gave Caesar whose support was vital he sent a lot of his soldiers down to Rome to vote just for the occasion they gave Caesar the extra command he wanted and they gave themselves commands as well. And as Cato said, this wasn't a petition for office. It was the assigning of provinces and armies. Now, Pompey wasn't going to do much with his army. He was in love with his wife, and the Romans were, in a tabloid sense once again, making fun of him for being so in love with his wife. That was a little effeminate in the Romans' eyes, and a regular Roman man should be out there not caring that much about what a woman thought, maybe even having a lot of affairs on the side. That's what all the great ones do after all. Not Pompey, though. He fell head over heels for his wife. And this becomes one of three incidents that will happen in quick succession that will rock Caesar's world and the world of Rome in a way that will set the whole momentum of things careening in a different course. The first thing is something happens to Pompey's wife. Remember, Pompey's wife isn't just anyone. She's Julius Caesar's daughter. Her name is Julia. And Julia is the cement that bonds Pompey to Caesar. And Pompey's sort of the odd man out in the triumvirate. Remember, Crassus and Caesar have always had some doings with each other. Pompey and Crassus hate each other. And Caesar and Pompey are sort of, you know, not natural allies. It's Julia that keeps the whole thing together. 
in 64 BCE, she dies. She'll die giving birth to Pompey's child and Caesar's grandchild. Historians differ on whether this was a son or a daughter, but it only survives a little while before it too dies. And now any connection that Caesar would have with Pompey is broken. Caesar would try to mend it through other marriage alliances with him, but Pompey turns them all down. By all accounts, he's heartbroken. And he loved Julia very much. And she had many of the very qualities that her father had that attracted you know, people to him. Pompey is badly affected by this, and so is the triumvirate. Now, Caesar's mother will also die that same year. His mother is Aurelia, the woman who was so determined in the crisis of the good goddess with Clodius that she handled everything with the decisiveness that would make her son proud. And Caesar takes a hell of a blow in the year 54 BCE with both those deaths that are close to him. And he no doubt receives the information, the news, from messengers while he's fighting in Gaul. Now, later that same year, 54 BCE, Crassus launches a war against the Parthians. And this has an interesting effect when you read the sources. Caesar, for example, was already getting flack from people like Cato for his war against the Celts. Cato said that it was a war of aggression and that the Celts had done nothing to warrant what Caesar was doing to them. Some people today would call what Caesar is doing to them genocide. Now, I would differ with that characterization. I wouldn't call it genocide. But, you know, if we're arguing about the terminology, we're arguing right around that line. It was horrific what happened to the Gallic peoples. And Cato back in Rome was slamming Caesar for this, claiming that this was a war of aggression and that the Celts had done nothing to deserve what Caesar was doing to them. He was grumbling that Caesar should be prosecuted and handed over to the Celts for punishment. You can only imagine what that would have been. But if the conservatives like Cato thought that the Celts were being mistreated, a people that had at least threatened the Romans in their history— there were deep-seated nightmares that the Romans had about Celtic peoples coming down and doing to them what they'd done in Rome's ancient history, which was take over the city, devastate Italy. So at least they were working off of that memory. Crassus going after the Parthians seemed wholly like a war of ambition, and not just a war of ambition, a war that was done by one guy. It wasn't the Senate that said, go get the Parthians. Crassus just decided he's got this command, he's going to do what he wants, and he's going after the Parthians. Plutarch makes it clear that there was a backlash to this, a public backlash and a backlash on the part of the public's legislators, the tribunes. It's interesting. The Romans are one of the most militaristic peoples in history, and yet this is almost an anti-war sort of a move on the part of these tribunes. It was also in the interest of some of these conservative senators to be against a new war of aggression against people like the Parthians. Cato was against it, but of course Cato was against the triumvirate. So who could tell if he was really against war with the Parthians or if he just didn't like the fact that it was Crassus leading them? Now, the sentiment against this war seems to be so powerful that Crassus actually had to grab the other triumvirate that was close at hand, Pompey, and get him to help use his popularity to keep the people from, you know, preventing his army from leaving to go fight the Parthians. Plutarch says that before launching this expedition in the east, Crassus was strangely arrogant, that he wasn't given to boasting and such things, and he was almost 60 years old anyway, so he had a long life behind him. 
People didn't think of Crassus as being haughty and arrogant and boastful, but Plutarch says about this he was, and he was really looking forward to matching the exploits of a Caesar or a Pompey or even exceeding them. Here's what Plutarch says, quote, But then being strangely puffed up and his head heated, he would not limit his fortune with Parthia and Syria, but looking on the actions of Lucullus against Tigranes or the exploits of Pompey against Mithridates, but his child's play, he proposed to himself in his hopes to pass as far as Bactria and India and the utmost ocean. Not that he was called upon by the decree which appointed him to his office to undertake any expedition against the Parthians, but it was well known that he was eager for it. And Caesar wrote him out of Gaul, commending his resolution and inciting him to the war. And when Atias, the tribune of the people, designed to stop his journey, and many others murmured that one man should undertake a war against a people that had done them no injury, and were at amity with them, he desired Pompey to stand by him and accompany him out of the town, as he had a great name amongst the common people. Pompey appeared with a pleasing countenance, and so mollified the people that they let Crassus pass quietly. Atias, however, met him, and first by word of mouth warned, and conjured him not to proceed, and then commanded his attendant officer to seize him and detain him, but the other tribunes not permitting it. The officers released Crassus. Atias, therefore, running to the gate when Crassus was come thither, set down a chafing dish with a lighted fire in it, and burning incense and pouring libations on it, cursed him with dreadful imprecations, calling upon and naming several strange and horrible deities. In the Roman belief, there is so much virtue in these sacred and ancient rites that no man can escape the effects of them, and that the utterer himself seldom prospers, so that they are not often made use of, but only upon great occasion. And Atias was blamed at the time for resorting to them, as the city itself, in whose cause he used them, would be the first to feel the ill effects of these curses and supernatural terrors. End quote. So basically, Crassus tries to leave with the army, and the people try to prevent him. And it takes Pompey coming out and assuring them that it's all cool for them to grumble and walk away. Then the tribune of the people, Latias, you know, tries to stop him, and the other tribunes won't let him. So he goes out there on his own, grabs the religious stuff, puts it out on the road where the army's going to pass by, starts burning it into the air and uttering curses. And as Plutarch says, the belief was that the curse would affect both the people being cursed and the person doing the cursing. So you didn't want to do it unless you often had to. It was almost like a self-sacrifice thing. Atias was willing to take what this curse was going to do to him if he could, you know, manage to do it to Crassus too. And part of this is the ancient historians looking back, you know, with 2020 hindsight, knowing what's going to happen to Crassus and, you know, putting some little curse in there to show that there was foresight and knowledge. But, you know, you never know. Plutarch then goes and tells a great story about Crassus arriving, you know, in Asia and meeting one of the local kings, a real, real old man. And the local king is doing a big building project that's not going to be done for a long time. And Crassus makes it kind of a joke to him about, isn't it a little late to be starting a building project like that, old man? And the old king looks at him and goes, I'm not the one invading Parthia. And, you know, Crassus was like 60 at that point. So, again, the ancient historians making a little bit of a dig at Crassus's almost young mannish ambitions for a guy who's 60 and should be more satisfied with how things are. It's almost, you know, slamming him a little bit for having such youthful passions at a time when he should be more settled. He goes into Mesopotamia, because that's all owned by the Parthian dynasty in Persia. And that dynasty is interesting. It's a foreign dynasty. 
um, the people in Persia had their own dynasties until Alexander the Great conquered that country. And then one of his generals, a guy named Seleucus, uh, took it over when Alexander's empire broke up. And he had a bunch of his descendants running it. And a foreign tribal nomadic army of horse archers came in to the eastern part of the country, took over the east of Persia, and ruled it like a foreign military caste, and were able to break that off from the Seleucid Empire. And then when the Seleucids were destroyed by the Romans, the Parthians moved in to as far into Mesopotamia as they could go, and that whole area was now subject to them. They had not encountered the Romans before, and the Romans hadn't really encountered them. Both sides were to find out that they had armies that were almost polar opposites of each other. It's fascinating from a military standpoint to study the Battle of Carrhae, or Carrhae, happened in 53 BCE, and it's a famous, famous incident. It's where Crassus's Roman army comes into contact with the main force of the Parthians. The main force of the Parthians is completely mounted. It's all cavalry. Crassus's army may have actually had as a percentage, uh, more cavalry than any Roman army that had ever come before. But it wasn't enough. He'd raided the local client states in the east for cavalry help, but it was nowhere near the quality of the cavalry he would be facing, and there was not enough of it. We're told that part of the problem is where Crassus encounters the Parthians, in the middle of a sea of sand. And he's led there by a treacherous guide, Plutarch says, someone who the Romans thought was working for them, but was instead working for their enemy. And he leads them away from the paths that might be called the scenic route, where there would be hills and valleys and rivers and places where a Roman army could sustain itself, and right into the desert, you know, the area of what's now southeastern Turkey. And this is something that the Romans will find themselves vulnerable to throughout their history, about five decades after this time, Another Roman army, following another treacherous guide, will be trapped inside the deep, dark forests of Germany in an ambush. And out of a very numerous Roman army that goes in, few legionaries will come out. This time, the treacherous guide doesn't lead them into deep, dark forests, but arid plains, where Plutarch says, not a bush, not a tree, not a hill, but a sea of sand blowing in their faces, making them sink up to their knees. And while Crassus seems to trust this guide, Plutarch says that his sub-commanders come up to him and say, you know, th this is wrong. This is no place for a Roman army to be. And Crassus apparently pays them no mind and brushes them off. So they go right to the guide and say, oh, you treacherous man, what do you think you're leading us into? And the guide says, no, really, just a little bit farther. We'll catch the Parthians unaware. And then Plutarch has a moment where he says the guide is walking through the Roman camp trying to cheer up the soldiers who are so, you know, disaffected with their situation. And he says, where do you think you are? Campania? With its streams and trees and vineyards and inns of entertainment? This is Arabia. This is Assyria. And then at night, he gets on his horse and he rides away, leaving Crassus in the middle of the desert where he will find the lead elements of the Parthian army, a small force of only about 10,000 men, but they're all cavalry, 9,000 Eurasian horse archer types, the best horse archers in the world, tribal cavalry bred to the saddle. We would think of them if we saw them today, that they were all circus trick riders, and 1,000 cataphracts, they were called, 
fully armored men on fully armored horses with big lances. They're like mounted knights. And Plutarch talks about the battle. I mean, he says that when the Romans first see this force, they don't think it looks very big and they don't think it looks very, you know, impressive. Looks like a bunch of, you know, tribal barbarians to them in their shaggy clothes. And then all of a sudden, Plutarch says, these drums start pounding, these dead-sounding Parthian drums creating sort of a, a disorder from the sonic effect. He says, and then at a command... The soldiers whip off their dull, poor-looking coverings to reveal their glimmering steel armor, at least the cataphracts. Then the horse archers, you know, go after the Roman formation. And Crassus has arrayed the Romans into a square with all the soldiers facing outward. He's given himself no flank to worry about this cavalry getting around. But he's also made himself immobile. That square doesn't move. And the Parthians just ride around it, shooting into it. And Plutarch goes, you know, way into depth over how shocking the power of the Parthian bow was. The Eurasian horse archers during this period probably had the most powerful bow in the world. Much more powerful than the one in the Mediterranean the Romans were accustomed to facing. And Plutarch says the arrows would often go right through the Roman shields, stapling oftentimes the arm of the Roman, their shield-holding arm, to the shield and sometimes even going through that right into the Roman torso, stapling, you know, the arm and the shield to the torso. He also says that the arrows were falling, you know, straight down from the sky and would often hit the Roman in the foot and then keep going right into the ground, stapling the Roman to the ground. At one point, when Crassus's son tries to, you know, exhort his men to go chase the Parthians, all they do is display their arms stapled to their shield to him and point out that their feet are stapled to the ground. And as Plutarch says, they were neither able to fight nor fly. And they were suffering terribly. He says that they were trying to pull these arrows out of their extremities, which was the part most vulnerable to the arrows, you know, that wasn't armored. And they would pull these barbed arrows out, bringing veins and nerves with the arrowhead. And he says that they were just sitting there parched. They were trapped. They were immobile. They couldn't see from the blowing dust. And they're, you know, tortured. He says they didn't get easy deaths. They're convulsing on the battlefield in pain. At one point, Crassus's son Publius leads a detachment of cavalry and light troops sort of to charge at the enemy and maybe push them back. He makes the absolute fatal mistake when you're fighting these Eurasian horse archer types and pursues what he thinks is a retreat. That's the famous tactic that worked ever since, you know, ancient, ancient, ancient times against the Assyrians with the Scythians all the way up to the Mongols and everywhere in between. Never, ever follow the nomadic horse archers because they turn around in the saddle and shoot you while you pursue. It's a tactical maneuver that was only really mastered by these men who were born in the saddle and raised in it, and the Parthians got the honor of having it named after them. It was called the Parthian Shot, and the Romans were totally unprepared for it. They chased after these Parthians when they ran away. They got shot while they chased them, and then Crassus' son rides right into an ambush with his detachment and gets wiped out. 
he himself will be trapped on a hill by all these horse archers and realizing he's going to be captured or just die there, decides he's going to commit suicide, but he's one of the many who has an arrow through the hand, and he can't even stab himself, so he opens up his armor and has his slave stab him. Two of his sub-commanders will also commit suicide on this little hill where they're surrounded by the Parthians. The rest of the guys on the hill will break and run or die there. The Parthians will storm the hill, cut his head off, Crassus' son, ride back to the main battle where the Roman square is and parade this head around, showing it to Crassus and the troops. Even before Crassus meets his final fate that day, this is a very, very hard day for him. The shooting and the wounding and the dying continues until nightfall and the Romans are able to pull back to a nearby town, but they're trapped there. The Parthians send an emissary to the town And he says to Crassus that uh, they don't need to kill all the Romans, that they just need a deal granting them a certain amount of land, which they probably should have had geographically anyway, and a deal that you're not going to come back and invade. Crassus is wary of this and tells his troops he doesn't want to do it. The troops, who have already pretty much figured that they're dead men, see a chance, a little glimmer, a little bit of hope that they can live. And they start, Plutarch says, banging their shields together in a ruckus, making it clear that they expect Crassus to do whatever he has to do in these negotiations to save their lives. Crassus goes out to the parley with the Parthian officials, and he never comes back. There are differing accounts. He supposedly treacherously killed during negotiations, some sources making it sound like that was part of the Parthian's plan all along, let's kill Crassus while we get him to talk. Others say that violence broke out during the negotiations and Crassus took a knife in the ribs when it did. But one way or another, one of the members of the triumvirate dies in negotiations with the Parthians. We're told that the head will be filled with molten gold and used as a prop in a Parthian play. And Plutarch uses this as a morality lesson and puts words in the mouth of the Parthians that say, you just couldn't be better than everyone but two people. You had to be bigger than all of them, and that's why your head is filled with molten gold now. Regardless, his army never makes it back to Rome. It breaks up while retreating and is harried to death by the light Parthian cavalry. Some Roman units will surrender to the Parthians, intact, according to the Roman writer Pliny, and will end up fighting for the Parthians. There's even a you know, pretty strong belief among military historians that that Roman unit that the Parthians captured may have eventually found its way to China and may have fought for the Han Chinese. Chinese records talk about a foreign unit that fought in a fish-scale formation, which was the typical formation that the legionaries fought in. And not that long ago, there was even a story about the possibility of the DNA of that Roman unit ending up, you know, traceable in the you know, genetics of Western China right now. Seems a little implausible to me, but if that's true, then that's the longest lasting, perhaps, effect of that battle that can be, you know, scientifically targeted. So even though between 20 and 30,000 Romans were killed or taken prisoner in that battle. That matters less in the history books than the fact that one specific man met his end at the Battle of Cary. With Crassus gone, everything changed. 
He was the richest man in Rome. It would be strange, wouldn't it, if his death didn't affect things greatly? And it did. I mean, this was the great hoarder of favors. This guy had a huge client base of people that owed him allegiance in the Roman world. I mean, nominally, his son should have gotten some of that, supposedly, but that's not how it worked. These people who owed favors and money and payback to Crassus now streamed toward the other options available. Some went to Caesar. Some went to Pompey. Some actually went to the side of the Senate. The exquisite power-sharing balancing act that was the first triumvirate disintegrated on that Mesopotamian battlefield. It was predicated on the idea that any two of the most powerful people in Rome could check the ambition of the third if someone's ambition got out of control. With Crassus gone, there was no third. It was now Pompey and Caesar, who now no longer have any connection with each other through marriage. That's a very different dynamic at play. The ancient historian Appian picks up the narrative from here. He writes, quote, Now that the marriage connection was broken, everyone was afraid that Caesar and Pompey, with their great armies, would very soon quarrel, particularly as the Republic had for some time been in a chaotic and unmanageable state. The magistrates were elected by violence or corruption, with criminal fanaticism and the use of stones and swords. The shameless offering and accepting of bribes now reached extreme levels, and the voters themselves came higher to the elections. There was even an instance of a stake of 800 talents, a ton of money, by the way, deposited in connection with a consular election. The consuls who were elected each year gave up hope of commanding armies and campaigning anywhere because they were shut out by the monopoly of power exercised by these three men, now two, of course, with Crassus's death. And the more degenerate among them made their profits instead from the treasury of the state and the election of their successors. For these reasons, honest men had altogether abandoned holding office, so that on one occasion the city was actually without magistrates for eight months because of chaos of this sort, with Pompey conniving at the situation because he wanted to create the need for a dictatorship. End quote. Appian goes on to say that there was a growing mood in the city that it was going to take a single holder of power to fix the problems. The political chaos, the degeneracy of the political system. And this is the year 52 BCE, a year that the Roman sources say debuted with all sorts of bad signs. You know, the ancient people were forever on the lookout for portents and signs and prophecies and as... Author Anthony Everett writes, quote, The year 52 got off to a gloomy start. No office holders had been elected in the confusion of the previous year. New Year's Day fell on a market day, an unfavorable sign, and portents were reported. Wolves were seen in Rome, and dogs were heard howling at night. A statue of Mars sweated. A storm with thunderbolts raged over the city, knocking down images of the gods and taking some lives. Then, on January 20th, an event took place which lifted such a load of fear and loathing from Cicero's mind and gave him such pleasure that in future years he regularly celebrated the anniversary of what he called the Battle of Bovilli. The Battle of Bovilli is not an official battle. It's a gang war. It's a war between the two most powerful gang leaders in Rome, our friend Clodius, 
the radical tribune of the plebs who had his noble standing legally changed so that he could be a tribune of the people and exercise that authority that had gotten Rome into such trouble since the days of you know, Tiberius Gracchus. And Milo, the Senate oligarchy's counterweight to Clodius. Remember, if Clodius is starting a gang that's terrorizing the city on behalf of the people... The oligarchy had their own gang. And one day, Clodius and his followers are marching one way on the Appian Way, the main road in Rome. And Milo and his followers are marching the other way. And they pass each other on the street. Clodius's gang is significantly smaller, includes about 30 slaves, the sources say, armed with swords. And he and his entourage march past Milo and his entourage, which is much larger and includes some gladiators, and they sort of sneer at each other and glare at each other. And then we're told that as the tails of the two columns meet, you know, they're almost past each other, and the last people in each line meet, words are exchanged, and a brawl breaks out, and Clodius supposedly looks back from his horse with a glare to see what's going on, and one of the gladiators or a slave hurls a javelin at him or knifes him in the back. Sources differ. Now, this doesn't kill Clodius, but violence instantly breaks out, and he's quickly hustled to a nearby inn to be treated, bandaged, fixed up, what have you. But Milo and his followers break in, and they drag him out into the street, and they kill him. The ancient sources say Clodius's death happens right by a shrine to the good goddess. If you recall, it was Clodius dressing up as a woman at the festival of the good goddess that profaned that religious festival. And some sources suggest that this may be the good goddess reaping her revenge on the sacrilegious tribune of the plebs. Clodius' body is thrown into a ditch and found later by a senator who has it taken back to the city. And he quickly runs from Rome, figuring, "Uh uh-oh, I don't want to be there when the people find out what happened to Clodius. They bring the body to his house. His wife washes it and has people come and look at the wound. She's showing off what Milo and his thugs did to her husband. Some tribunes show up to her house. They all decide to bring Clodius's body down to the Senate house and show the people up in the forum what happened. Here's what Appian writes, quote, As the news of the event circulated in Rome, the stunned population stayed up all night in the forum, and in the morning Clodius's body was displayed on the rostra. It was then snatched by Clodius's associates and some of the tribunes and a crowd of others along with them and carried into the Senate house, either to do him honor because he was of a senatorial family or to reproach the Senate for their failure to act. The more reckless of the crowd heaped up the benches and ceremonial seats of the senators to make him a funeral pyre, and its flames consumed not only Clodius, but also the Senate house and many dwellings in the neighborhood. End quote. Modern author Tom Holland describes in his own words the reaction when Clodius' death is discovered and made known to the people of Rome. Quote, After his body had been found and brought back to Rome, the news of his murder spread quickly from crossroads to crossroad. The slums began to echo with wails of lamentation. Soon crowds were massing outside Clodius's mansion on the Palatine. Fulvia, that's Clodius's wife, showed them the gashed body of her husband, carefully pointing out each wound. The mob howled in misery and rage. The next day, the corpse of the people's hero was borne from the Palatine across the forum and laid on the rostra. Meanwhile, in the neighboring Senate house, benches were kicked over, tables smashed, and clerical records plundered. Then, on the floor of the chamber, a pyre was raised. 
Clodius was laid upon it. A torch was brought. More than thirty years had passed since the destruction of Jupiter's temple on the Capitol, warning the Roman people of coming catastrophe. Now once again, the forum was lit a violent red. In the flickering glare, battles between the partisans of Clodius and those of his murderer reached a new and intoxicating pitch of savagery. Still the flames raged. As the Senate House crashed into blackened ruin, they spread to a neighboring monument, the Basilica Porcia. Here was where Rome's first permanent law court had been built, by an ancestor of Cato, no less. In a spectacle loaded with pointed and deliberate symbolism, it too was consumed. That night, when Clodius's partisans feasted in honor of their dead leader, they did so amid the ashes of the Senate's authority. End quote. I always try to imagine how we would react here in the United States if the situation that happened when Clodius died happened here. Imagine some radical leader that the poor adores is murdered, you know, seemingly by the other side in our society, the rich and the powerful, and they take the corpse of their dead leader and they bring it to the Senate or the House of Representatives and they light it on fire and the whole place goes up in flames. And then I realized something like that would never happen because, of course, there'd be tons of security and tons of police and everything that would prevent it. That's exactly what the city of Rome didn't have. There was no police force, and the army wasn't allowed in the city. Who could stop this amazing amount of civil unrest that now had lit a fire in the you know, heart of Rome that was consuming some of its most important buildings and a very, very angry crowd out for blood? The Roman oligarchy did what it tended to do in situations like this. It proclaimed an emergency and looked for some strong man who could deal with it. There was really only one candidate, Pompey. Once again, author Tom Holland does a good job bringing the situation in the post-Clodius chaos into an understandable light for we modern people. He writes, quote, Now at last, Pompey's moment had come. Even Cato, gazing at the charred shell of his ancestor's monument, had to accept that. Anything was preferable to anarchy. He still could not bring himself to accept a dictatorship, but proposed as a compromise that Pompey should serve for the year as sole consul. The paradoxical nature of such an office was indication enough of the monstrous nature of the times. The Senate met in Pompey's theater, and on Bibulus's motion, invited the great man to rescue the Republic. Pompey obliged with brisk and military efficiency. For the first time since the Civil War, armed troops were marched into Rome. The gangs of Clodius and Milo proved no match for Pompey's legionaries. Milo himself was speedily put on trial. Since the charge was the murder of Clodius, Cicero leapt at the chance to defend him. It was his hope, in such a cause, to deliver the speech of his life. His opportunity came on the last day of the trial. That morning, he crossed from his mansion on the Palatine to the law courts. Eerie and unprecedented silence cloaked the city. All the shops had been boarded up. Guards had been posted on the corner of every street. Pompey himself was stationed beside the law courts, surrounded by a wall of troops, the sun glinting off the steel of their helmets, and this in the Forum, the very heart of Rome. Cicero, taken aback by the spectacle, lost his nerve. His speech was delivered, we are told by one source, without his customary assurance. Others claimed that he could barely stammer so much as a word. End quote. What had happened, essentially, was at Milo's trial, both sides were there, including the people who were so worked up over Clodius's death. 
and the jeering and the catcalls and the threats and the the bad vibe was such that it freaked Cicero out. Milo, who had brought Cicero in as his lawyer, knew that the situation was going to be extremely tense and had suggested that Cicero come early. Look at the crowd, look at the soldiers ringed around the forum for protection and get used to the tense situation before he tried his legal defense. It didn't work. Cicero gave what everyone, including Cicero, considers his worst performance of his life. Milo was found guilty. He goes off into exile. And Pompey is left with an enormous amount of power. This is where it becomes Caesar and Pompey as the two most powerful elements in the Roman state. At the moment, it looks as though Pompey himself has gotten the job of this single, sole, powerful person in Rome. There was still a very formidable person currently fighting the Celtic peoples in Gaul who would have something to say about that. And here the story gets extremely complex. And one of the reasons why is because the many historians from the you know time this happened and all the way up to our time now have all sorts of theories about what the motivations were and what people were thinking because there's no way to really get into their heads. And so people speculate about motivations. What does happen in this period is finally we get the words of one of the participants directly, besides Cicero. We've had Cicero's now for some time. But now the writings of the great Julius Caesar begin to come into play. Caesar writes about the decline in the relationship between the two triumvirate members that are still left between the years 52 and 50 BCE. Now, his is not an unbiased view, obviously, but he'll talk about how he tried to be lenient and how he tried to simply protect himself while doing what was best for Rome. And a lot of historians agree with that. Some of the ancient historians suggest, though, that this was just a personal ego match between he and Pompey, saying that Pompey could have no one as great as himself, and Caesar couldn't have anyone greater than him. You also hear that this is an ambition question, that Caesar's dignitas was being abused. And it gets back to the motivations of ancient Roman great figures, you know, since ancient Roman history. They'd always been motivated by ambition and family honor and achievement. This is something that had worked in Rome's favor for a very long time. We compared it to a giant game, a king of the mountain, with all of Rome's most ambitious August figures fighting it out for supremacy. That created a competition that often benefited Rome. This was the double-edged sword version of that, though now you see the downside. These two great men would not back down. Their dignity wouldn't allow it. Their honor wouldn't allow it. Their sense of achievement and what they were personally due wouldn't allow it. Caesar was mad as heck. He couldn't believe that he was going to perhaps face prosecution in Rome's law courts after all he had done for Rome. He's out there essentially bringing the huge area that's modern-day France into Rome's orbit. All the money that that means, all the slaves, it's a massive amount of cash. And for this, the Senate's going to prosecute him? And quickly, it boils down to that. You see, for years now, Cato's been wanting to get Caesar into law courts. That's how, after all, many careers in politics are ruined in Rome during this period. You get him in there, you charge him with all kinds of things, you convince him, and they're forced to you know, move off into exile. This is the plan, 
many in the oligarchic Senate have for Caesar. They can't do it to him now while he commands these troops in Gaul. He's a government official, so he's immune. But once that's over with, they're going to get him. Caesar knows this. He sees the trap. So he begins negotiations with the Senate and Pompey, who is quickly moving into the Senate's orbit. He's proved to be a highly manipulatable character throughout this whole story and through all sorts of honors and praise and, you know, grantings of emergency powers and everything. They're bringing Pompey into their camp. He sort of seems to want to stay with Caesar, but, you know, he can be pushed around a little bit. And the Senate keeps trying all sorts of political tricks to make sure that Caesar's command and government job lapses. And when it lapses, they're going to get him. Caesar keeps trying to do the same thing. He's buying tribunes and government officials pushing his position in Rome, trying to get an extension. He wants the job he has now to extend right up to the next job so that there's never that period where he's not a government official. He wants to make sure that there is no period where he's open to being prosecuted by the Senate. And this becomes the great sticking point. This and the question of armies. Caesar has an army. Pompey has an army. And the Senate desperately wants Caesar to give his army up. After all, you're a lot more vulnerable without a whole bunch of veteran killer legionaries with you. Caesar basically says, I'll give up my army if Pompey will give up his. And it actually devolves into a question of who'll give up their armies first. I'll give up mine if you'll give up yours first. Pompey says the same thing. And that becomes the point at which things stick. And the histories really make it seem clear that some sort of a compromise should and could have been reached. There were lots of proposals for deals that should have allowed a very tense situation to be diffused. This appears to me to be like a high-risk game of brinksmanship where everyone expects the other side eventually to back down. But there's one hardcore group within the Senate who seems unwilling to bend at all, as if they see this as the last chance to stop Caesar, and they want the confrontation to occur, either because they think Caesar will back down in the game of brinksmanship, or that if he won't, This is the best chance to crush him because he's just getting more and more powerful. They're using Pompey as their tool to crush him should it be necessary. At one point, Pompey's asked, you know, what would he do if Caesar came down here? Because Pompey has an army, as we've said, but his army's in Spain. If Caesar acted quickly, how would Pompey defend the Republic? And Pompey famously says that he has but to stamp his feet and armies of infantry and cavalry will appear from the soil. Meanwhile, the Senate is now getting involved in this question of whose army should be disbanded first. And all sorts of jockeying begins to happen in the famous Roman political you know, arena between a lot of people whose motivations you cannot fathom. Many of them are bought and bribed. In fact, Caesar, you know, who's away in Gaul, is doing all of his fighting in the Senate through intermediaries. One of his intermediaries is Curio. Remember, this is the same Curio that Cicero had once called Little Miss Curio, the member of the smart set, the cool crowd. Well, now he's all grown up. He's representing Caesar now as tribune of the people, and the only thing left over from those wild party days are the terrible debts he incurred trying to maintain that you know, elaborate partying lifestyle. We're told by the ancient sources 
that in payment for coming over to Caesar's side and advocating for him, Caesar wipes all of his debts clean. All that money Caesar's gotten from conquering Gaul, he is pouring into Rome's political system, and he has advocates in the Senate fighting for his cause. A small group of conservative oligarchs are on the other side. Now, Cato is the most formidable among them, but they have a a number of other from very prominent families. The Roman historian Ronald Syme says the Senate at this time is composed of a few of those guys that he calls rash but unstable and the other timid and venal. As we said, it's almost like a reverse Darwinian process that's gone on in the Senate. And most of the people in it these days seem more like placeholders, people happy to glad hand with the public, get a political position, make a lot of money off of it if they can, get some personal fame and fortune. But they're not there to make the hard decisions. And the people who are making the hard decisions aren't doing it for the good of Rome. They want Caesar destroyed. And so all the compromises being proposed get shot down. Finally, the consul, a guy named Marcellus who wants Caesar destroyed badly, gets the Senate on his side by holding a vote. He asks the Senate, should Caesar be forced to disband his legions? The Senate votes yes. That kind of makes Caesar out to be an outlaw if he doesn't do it, right? Then Marcellus says, should Pompey be required to disband his legions? And the Senate says no. Marcellus seems to have co-opted all the main parts of Roman society except for the people onto the side against Caesar. But then Caesar's hired hand, Curio, the tribune of the plebs, gets out there and throws a third vote in. He goes, should both men disband their legions? And the Senate votes 370 to 22 that both men should disband their legions simultaneously. So the consul Marcellus has had all of his plans monkey-wrenched by Curio and his political machinations. Marcellus yells out, Fine! Be slaves of Caesar then! And Curio goes out to the public, who showers him with flowers and garlands, we're told, for, you know, coming up with the compromise solution that, you know, averts civil war. He's a hero. He stopped everything in its tracks. The game of brinksmanship is over. The game of chicken didn't end with the train hitting somebody. Except Marcellus isn't done. He's the consul, and with the other consul, he marches into the Senate House as a rumor all of a sudden and very suspiciously sweeps Rome that Caesar's already on his way. This is all a moot point. Caesar's attacking. Plutarch says that Marcellus then stood up and said, quote, that he would not sit there hearing speeches when he saw ten legions already passing the Alps on their march toward the city, but that on his own authority would send someone to oppose them in defense of the country, end quote. In other words, to hell with your overwhelming vote for peace. I hear that Caesar's on his way. I'm going to take care of it. How's he going to take care of it? Well, there's only one guy who has any troops to oppose Caesar, and that's Pompey. And that's who Marcellus goes to. Plutarch says that the crowd and the people instantly go into mourning, seeing a public calamity. Marcellus, Plutarch says, accompanied by the Senate, goes to Pompey's house and hands him a sword and tells him, according to Appian, quote, I command you, I and my colleague here, to take the field against Caesar on behalf of our country. And for this purpose, we grant you command of the forces which are now at Capua, or elsewhere in Italy, and of any others you may wish to raise. Pompey has been portrayed many different ways with the response that he gives. To me, it looks as though it's a combination of being stunned 
and reluctant to realize that this game of brinksmanship is actually going to come to the point where a train hits someone. And he throws out the caveat there while he accepts the sword and the command and says, if there is no better way. Cicero, too, was trying to find a better way. He was desperately trying to find some sort of compromise position between Caesar and Pompey and Caesar in the Senate that would allow things to avoid the worst-case scenario. He writes letters to friends saying, I'm caught in the middle, I don't know what to do, and that both men were writing to him saying he was their best friend in the world. So he's trying to work out some sort of a deal to, you know, broker peace. Cato, on the other hand, is not interested in peace at all. The stoic, unbending, moralist defender of the old senatorial authority has been warning that Caesar was a tyrant in waiting for years now. Back when the Senate was celebrating Caesar's victories over the Gauls and the Britons because they figured they'd never have to worry about the Gauls ever troubling Italy again, Cato famously told them, you shouldn't be worried about the Gauls and the Britons who are being defeated. You need to be afraid of the general who's defeating them. These sort of predictions now make Cato out to be a prophet, and Pompey even says as much. This gives him the credibility that the anti-Caesarian forces look to for leadership. After all, it's not like they have a Senate full of great figures. Cato's the best they've got, and he doesn't have any armies. And to be honest, neither does Pompey, and this turns out to be a bit of a problem. It also shows how much the events that were happening, you know, at this time, the very late days of 50 BCE into the very early days of 49 BCE, how much the events were moving so fast that people were not ready for what happened. Pompey had famously said that he could stamp his feet and make armies appear. When Cato says that Pompey should be given all the military authority to stop Caesar, the armies weren't there. Oh, yeah, Pompey had an army, but it was in Spain, and he wasn't having very much luck recruiting them from Italy. The people didn't want to take part in a civil war. They didn't want to fight Caesar, who was such a popularity champion anyway. And now Pompey and the Senate found themselves completely unprepared for a conflict with Caesar, but a conflict that they were absolutely insisting had to happen. Cato famously told them then that if you listen to me in the past— you wouldn't have all put so much power in the hands of one man that you've now come to fear, nor would you have to put all the power in the hands of another one to stop him. Cato was just as perturbed by the idea that Pompey was going to get all this power and authority in order to stop another guy who had too much power and authority. To Cato, they both looked like threats to the Senate. But as he said famously also, that the same men who do great evils also know how to cure them. The final face-off happened on January 1st, 49 BCE. Remember, the calendar's a little screwed up. Rome's having some calendar problems at this time, but the accepted date is January 1st, 49. This is when Caesar's representative to the Senate, the famous Mark Antony of later on in this story, gives Caesar's final deal to the Senate. And it's basically that both sides will disband their legions and they will turn over to the people the question of what's to be done. It's such a conciliatory position that the two consuls who are firmly in Cato and the Senate's camp try to keep it from being read to the people. They're afraid the people will hear it and be convinced that Caesar's not as bad of a guy as the Senate's playing him out to be. 
Quickly, the consuls get a vote passed, though, telling Caesar's representative that the deal is this. Caesar lays down his legions right now without the state doing anything, or he's an outlaw. Then they tell Mark Antony to get out of the Senate chambers because they can't guarantee his safety. Now, Mark Antony is a tribune, tribune of the people. His person is untouchable. That's the ancient law of the land. When he hears that he needs to leave, he starts screaming. Appian says, quote, The consuls Marcellus and Lentulus ordered Antony and his followers to leave the chamber in case they came to some harm in spite of being tribunes. At this, Antony leapt up in a fury from his seat and with a great shout and called upon the gods to witness against the consuls that violence was being done to the office of tribune, although this was sacred and inviolable, and that he and his colleagues were being forcibly expelled for proposing a motion that they thought in the public interest, although they'd caused no bloodshed or defilement. Appian says, with these words, he rushed out like a man possessed, prophesizing war, slaughter, prescriptions, exile, confiscation of property, and all the other ills that were about to suffer, and calling down solemn curses on those who were responsible. End quote. The sources say that as Mark Antony and his men left the Senate, he and his compatriots can already see legionaries under Pompey's command taking positions around the forum. And it's hard to know whether Antony's anger and outburst was completely legitimate, because after all, the tensions were there, the mood was ripe, it certainly could have been. Looked as if the Senate didn't care what sort of deal they were offered. They wanted Caesar's destruction, and they were willing to risk civil war to get it. It's enough to make anyone angry. At the same time, Caesar will use this violation of the rights of the tribunes of the people as his whole justification for what he's about to do. This is the occurrence that allows Caesar to make the claim that he's fighting for the Republic and liberty and the traditions of the Roman people. Look what the Senate did to the Tribune. That's illegal. That's not allowed. I'm fighting to restore, you know, the legal authority of Rome, the Republic, and the people. The Senate, of course, will say, Basically the same thing, just as soon as Caesar violates the law by not disbanding his legions. Mark Antony and his compatriots disguise themselves as slaves, make their way in a wagon quickly northward to Caesar. Caesar receives them in this disguise, brings them out to his legionaries and shows his legionaries what the tribunes of the people were forced to do in order to get away with their lives. In other words, again, making his case that he has the proper side in this war about to happen, and that if his legionaries stick with him, they're fighting on the right side. He also said, look at what these senators in Rome, you know, think of you. Men who put their lives on the line for years fighting to enhance the prestige and the circumstances of the Republic, and now they declare you outlaws, essentially molding his cause with theirs. We're told that after addressing his troops, Caesar secretly gives one of his units an order to cross the border and seize an important town, a strategically important city. Meanwhile, he essentially goes to a party 
where he meets and greets and eats and has a nice calm conversation with everybody and then proceeds to retire to bed as the sun's going down. And when everybody thinks he's gone into his tent asleep, no doubt many spies watching, he slips out in disguise, gets in a wagon, catches up with the troops he sent south, and halts with his troops at a tiny little stream called the Rubicon. And the Rubicon is the border between the province that Caesar was legally put in charge of and Italy, which the Senate is legally in charge of. Caesar's not allowed to cross that stream with troops, not allowed to cross that stream as a general. It's fascinating to consider what was going through his mind at this time where he and all of the men with him completely understood the ramifications of what he was about to do. You know that the step you're about to make, a step that might take five seconds to order, will change your life, the life of everyone in the known world of your day, and to feel the weight of generations yet unborn on your shoulders. Churchill talked about something similar, where you're in one of those rare positions where you know that you're responsible for things that will happen as a result of your decisions now, drifting off into the mists of future history. Caesar felt the weight on his shoulders. And then we're told in one of the great lines of history, says, Let the die be cast! And crosses that boundary between his province and the area where the Senate had legal control. And he crossed it with the mechanism that he needed to overthrow that control. The man who had always trusted so heavily in his own luck was making the gamble of the ages. It would later be said of Caesar that he was the only sober man who ever tried to overthrow a republic. That's what crossing the Rubicon meant. Caesar had just signed his papers confirming that there was a revolt. And he was revolting in the name of protecting Rome. The people that were opposing him had the exact same slogan. Caesar had only crossed the Rubicon with a small force, a single legion, perhaps slightly under about 5,000 men. The majority of his troops were too far away to bring forward quickly, and Caesar was operating with his usual speed. And Caesar's speed was one of his best qualities as a general. It had the effect of keeping his opponents off balance and creating all sorts of opportunities for him because no one was prepared for the speed at which he did anything, right? Think, move, fight. In this case... His crossing of the Rubicon is made known in Rome very quickly, and immediately everyone goes crazy. First of all, as is typical in war, and something Caesar probably counted on, the rumors get magnified. By the time word reaches Rome, Caesar's not crossing the Rubicon with one legion. He's coming with the whole army. What's more, everyone has their own worst fears what this means, and everybody's thinking back to the earlier civil war with Marius and Sulla. What does that mean? That means all the people with money, the optimates, the senatorial oligarchy, they figure their heads are going to get chopped off. So they run to Pompey. After all, that's the guy who they've kind of 
given ultimate authority to act on their behalf. And they go to Pompey and they say, what should we do? And he says, well, let me see now. I have these uh, two legions. And he did have two legions. But there was a catch to the two legions Pompey had. They had both recently been taken from Caesar's troops. Now, Pompey's spies had told him, ah, they don't like Caesar. Don't worry. They'll fight for you just fine. That turned out to be wrong. They, like almost everyone who ever fought for Caesar, were very pro-Caesar. He tended to overpay. He was a soldier's general. Pompey did not feel like he could use those legions against Caesar and count on them. So he tells the people, well, listen, uh, I can get more troops here, there, and the other place. And all of a sudden, the people realize that they've kind of been misled by Pompey. Pompey had told Cicero right before this time he didn't even think Caesar would do anything like this. Now the scenario that he just recently couldn't even envision happening was happening. The people wanted to know where these troops were. Remember? You told us you could just stamp the ground and they'd come up, one guy said. Well, stamp! Then another said, Pompey, you've deceived us. And Pompey said, the troops are there. You just have to leave Italy. And this turned out to be the catch. Pompey did have troops. Remember, the whole east had sort of been put into his camp when he went over there and did all his conquests. We told you the Roman system was still heavily reliant upon something that's called a client system. That's sort of the mafia-godfather relationship with all of his dependents. And then the godfather says to them, sure, I'll do you a favor. Someday, of course, I might need a favor, though, and when I do, I'll expect you there. And this was Pompey's day to call in all the favors. He told all these kings of the East who were his personal clients, which meant all of their subjects were his personal clients, get your armies out there, start putting them together, and meet me in Greece. These people owed him so much money, by the way, that apparently they were paying unbelievable amounts of money every month to Pompey just to cover a percentage of the interest they owed him. And it was famously said of Pompey that he wasn't even getting all the money he was owed, but he was getting so much money he didn't care that he wasn't getting all the money he was owed. Those people were probably happy to take a little off the price that they owed him in the principle by simply showing up at the battlefield. And he called in all these chits now. Pompey's armies were starting to coalesce in the east. Pompey himself, though, was still in Italy with whatever troops he had moving south, because that's what Caesar was doing, and he was trying to keep a nice distance between himself and Caesar. There were a lot of the aristocratic class following him, too. They were getting out of Rome, too. It wasn't going to be safe, perhaps. And Pompey made a statement, which sounds a lot like something you might hear today. He said anybody who didn't follow him down south was against him. You know, anyone who wasn't actually with him was against him. Caesar was adopting the complete opposite strategy. He famously said that anyone who wasn't actively with Pompey was on his side, thereby tying in all the neutrals. Caesar's whole approach to this war that was breaking out is completely novel and unusual. And historians have argued ever since whether this is because this is who Caesar was as a man and that this strategy was based on the way he saw the world and his personal code and conduct and morals, or whether it's all a cynical strategy designed to, you know, win a war where getting the most number of your countrymen to move over to your position is the way you win. Caesar practiced a strategy of mercy. Now, remember, this is a man 
who you would see flashes of this in his wars against the Germans and the Gauls, but he could be terribly cruel against the barbarians. You also see flashes of this personality earlier on. For example, during the Catiline conspiracy trials where everybody wants to kill these conspirators and Caesar's the lone man who stands up and says, maybe we shouldn't execute him. That's against the rules. Is that Caesar's famous clemency? Because he's got a certain morality that seems almost, you know, modern in terms of its pacifist nature, very anti-Roman. Other historians will say, to heck with that. He was worried he was going to be executed because he might have been in on that crime. He was going to do something like that. That's a self-serving tactical maneuver. So it depends on how you see Caesar. There's a letter, and it's remarkable that something like this has even come down to us, where Caesar is telling Cicero about this strategy of his. And he's contrasting it with the strategy of the last guy who's kind of in the position Caesar's in now, the famous, you know, dictator Sulla, who came in and lopped off the heads of all his opponents and everything. And what Caesar's basically saying in this letter to Cicero is his strategy is based on having seen how poorly that Sulla strategy worked out. Everyone was still mad at everybody else. There were old scores to settle. Caesar was going to do it a different way. He told Cicero, quote, Let us see if in this way we can willingly win the support of all and gain a permanent victory, since through their cruelty others have been unable to escape hatred or make their victory lasting, save for Lucius Sulla, and I do not intend to imitate him. This is a new way of conquest. We grow strong through pity and generosity. End quote. What an interesting line. We grow strong through pity and generosity. What he means is he's going around, and whenever he's running into Roman soldiers, he's doing everything he can to kill as few of them as possible. When they fall into his hands, he lets them go. Early on in this conflict, he'll run into one of his senatorial bitter enemies, someone who's worked against him from day one. Caesar had every right to hate this person, and he fights a battle, takes a town. The guy falls into his hands. Caesar, first of all, tells the guy's army, any of you that wants to join us, we'd love to have you. Any of you who don't want to join us, no problem. You're allowed to leave. And then, as he said several times, he tells them to just make sure that if they have any gratitude for him sparing their lives to tell their friends in Pompey's army what he did for them. Spread word of that. Let them know about Caesar's clemency. And then He looks at his enemy, the guy who's, you know, ostensibly got the Senate's authority to be there. And one, he lets him go, something the Pompeian army would never do. They were executing everyone that fell into their hands. And two, gave him back the money. This is how you know Caesar's playing a bit of a game here. This guy, Domitius Ahenobarbus, had the state treasury with him. And Caesar has not enough money at all. He's got to pay his troops. He's been giving out bribes left and right. Right before he crosses the Rubicon, he tells his troops, now, I can't pay you guys right now. I'm going to have to wait on that till I have some money. They go around and give him, you know, the equivalent of their paychecks and savings. That's how committed to him his army had become over the years of campaigning in Gaul. Now, hard up for cash like he is, he lets this Demidius guy, who's his bitter enemy, go and lets him take the cash. The ancient sources say Caesar got a lot of credit for that. Public opinion looked upon that very highly. He won a lot of converts that day with that strategy. 
there are fabulously interesting incidents mentioned where Caesar's troops would sometimes be so close to Pompey's troops and nothing really going on where the two sides would start to intermingle and fraternize. And you would see this all throughout history with armies that were, you know, enemies of each other in real life. I mean, there was fraternization in both world wars, for example, between national enemies. Here you have troops that nominally, you know, up until just recently were on the same side. They begin talking to each other. They know each other. And then Pompey's people find out about this as officers, and one of them comes riding into the camp and starts killing all of Caesar's troops that are intermingling with his own. And then he orders his own troops to find and root out any of Caesar's people there, and he kills them in front of the Pompeian soldiers publicly. Caesar comes to his camp and tells his troops to find all the Pompeian soldiers and that they can go back to their camp if they want. They can stay with him if they want. Just another one of those incidents where Caesar ends up looking like the guy who's willing to you know, grant you your life, and Pompey looks like the kind of guy you want to be real careful with in the war for the hearts and minds of Rome's civilian and military forces, Caesar was playing a ruthless game with his policies of mercy. Author Tom Holland does a good job describing how double-edged Caesar's clemency policies were because sometimes it actually belittled the person who received it. They kind of owed Caesar their life. For example, when Caesar captures Domitius... Here's what author Tom Holland says about it, quote, Hauled before Caesar by his own officers, he begged for death. Caesar refused. Instead, he sent Domitius on his way. This was only seemingly a gesture of mercy. For a citizen, there could be no more unspeakable humiliation than to owe one's life to the favor of another. Domitius, for all that he had been spared to fight another day, left Corfinium diminished and emasculated. It would be unfair to dismiss Caesar's clemency as a mere tool of policy. Domitius, if their positions had been reversed, would surely have had Caesar put to death, but it served his purposes well enough. For not only did it satisfy his own ineffable sense of superiority, but it helped to reassure neutrals everywhere that he was no second Sulla. Even his bitterest enemies, if they only submitted, could have the assurances that they would be pardoned and spared. End quote. This idea of a strategy of mercy is more complicated than it appears at first blush. Not exactly Gandhi-like. It had a sort of a knife twist to it, even in its sense of clemency. Caesar will follow Pompey all the way down to the southern you know, end of Italy, and Pompey and his forces will escape across the water. He has control of a fleet, which Caesar doesn't. He gets away for the time being. Caesar had gone into Rome by this time a couple of times, made himself dictator for short periods of time, had himself elected consul, got a few emergency things passed, raided the treasury, which the aristocratic, oligarchic, senatorial folks left Rome. They left so quickly, afraid that Caesar was coming, that they left the treasury in the city. When Caesar first got to Rome, he wanted that treasury, and as he was about to break into it, an official tried to prevent Caesar from taking the treasury. He looked at the man and said, I could kill you faster than I could threaten to kill you. And the guy backed off. In addition, Caesar raided a temple 
this got on the people's bad side. It was a negative propaganda move, but it shows you how much he needed money. He raided a temple where there was a special fund that was only supposed to be taken if the Gauls were coming again, you know, and another massive emergency invasion was happening. And Caesar justified it by saying that he had solved the Gallic problem for good. The Gauls were never coming back, so this money was not going to be needed as an insurance fund. Caesar's money problems were solved by this point. Now, the conduct of this civil war is complicated, but there are some broad trends we could go over. Very quickly, when Pompey escapes to the east, he starts raising this army that he's called in. This stuff took a lot longer than you might think. You know, messages have to be sent to all the villages all over the east. Everybody has to muster and come to one place and then move and then, you know, logistics and supplies and food. It's going to take a long time for Pompey to get his forces together to deal with Caesar. And Caesar's a guy who moves so fast. Pompey, you know, we military history nuts can't help but compare generals with other generals. And Pompey to me is like Bernard Montgomery was in the Second World War, Monty. And Monty was so good at getting the logistics in place and putting together the right number of shells and and hoarding your forces and getting everything ready and administratively just setting everything up so it's just right and perfect and doing a great job with that. But Pompey wasn't prepared for someone like Caesar who was like Patton. And he just moved and consistently upset your plans with the speed of action. But Caesar had an issue that Pompey didn't have to worry about. Pompey didn't have any other armies to worry about but Caesar's. Caesar had Pompey in the east, and he had Pompey behind him. Remember, Pompey's legions were in Spain. Spain was to Caesar's rear. Caesar was going to be in a vice. As soon as Pompey got an army together in the east, he'd have one on both sides. So Caesar, with an amazing amount of speed, took his army to Spain and beat the hell out of Pompey's forces there. It should be pointed out he fought some tough battles. He had some other battles where he turned the tables on Pompey's forces and actually got a whole army simply cut off from its water supply. He didn't even attack them. He just waited until they came to him meekly and said, okay, we're out of water. I I guess we're in your power. And he let them all go. This policy of clemency is designed to make the Roman state, you know, decide that he's not this ogre that he's been portrayed to be. And psychologically, for during the war, if, you know, you're fighting me and you think you might like to surrender, come on over. We won't kill you. Heck, we won't even make you stay. Heck, we might even send you away with some money. You surrender a lot more easily to a guy like that a person who has that sort of reputation, than you do to someone like Pompey, who's known for executing the people on the other end of the battlefield if they fall into his power. Caesar's work in this war on a number of levels. Eventually, Caesar's forces are back in Italy, and he starts to cross the Adriatic, because you got to cross from what's Italy into what's now, you know, Albania and that whole area. It's called Epirus. you got to cross over the Adriatic Sea right there, and he succeeds in the winter, a very bad time of year to do this with a lot of storms, succeeds in getting half his army across. The fleet goes back for the second half and gets caught in a storm and is destroyed. So now Caesar's got like 15,000 men on one side and 15,000 men on the other. This is where a certain tendency of Pompey in this war starts becoming a real problem. He's starting to show his age. He was already a guy who liked to have time to plan and get everything, you know, just so, like I said earlier. But now he's becoming sluggish. And the sources say that people like Cicero, who periodically visited Pompey 
and his forces wrote to a friend about Pompey's condition and his army, quote, How utterly down he is! No courage, no plan, no forces, no energy! End quote. And if Pompey hadn't been so sluggish, he could have taken advantage of the fact that only a fraction of Caesar's forces were opposed to him. He didn't do anything. He kind of sat there. And one of the elements that makes this civil war so fabulously interesting from a military history viewpoint is that the Romans were famous battlefield builders. You know, there are, there are shots of statues and, and carvings of Roman soldiers with their weapons stacked in the corner, they in full armor, but lifting all sorts of stones and having mortar and things where they're putting walls together. The Roman armies beat a heck of a lot of opponents by outfortifying them on the battlefield. Because most armies didn't do any of that stuff. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit of digging here and there. Or what's called plashing, where you put little boards up and create a little bit of a palisade. The Romans would build flat-out forts every night when they were going to sleep. You know, when the army was on camp, they built a little mini castle to protect it. Imagine what 35,000 men could do in a month. Well, Caesar showed that time and again when he was fighting the Celts in Gaul. He was doing miles of walls that he would build with his troops to, you know, block in barbarian, you know, settlements. So when his army and Pompey's army start facing each other, any time they're camped out with any time between them, both armies are out there building walls and towers and fortifications of all kinds. They're digging trenches. They're putting up these giant multi-spiked things that um, are like, imagine a tree trunk that sharpened to pencil sharpness and then, you know, stacked in all kinds of crazy directions. And when these Roman armies sat in place, the generals put their troops to work building stuff when they weren't actually fighting. And so Caesar and Pompey face off against each other and it looks like World War I, or really what it really looks like is the latter stages of the American Civil War, when the South, you know, was stuck in place and their forces would really fortify areas and basically dare the North to assault them. Well, in these battles where it was Roman legionary against Roman legionary, both sides built these giant fortifications. And the battle that Caesar fights with Pompey on the coast there in the Adriatic is a battle that happens in the middle of these two walled you know, fortifications that go on for miles. Caesar's goes on for 17 miles. And when he and Pompey realize that they're going to have like a battle of wall creation, they both start looking off in the distance. They'll see a hill, for example, that's a mile away. And they'll have a race to see whose wall can be built so that it can incorporate that hill into its perimeter. It's fascinating stuff from a military history viewpoint. And this first giant battle between Pompey and Caesar will be fought in the spaces between the walls in one of these settlements. Caesar having many less troops than Pompey already, but Caesar's troops being incomparably better. And everyone knows it. There's no secret that Pompey has to have time to train his troops and get them up to speed, and then still probably has to have, you know, 1.5 or 2 legionaries for any one of Caesar's one. That's how much his are worth. And the battles themselves between the legionaries will be fought in between the walls, in the corridors that divide them for miles upon miles. Eventually, some deserters will come from Caesar's camp over to Pompey's camp and give him information about a weakness in Caesar's line. Pompey will mass a bunch of his forces, attack this weak rampart, blow through it. His cavalry will get around Caesar's rear. Caesar's legionaries will start running away in panic. 
As a matter of fact, Caesar attempts a maneuver he did many times in the wars in Gaul, and he goes out there on foot and tries to stop the fleeing soldiers himself. And there are several stories, you know, from different authors, but one of them maybe tries to stab him in order to continue his retreat, and it has his arm cut off by one of Caesar's bodyguards. Another, Caesar grabs the standard from him as he's running away, but he just lets Caesar have the standard and keeps running. He could do nothing to stem the rout. And this was likely to be it, because the rout is where all the damage is done. When well-equipped armies are facing off, you know, head-to-head, shield-to-shield, generally the casualties are less than what you might imagine. But they get truly outrageous once one army turns away and scatters. That's what Caesar's army had done. And all Pompey had to do now was ride behind his fleeing men and pick them off one by one, and Caesar would have, you know, so few troops left the war would be a foregone conclusion. But Pompey doesn't follow up. Is it sluggishness? Is he afraid of a trap by Caesar? Several ideas were thrown out there. But what basically happens is he throws away a chance at ultimate victory. Caesar says himself that Pompey would have won that day had his army been commanded by more of a winner. Caesar will live to fight another day. Pompey and his supporters don't realize, though, that they've blown the victory. That's hindsight. At the time, the mood in Pompey's camp was euphoric. They thought that this was victory and that pretty soon Caesar's starving and hungry and not-so-well-supplied troops would come dribbling into Pompey's camp and that support for Caesar would simply collapse. Pompey's whole plan was to foster that. In typical Pompey, administrative genius fashion, he had supplies coming to his army from every direction. Every road was clogged with food and equipment and all sorts of things so that his army would have everything it needed to comfortably remain in the field. And his plan, we're told, was to simply just sit there and starve Caesar out. A strategy of attrition. And that had another side benefit that the ancient authors make clear was something that was becoming important to Pompey. And that's that it wouldn't force more Romans to kill other Romans. After the battle that was just fought, guys like Cato were said to be wandering the killing grounds and seeing legionaries next to dead legionaries that had killed each other forced him to hide his head in his toga and cry. It was very hard for a lot of these Romans, especially Romans who took the old ideas of the Republic very seriously, and especially those who had commanded Roman troops in battle, they found it very hard to watch them kill each other. There were people who were less sympathetic, though, in Pompey's camp, and they were very powerful. You see, the aristocratic power brokers who had been willing to push this game of chicken over the edge into the abyss because they hated Caesar so much were in Pompey's camp with him. Men who styled themselves as you know, the equivalent of kings. And they were putting a lot of pressure on Pompey to just finish this thing up. They didn't want a war of attrition. They wanted him to go in there and blitzkrieg what was left of Caesar's armies and bring Caesar's head, you know, on a pike, probably. These are men who were already making up a list of the people in Rome they were going to punish when they got back there. These were guys who were living like bazillionaires on campaign with Pompey. Special tents, you know, costly silverware, unbelievable meals, carpets. I mean, this was Rome's super-rich elite. And they didn't want to sit there, you know, waiting around for potentially months 
waiting for Caesar's legionaries to capitulate. In fact, they were so hard on Pompey in their disagreements over his, you know, waited out, starve him out strategy, that they actually accused him of simply doing that strategy because he wanted to continue to have, you know, command over them. He liked supreme control, and the longer it took to wipe Caesar out, the longer he got to have that power. This is the sort of goading he was getting. Eventually, he gave into it. And he gave Caesar an opportunity for battle in Greece, near a place called Pharsalus. And Caesar could tell that Pompey was getting this sort of pressure to go against his natural instincts because Caesar knew that Pompey didn't want to fight him. Caesar knew the intelligent thing when you controlled, you know, all the water around and all the roadways and all the supplies was to wait Caesar out. The one chance Caesar had was that Pompey would stand and fight. Pompey's plan was pretty easy to understand. He had a lot more cavalry than Caesar, and the plan was to use it. Not just that. But if you believe the ancient sources who are harping on this newfound desire not to kill, you know, Italian troops, Pompey says that his plan was designed to minimize the number of legionaries that actually got killed. At this battle that's shaping up, Pompey has about 7,000 cavalry. Caesar only has about 1,000. Pompey has about almost 45,000 infantry. Caesar has 22,000. Pompey figures that if he's not going to be allowed to starve Caesar out, he'll just crush him with superior numbers, especially superior cavalry numbers. He puts all the cavalry on one flank, and the plan is going to be to launch 7,000 cavalrymen at the same time, sweep around Caesar's flank, blow away any of Caesar's cavalry that's there, and then take Caesar's legionaries in the rear. It's an obvious strategy with such a cavalry superiority. It's such an obvious strategy that Caesar foresees it and begins before the battle even starts training a bunch of his infantry to work in conjunction with his small amount of cavalry. He's got cohorts of legionaries intermixed with the cavalry and he's hiding them till the last minute so it'll be a nasty surprise. That's the trap that he'll spring on Pompey August 9th 48 BCE, at the Battle of Pharsalus. Before the battle, Appian records what both generals said to their troops. And you can't know whether he had any idea or not. On one hand, he had access to all sorts of sources and memoirs and biographies and autobiographies that we don't have today, so he may have been working from original sources. On the other hand, it's sort of a standard convention among ancient historians to put words in the general's mouths at important points in the story, so take it with a grain of salt. But Pompey's speech has him essentially putting the blame for whatever happens on his men, because in addition to those highfalutin senators who were already preparing a rich banquet with lots of wine and silverware for the victory celebrations after the battle that they were so confidently expecting, Pompey's troops, novices though they were, were clamoring for their general to attack Caesar. So Pompey in this speech is putting the blame on them before the battle even starts. Here's what Appian says Pompey told them before the battle in the pre-battle you know, speech intended to get their morale up and to rouse them to a frenzy. Quote, My fellow soldiers, you are generals who have chosen the toil of battle, not subordinates who have had it thrust upon them. 
I still wanted to wear Caesar down. But you yourselves have invited this contest. Like marshals of the battle behave, as the superior force to the inferior, despise them as victors do the vanquished, as young men do the old, and as the unwearied do the exhausted, you have on your side all this strength, all these resources, and your consciousness of the cause. For we fight for freedom and for country, backed by the Constitution, our glorious reputation, and so many men of both senatorial and equestrian rank against one man who would pirate supreme power. Advance, then, as you've been demanding. Advance with high hopes, picturing to yourself their route at Dericium and the number of standards we captured on a single day as we defeated them. End quote. Pompey there, of course, calling back memories of the battle that they had just beaten Caesar at pointing out that, look, these are the same guys you just defeated. Let's finish them off. You wanted to. Now you're getting what you want. Prove to me you deserve it. Or maybe, just maybe, in his own mental doubts, although he'd never lost a major battle, maybe Pompey was creating a safety valve excuse in case something went wrong. Here's the speech Appian has Caesar giving to his men. And one of the things he emphasizes to them is all the things that they promised him after the Battle of Dericium when they ran away, that they wouldn't do it again. They had screamed to him and begged him to punish them in desperate, terrible ways. They deserved it, they told him. Caesar said he wasn't going to do it. He punished a few standard bearers, but basically said, if you want to redeem yourselves, do it in the next battle. He was reminding them of this in his pre-battle speech. Appian has him saying, quote, My friends, we've already overcome the worst. We shall be fighting against men instead of against hunger and want, and today we'll settle everything. Remember, I beg, the promise you made at Dorachium, and the oath you swore to each other beneath my very eyes that unless you were victorious, you would not come back from the battle. Men, here is the enemy we've come from the pillars of Hercules to confront. Here are the people who have fled from Italy to escape us, For ten years we've striven manfully. We've brought numerous wars and countless battles to a successful conclusion. And we've subjugated 400 Spanish, Gallic, and British peoples to our country's rule. For this they tried to disband us without recognition, bereft of our triumph and our rewards. Neither by inviting them to do what is right, nor by obliging them, have I succeeded in changing their minds. You know the cases of those I've released unharmed in the hope that they would show us some fairness. Remember all these things today, and remember too, if you have any experience of it, my concern for you, my trust in you, and my generosity in rewarding you. It is not difficult for veterans with a long record of endurance to get the better of raw recruits with no experience in war especially when they're inclined to youthful insubordination and disobedience towards their commander, who I am informed is apprehensive and reluctant to join battle. The tide of his luck is past its flood, and he has become hesitant and dilatory in everything, and he is no longer so much a giver as a taker of orders. End quote. He then says at the end of his speech, quote, When we have gained the day... Let us spare the Italians, because they are our kin, but instill fear into them by destroying their allies. Most of all, though, I would like to be sure that you remembered what you agreed and have chosen total victory or death. 
as you go into the battle, pull down your own ramparts and fill in the ditch, so that if we fail to win, we shall have nothing, while the enemy will see that we lack a camp and understand that necessity compels us to make our quarters in theirs. End quote. So Caesar tells them to try not to kill the other Romans, kill the allies, these people that Pompey has grabbed from all over the east that owe him favors. Kill those people. Spare as many Romans as you can. He also says, as you leave the camp to line up for battle today, pull some of it down so that after 22,000 men have pulled something down, there won't be a place for them to take refuge if the battle goes against them. He says this will have a psychological effect on Pompey's men, too. They'll see that you're, you know, here to win or die. And then he tells them that, by necessity, they'll be sleeping in a camp tonight, but it'll be Pompey's camp. When the battle starts, the two lines of footmen are a decent distance apart. Normally what's expected is that both sides will advance and meet somewhere in the middle. Caesar's line comes forward and notices that Pompey's line isn't moving at all. He's told his troops to await the outcome of that massive cavalry attack that's going to happen on the wings. Everyone looks over as 7,000 cavalry sprint across the battlefield and run into Caesar's paltry 1,000. As Caesar's cavalry gives ground and the relentless assault by the overwhelming numbers pushes forward at a signal... Caesar's infantry that he mixed with that cavalry springs up and begins to shove the javelins they would normally throw into the faces of the horsemen. Not only is this a shock that the horsemen weren't expecting, but generally they don't like to face formed infantry, especially when they're not ready for it, and we're told that it went very badly for the cavalry, who turned around and fled. Caesar's infantry that had just made them flee, instead of pursuing them, went forward so that they were behind the flank of Pompey's formation and then turned and attacked their side. This will decide the battle right there. Eventually, Pompey's forces will break. Pompey himself will run back toward the camp, thinking he's safe in there. Then he will hear the camp being attacked and famously say, what, now he's attacking the camp? strip off his marks of insignia saying who he is and, you know, that he's an imperator and an important person, dresses like a regular guy, runs out the back of the camp and flees the whole battlefield. Caesar sends heralds, which are like runners and messengers, throughout the whole battlefield screaming and yelling to spare Pompey's troops and to kill the allies instead. What's more, they go to all of these bands of Pompey's troops that are resisting in small pockets and tells them to just stand there, put their weapons down, they won't be killed. And meanwhile, we're told Caesar's troops stream through the little islands of Pompey's legionaries, killing all of their foreign allies. Caesar's troops break into Pompey's camp, and we're told it's a shock because Caesar's troops have been barely surviving, not enough food, living, you know, essentially for the last decade or so on campaign against barbarian enemies and the ends of the earth, and they break into Pompey's camp and see silver plates and goblets of wine and sumptuous meals and beautiful carpets and tents that are so ornate they have ivy and laurel already growing on them. It's as though Bill Gates and his friends decide to have a party while Pompey's army is on campaign. 
we're told that that night Caesar will dine on the dinner Pompey's cooks had prepared for Pompey. That's a remarkable change of fortune in a very short time. It's one of the reasons that ancient battles are so interesting, because often they are incredibly decisive. And Caesar's line about let the dice fly high, as though you were rolling dice in Vegas, was never a more profound or correct statement than when applied to deciding on the morning of an ancient battle that you're willing you know, to engage in one. The dice flew high, and the man with the superior luck triumphed. He had told his troops that Pompey's luck had run out. Now, we all know that luck is a very precarious commodity, but that's part of the psychological warfare too. The Romans believed that lucky people were favored by fortune, and that luck wasn't something you got every now and then, that some people were just lucky. Caesar was once again reinforcing his resume as a lucky guy. And Pompey was looking more and more like someone who had been deserted by good fortune. After the battle, Pompey takes flight with just a few compatriots, disguised, heading toward the south of Greece, where he quickly hops aboard a merchant vessel that is going out to the Greek islands, arrives on the Greek island where his wife happens to be. Her name is Cornelia, and she was, unfortunately for her, married to Crassus's son, Publius, who had recently, you may recall, gotten his head cut off in the Mesopotamian plains fighting the Parthians. So it's been a rough time lately for her. Pompey arrives at the island where his wife is, gets off this lone vessel. The servant of his wife runs up to her. She runs up to the servant. It's a great story told in Plutarch where she's assuming that Pompey's won against Caesar. Now remember, Pompey has never lost a battle was what the Romans said about him at this point. So she's fully expecting him to be victorious. And the last news she got from her husband was that there'd been that victory, you know, in the Battle of the Walls at Terrakium, and that this was just a mopping up question and that Caesar should easily be defeated. And she runs up to the male servant who is simply just crying. And he can't blurt out what's going on, but she puts one and one together and swoons, we're told. She runs down and meets her husband, at the shore, sees the lone ship, not even his own, that brought him to the island, and blames herself and her own luck for what's happened to this great man who, as she said, was used to traveling around when he went to sea in fleets of 500 vessels of his own, arriving now on the back of some merchant ship to pick her up. Plutarch has Pompey giving his young wife, so recently widowed from you know, her other husband, a little bucking up philosophical speech. Quote, You have had, Cornelia, but one season of a better fortune, which it may be gave you unfounded hopes, by attending me a longer time than is usual. It behooves us, who are mortals born, to endure these events, and to try fortune yet again. Neither is it any less possible to recover our former state than it was to fall from that into this. End quote the citizens of the island come out and they tell Pompey that he could come into the city and they welcome him there and Plutarch says that Pompey refused 
advised them to be obedient to the conqueror and to fear not that Caesar was a man of great goodness and clemency. Think about that for a minute. Caesar's reputation is such that the enemy that he just defeated tell the people of this island not to fear. Caesar won't hurt him. He's a good guy. There was always some closeness, I think, personally, between Pompey and Caesar. Let's remember something. Only one person hurt as much as Caesar did when his daughter Julia died, and that's Pompey. Pompey lost a son when Julia died in childbirth. The only person who could understand that grief was the man who lost a grandson, Caesar. These two men had a certain bond, and it seems almost a tragic part of this story that they ended up going to war against each other. But as the ancient historian said, Pompey could have no man as his equal, and Caesar could have no man better than him. Pompey will pack Cornelia up aboard this merchant ship that he's using now. We're told he also grabs a bunch of money from the island. And the ancient saying is that money is the sinews of war. Hasn't it always been so? And judging from the philosophy that Plutarch puts in Pompey's mouth, it sounds like he's going to continue the struggle and try fortune once again, and you need money for that. The ship heads out into the Mediterranean and eventually finds its way to North Africa specifically the coast of Egypt, where he's been very involved in local Egyptian politics for a long time. Egypt has a very interesting place in the Roman world at this time. It's not quite a protectorate, but it's a place that's so strategically important to Rome that it's not really free either. It's a little like one of those Middle Eastern countries that produces so much oil that the United States will call it a, you know, an area of national interest that they're willing to go to war over, but it's nominally free. Egypt wasn't an oil producer in this region so much as it was a food producer. The granaries in Egypt provided Rome with a ton of its food. A lot of Rome's urban poor was fed by Egyptian grain supplies. Not just that, all of Egypt's food surplus meant Egypt was rich. To be rich and a major food producer made it incredibly important, and Rome's bigwigs had been involved in Egyptian politics for some time. In fact, the father of the current people running the country was one of those rulers that owed Pompey, you know, pretty much everything. So it's not a surprise that Pompey would head to Egypt. He arrives there in his ship. There are Ptolemaic Egyptian soldiers all on the coastline. And apparently the young boy king there, too, with his retinue on the shore. A deputation from the mainland rows out to his boat... On board are a couple of Romans, soldiers, actually. They tell Pompey that the big ship can't come all the way to the shore, that it'll get stuck in the sand, so you have to be ferried from the smaller boat to the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, on the shoreline. Pompey says goodbye to his wife. Appian says he's a little suspicious of the whole situation, but he might just be getting paranoid. After all, he knows Caesar's after him, and he knows he's a wanted man. But when he says goodbye to his wife at the side of the ship, he quotes a line from a play of Sophocles's, supposedly. The line is, as related by Appian, The man who makes his journey to a despot's court is but the despot's slave, however free he came. Pompey descends into the smaller boat that proceeds to head towards the shore and the military entourage of the pharaoh of Egypt, young teen, though he be. 
As the boat's making its way towards shore, Pompey, somewhat nervous, is supposed to have tried to make a little conversation. He turns to the Roman soldier next to him and says something to the effect of, "'Didn't you serve with me before?' Appian quotes him as saying, "'Don't I know you, fellow soldier?' and says that, ominously, the soldier simply nodded assent, but didn't answer. Pompey starts reading some Greek texts he wrote, so that he could communicate with his king when he gets to the shoreline. The little teeny boat hits the shoreline. Pompey starts to step off of it, and is stabbed in the back by the Roman soldier. He turns around. He gets stabbed by two other Romans in the boat, We're told that he covers up his face with his cloak, groans a little, and is continually hacked to death. On the sand, with the waves lapping on the shoreline and up against his body, his head is cut off. Appian says his wife's screams as she witnessed the whole thing from the boat offshore could be clearly heard. Pompey's wife has little time to grieve, though, and no time to retrieve her husband's body because Egyptian warships are bearing down on her vessel, so they make a quick retreat, get away while they can, leaving the headless, bloody body of Pompey rolling around in the shallow surf as a crowd of locals arrive to stare at the corpse in curiosity. We're told that Pompey's left with a single loyal slave who, when the crowd disperses eventually, washes the clotted blood off his master's corpse, takes off the torn clothing, replaces it with his own toga, and starts searching around the beach for driftwood and other things that he can use to fashion some sort of a makeshift tomb. The thought of that being the final resting place and circumstance of one of the greatest figures Rome ever produced is somewhat stunning. People from Rome at the time would think the same thing. Only a few days later, Caesar will arrive in Egypt, hot on Pompey's heels. He'll have a couple thousand men with him, and he'll be greeted at the docks by an Egyptian emissary, a diplomatic corps that arrives bearing gifts and Caesar is presented with the preserved, pickled head of his adversary, Pompey. We're told he recoils in horror, turns his head away, and sheds tears. The Egyptians had thought that this was going to win Caesar's favor. Plutarch runs down the whole line of thinking that the young king, whose name is Ptolemy, just like almost all the kings in that dynasty, named after the first king of the dynasty, Ptolemy, they thought that this was the best answer to their problem. They didn't know how to deal with the situation between Pompey and Caesar. They were worried that they could, you know, choose one side and upset the other, and the best idea they could come up with was since Pompey was going to be in their hands, since he had just lost this big battle, kill him and then he won't bother you anymore, and Caesar will be in your debt. As one of the advisors to the young King Ptolemy is supposed to have said about Pompey, dead men don't bite, especially when their heads are cut off. Caesar's reaction to being presented with his enemy's head was almost the opposite of what the Egyptians were hoping for. He will have the people who murdered 
his adversary, executed. Caesar may have been hoping to do to Pompey what he hoped to do to a lot of his enemies. Forgive him and put him in his debt. Not just that. Remember, these two men for a long time were close. Pompey at one point was Caesar's son-in-law. They ran Rome together as part of the triumvirate for a long time. This is one of the few people on the planet who could have understood Caesar's situation as only another great man could. To see him come to this sort of an end was almost an insult to Caesar. But this dynasty that was currently in charge of Egypt was like a perpetual insult to Rome and Rome's values and morals. You see, this dynasty is called the Ptolemaic dynasty. Some sources call it the Lagid dynasty. It started a couple hundred years before. By this time, it's a little bit older than the United States is now. And it was started by one of Alexander the Great's generals, who may have actually been related to Alexander the Great, a guy named Ptolemy. Ptolemy, just like Alexander's other prominent generals, scrambled for pieces of Alexander's empire when Alexander died. He got the best piece, Egypt, the richest, the best-placed, the one with the longest history, and the one that was most like a state so that it would be easier to hold together. The Ptolemies, up until the very end, would never even learn to speak Egyptian. Imagine a dynasty ruling a nation or a kingdom for hundreds of years, none of them ever learning how to communicate with the locals. All of the dynasties in the East that were offshoots of Alexander the Great began to degenerate. That's the way the ancient authors talk about them, just degenerate into perversion and laziness and all kinds of decadence. It's a favorite theme among the ancients. The Ptolemies took it a step further, however. They adopted an age-old Egyptian pharaonic idea about how royal the blood of someone you're going to marry if you're the king has to be. Remember, to people who are hung up on this idea of blue blood, sometimes the only person whose blood is as blue as the king's is a close relative. The Ptolemies, for generations, had been marrying their siblings. It's almost an interesting laboratory experiment. How many generations can you marry your sister and, you know, produce people that are not horribly affected by that genetic situation? Ask any Roman during this period, and they could have pointed a thousand ways that they thought marrying one sister had degenerated the royal line of the Ptolemies. There's a famous incident about a hundred years before this period where the Roman general Scipio Emilianus goes to Egypt and meets with the Ptolemaic king there, who's this fat, out-of-shape guy who wears see-through clothes, and he just, to a Roman who at this period would have been more like a physical fitness nut. This is hard to describe. And Emilianus makes it a point that he decided he was going to tour the city and he was going to make the king come with him. And Alexandria at this time is the second largest city in the West. You, know, you have to go all the way to China to get bigger cities than Rome and Alexandria. And he makes the king follow him around the streets, the hot, dusty streets of Alexandria. And the king struggles to keep up, and he's fat and overweight, and he almost passes out. And when Scipio Emilianus leaves Egypt, he says that the people in Egypt can at least thank him for proving that their king could walk. The disrespect that the Romans had for the Ptolemies is best exemplified by an incident involving 
you know, Cato, the moralistic Roman who upholds all the ancient values. Cato was a governor of an island in the Mediterranean at one point, and the Ptolemaic king asks for an audience. He has some business to do with the Romans, and Cato says, okay, no problem, come on over, and has the king come into the bathroom where Cato has taken a laxative and is on the Roman equivalent of a toilet, and makes the king sit there while he sits on the toilet and he holds the audience there. That's a sign of the disdain that the Romans had for the Ptolemies at this point. Caesar arrives in Egypt, shocks the delegation by not being more happy about Pompey's death, and immediately starts acting like the guy who runs Egypt. First thing that happens is that there's a civil war going on in Egypt, and he gets right in the middle of it. The civil war is between the young boy king Ptolemy and his greatest rival for the throne, his wife, who's also his sister, and her name is Cleopatra. She's maybe the most famous woman of the ancient world. At this time, she's about 20, 21 years old. She's a Greek person. This is something that's misunderstood a lot. Cleopatra was not Egyptian. None of that line was. She happens to be the first member of the line that can speak Egyptian, which is huge. And the people adore her for that fact. They call her the new Isis. She may have a little bit of Persian blood in her from the Seleucid dynasty, may have a little bit of Syrian blood in her from a, a slave coupling a couple generations before, but this is a Macedonian Greek woman. And the Macedonian Greek women are some of the most dangerous, formidable women of the ancient world. Think about Alexander's mother, the rumored-to-be a pirate witch, Olympias. There are no more formidable people than Olympias in the ancient world. Cleopatra is in that mold. She's far, far more formidable than the men of the Ptolemaic line. She speaks seven to nine languages. She is a mathematician. She has a searing, scorching wit. She's extremely, extremely talented at 20 years old. Caesar arrives in Egypt and demands that these two show up in front of him so he can mediate their dispute. Oh, yeah, and they've got to disband their armies before they do. The young Ptolemy doesn't disband his army but comes to Caesar. Cleopatra can't get to Caesar. She's behind enemy lines. She has no way to get from where she is to where Caesar is. Caesar, by the way, is taking up residence in the royal mansion of the Ptolemies, a royal complex that has been built on top of itself for so many years it takes up like a quarter of the whole city. The city itself has one of the most important objects from the ancient world in it, the body of Alexander the Great. Ptolemy, the founder of the dynasty, famously stole the body when it was on its way to Macedonia, encased it in, some say honey, some say amber, some say just mummified it, and now it forms a centerpiece of Alexandria and a sign of the legitimacy of the ruling dynasty. One night... When Caesar is ensconced in the royal villa, a boat pulls up at night and out jumps a Sicilian, some say Greek, could be the same thing, merchant carrying a carpet bag 
over his shoulder. He arrives in Caesar's presence, opens the bag, or, some say, unrolls the carpet, and inside is the young queen, 21 years old by this point, and obviously able to craft a magnificent entrance. Most of the historical sources that you'll find suggest that they were sleeping together within hours of this meeting. Caesar, of course, having hundreds, maybe thousands of female conquests in his life, most historians believing that this is Cleopatra's first sexual experience. And Cleopatra's probably the most interesting female figure in the world of antiquity, certainly the Mediterranean world of antiquity. She understands power and her position in the world like few other women of her day. And to be honest, how many had the opportunity to be educated and in positions of power? There may have and almost certainly were tons of formidable women in the ancient world. Few were ever in a position to make history, though. Cleopatra was. When Cleopatra's brother realizes that she's sleeping with Caesar... He now knows that Caesar's not really an honest broker anymore. He's not going to work out the details of the civil war between he and his sister equally or fairly. And he said, remember, this, this is a young teen here still. He said to go out into the streets of Alexandria, pull off the royal diadem off his head, the equivalent of a crown, throw it in the dust and scream to the common people, the crowd in Alexandria, that they've been betrayed and for them to flock to him. Now, the crowd in Alexandria is famous. They riot at the drop of a hat. There have even been times in Ptolemaic history where they've formed a part of the military forces. They're so hot-headed and dangerous. This is the second largest city in the ancient Mediterranean world, and the crowd is passionate. Another king, dressed in his gold armor, is screaming that, you know, Caesar's taking Egypt, that Cleopatra's in league with him, and that they need to, you know, rise up. The crowd of Alexandria needs little encouragement to do this. And they then besiege the royal residence that Caesar's in with Cleopatra. What's more, soon after this time, the 20,000 men in Ptolemy's army show up as well and add to the siege. Caesar is unable to even get a letter out of the royal residence back to Rome. Which is too bad for him because his civil war is still going on. He may have had victory in his grasp after the Battle of Pharsalus. Now, the war was continuing without him, and he was stuck there. There are all sorts of heroic tales about his ability to survive in the several months that he's locked away in Egypt. There's also a lot of talk that he was far from unhappy, getting a chance to loll around with Cleopatra all day. Eventually, reinforcements will arrive from Rome... They will turn the tide. Cleopatra's brother will drown trying to swim across the Nile in his gold armor. And Caesar will run off to put out the many fires that have cropped up since his arrival in Egypt. Pompey may be dead, but the forces on his side have rejuvenated themselves in the time Caesar was trapped in Egypt. And there are conflicts all over the Roman world. This is really a Mediterranean world war. When Caesar regains freedom of action, he quickly goes and subdues all the problems in Asia Minor, which is where Pompey the Great had made much of his military reputation. And Caesar has such an easy time of it, 
He makes a little joke saying that if these are the people that Pompey got to fight to make his military reputation, lucky Pompey. It happened so fast that that's where Caesar made his famous, you know, saying, I came, I saw, I conquered. That's how fast it happened. He then returns to Rome. He has all sorts of problems in Rome he has to deal with, including a bunch of legions that are rebellious and angry. Caesar gets up and quells their rebellion with his typical unbelievable understanding of the psychology of the legionaries. He gets up to address them. They're all angry. And he starts the address out by calling them citizens. He says, citizens, instead of soldiers. That would have been the normal way to talk to them. And the instant he said citizens, their faces all drop because they realize all of a sudden he's suggesting that they're not his soldiers anymore. And in typical Caesarian fashion, he has them all crying and weeping and willing to do anything to get his good graces back. He didn't come back to Rome empty-handed either. He brought Cleopatra with him. And not just that. She's pregnant with his son. Now, that doesn't mean she's not married, however, but she's not married to Caesar. She had to wed another one of her brothers... It's the rule, you know. This one happened to be 10 years old, and she marries that guy, or that boy, before heading to Italy to make all of Rome, you know, upset with the fact that some foreign woman was there. It was illegal for a guy like Caesar to even marry a foreign woman. Well, he wasn't marrying her. He was putting her up in very nice digs in Rome, and the Romans were holding their nose and dealing with this foreign, bewitching queen in their midst. Just another sign of Caesar thumbing his nose at Roman convention. Caesar every time he's in Rome, will vote himself new honors, whether he's making himself a temporary dictator again or a consul. Every time he goes through Rome, he ups his legal authority one way or another. There's no one left in Rome who can say much about it. The next major course that he takes takes him right back across the Mediterranean to North Africa. There's an absolutely giant army of the former forces of Pompey, gathering there and training and waiting for a showdown with Caesar. In fact, that army of Roman legionaries being put together in North Africa has helping them the king of Numidia, a guy named Juba. And Juba's brought not just infantry and cavalry, but elephants to fight Caesar. There's a bunch of decent generals there, and Cato himself, the uncompromising, stoic Roman moralist, is there helping out too, doing his part to, you know, combat Caesar. A guy like Cicero is really almost too afraid to do anything. He's trying to figure out what he needs to do and, you know, how he can be on Caesar's good side and yet still keep his moral code intact. A guy like Cato is putting his money where his mouth is and he's organizing this last-ditch effort in North Africa. Caesar takes his army over there and several major clashes occur. It's a very, very difficult fight. On January 4th, 46 BCE, Caesar will defeat a former sub-commander of his, a guy that felt like Caesar got a lot of the credit that he deserved, and he showed it by putting up a very good fight and actually killing about a third of Caesar's forces. Remember, this is one reason Caesar deserves to be so highly ranked as a general. It's one of the few times a general makes his name against the same sort of troops he's using. You can't claim that he had some great technological advantage or that his you know, troops were tougher or better armed or better armored or what have you. He's fighting the same kind of troops he has. He's fighting the toughest soldiers in the world. He's fighting Roman legionaries. Many of the great conquerors in the world, 
from Napoleon to Alexander the Great to, you know, the great generals of Hitler's Wehrmacht. All these people were often fighting armies that were nowhere near as good as theirs. Caesar wasn't. And on February 6th, 46 BCE, just barely a month after fighting that battle where he lost a third of his forces, he fights a major battle known to history as the Battle of Thapsus. This battle is decisive. It's so decisive that after it's over, the king of Numidia, Juba, has dinner with one of the main, you know, opposition Roman generals, and over dinner they kill each other, which is part of the deal. Suicide is a common way out during this period, and part of the reason why is that the religious beliefs that many of these people adhered to did not prohibit it. Sometimes it was the honorable way out in the ancient world, and many people after this battle were taking it. Many were also fleeing. They were trying to get away from Caesar's revenge and the revenge of Caesar's troops because, you know, Caesar had this policy of mercy and clemency, and he was starting to get a little bit fed up with it himself, more of these enemies that fall into his hands, people that he's forgiven multiple times already start running out of forgiveness. Not always, but more and more. His troops, on the other hand, are starting to want nothing to do with this clemency idea because they realize that they're facing soldiers that they've already defeated. And in a fit of bloodlust after this battle in North Africa, they kill thousands and thousands of Romans when the battle's essentially over. They feel like their commander's mercy put them in a position where they had to risk their lives again against soldiers that they'd already defeated. They were going to see that that didn't happen another time. Many prominent Romans get on ships and get off to the Mediterranean as fast as they can, trying to flee from Caesar's wrath. One guy who doesn't flee is Cato. He's in the city of Utica, which is right near ancient Carthage, the city that a century before the Romans had destroyed so utterly they'd put curses on it so that it would never grow anything again. And Cato, as usual, is attending to his duties and Caesar's on the way to Utica, and everyone knows it. And this is how the ancient historian Appian describes the situation in Utica after the battle that Caesar's victorious in and with the knowledge that he's on his way. Quote, The news reached Utica about three days later, and since Caesar was making directly for the town, everyone fled. Cato restrained no one, and even provided ships for any prominent men who requested them. He himself stayed firmly at his post, and when the Eutychians promised that they would ask him to be spared, even if they were not, he smiled and replied that he had no need of an accommodation with Caesar and that Caesar was equally aware of the fact. He sealed all the valuables and handed over documentation for them to the magistrates of Utica. In the evening, he busied himself with a bath and dinner and took his meal sitting down, as had been his habit since the death of Pompey. His normal behavior was unaltered, and he ate neither more nor less than usual. He talked with the others present about the people who had sailed off, asking whether the wind would be favorable for them, and whether the interval before Caesar arrived in the morning was sufficient to allow them to make their escape. Even when he went to bed, he made no change in his normal routine, except only to embrace his son more warmly. When he discovered that his sword was not lying beside the bed in its usual place, he cried out that he was being betrayed to the enemy by his own household and asked what he was to use if the attackers came in the night. When they begged him not to plan any action against his own life, but to sleep without his sword, he said more convincingly, If I have a mind to, can I not strangle myself with my clothing? 
or crush my head against the wall, or break my neck by hurling myself to the ground, or finish myself off by holding my breath? With more in the same vein, he persuaded them to put his sword beside him, and when it was laid there, he asked for Plato's work on the soul and began to read. When he had come to the end of Plato's dialogue, he supposed that the attendants at the door were asleep and stabbed himself below the breastbone. His internal organs tumbled out, and the attendants heard a groan and came rushing in. The doctors replaced the organs, which were still undamaged, sewed up the cuts, and applied bandages. He regained consciousness and again dissembled. He blamed himself for the feebleness of his blow, but expressed his gratitude to those who had saved him, and said he needed to go to sleep. They then went away, taking his sword, and shut the door in the belief that he was quiet. But although he gave the impression that he was asleep, he silently tore the bandages off with his hands and undid the stitches of the injury. Like a wild animal, he enlarged the wound with his nails, opened up his stomach with his fingers, and tore his intestines out until he died. He was about 50 years old. The ancient author Plutarch relates the story similarly, although he has... Cato cutting open his stomach and the intestines pouring out on the floor and the attendants rushing in to see Cato staring at them wide-eyed and they staring at him just totally horrified. What Cato was doing was making sure he didn't have to live to have Caesar pardon him. And Caesar said later that he would begrudge Cato his noble death. Caesar wanted to pardon him. Pardoning Cato would essentially be like Caesar forgiving the Republic and the Republican values and everything else. Cato's suicide made him immortal, and the cause would live on. Caesar goes back to Rome and is made dictator for the next ten years. He also celebrates the grandest triumphs in Roman history designed to outdo the great triumphs of Pompey and showing all the scenes from the Civil War. This backfired on Caesar a little bit. See, part of it went great. He had thousands of gladiators fighting. He had giant sea battles set up in, in buildings. I mean, it was the most grand occurrence that the people in Rome had seen. Laid out lots of food and banquets and everything to sort of make the people feel good about what he did. But in typical fashion, the triumph had floats and a parade. And the floats had pictures and paintings and sculptures of the events of the wars that had just passed. And this backfired on Caesar a little bit because unlike other triumphs, which were triumphs of the Roman people over their you know, barbarian or otherwise enemies, this was a triumph celebrating the death of other Romans. The sons and daughters of some of the people who were watching the triumph. They took a census around this time and found that half of Rome's population was no longer there. They'd been killed in these civil wars. There are scenes showing the suicides of prominent people in these civil wars, and the crowd is supposed to have simply groaned when they saw them. Caesar couldn't resist having a float showing Cato killing himself and the intestines falling out of his stomach, and the people just wept. These were still heroes in their minds, and Caesar was rubbing their nose in it unintentionally. The one guy he did figure out that he shouldn't lampoon in the triumph was Pompey. There's no mention of him. There's no 
floats with his images on it. There's no scenes of his death. The people still liked Pompey too much, and Caesar was aware of that. There's still one more area that has rebellious Pompeian troops in it that has to be dealt with. And after Caesar goes back to Rome, votes himself yet some more power, he goes to Spain to finish things off. That's where Pompey's two sons have armies raised, and they've gotten a bunch of Celtic people and others to join them. And it's supposed to be a very dangerous army that's been training a long time, and Caesar goes there and defeats it. The battles are tough, but Pompey's one son gets away, the other's head is brought to Caesar. By this time, too, Caesar's enemies have come to the conclusion that Caesar has luck on his side to such a degree that it doesn't matter what advantages you have, you're going to lose. On March 17th, 45 BCE, at the Battle of Munda, the last forces of revolt are crushed by Caesar's legions. This last battle in Spain may have been the closest Caesar ever came to dying in a battle. Appian says that he was forced to put on a display of courage to get his men who were scared to do their duty. Here's what he says happened. Quote, Caesar's army was seized by fear, and on top of that by a reluctance to fight. Caesar lifted up his hands to heaven and besought all the gods not to sully his glorious record with this one disaster. Then running up to the soldiers, he appealed to them and abashed and encouraged them by removing his helmet. Even then, they were still paralyzed by fear, until he personally snatched a shield from one of them, said to the officers accompanying him, This will be the end of my life and of your campaign, and ran out far in front of the battle line toward the enemy. He stopped only ten feet short of them, and two hundred throwing spears were hurled at him. Some of these he avoided, others he took on his shield. These made all the officers run forward and stand behind him, and the entire army attacked at the charge and fought all day, constantly winning and losing advantage in different parts of the field, until at evening they just managed to secure victory. This is when Caesar is said to have remarked that he had often fought for victory, but on this occasion he had fought for his life as well. After much slaughter, Appian writes, the Pompeian army took refuge in Cordoba, to stop the enemy escaping and preparing for another battle, Caesar gave his army orders to surround the town, and the men, exhausted from the day's events, piled up the bodies and equipment of the dead and thrust spears through them into the ground. Such was the wall beside which they made their bivouac. End quote. That's amazing to think of a man who's 55 or so years old who is encouraging his army by running up to the enemy's battle line, you know, tens of thousands of legionaries strong, and allowing them to throw all their spears at him while he dodges them and catches them on his shield, encouraging the rest of his troops to run up so that they can protect him. What's more, the visual images of his troops skewering dead enemy bodies multiple bodies on each spear, and then sticking the spears into the ground to create a wall of Pompeian dead outside the Pompeian fortifications is so horrifying, the modern mind has a hard time imagining the scene. As I've said many times, these people saw sights and lived lives and experienced things that the vast majority of people in the modern world not only will never experience, but can't even envision. Caesar's final victory in Spain 
gave Caesar victory in the Civil War. This final battle gave him total control of Rome's Republic, if you can still call it that. Caesar's new status as the only power in Rome is confirmed before he even gets back to Italy with his army. We're told that on the way back, he's met by a long train of people, including senators and very rich people and power brokers at, you know, sort of a mid-range level all over Rome. They're coming out to essentially kiss his hand or whatever. Uh, Tell him, you know, I was with you all along, Caesar, I knew you'd win. Something like that. Maybe they were with him all along, but now they were welcoming the guy that everyone understood was the only person, you know, that mattered anymore in Rome. In the old days, when there had been a really powerful individual, there were still forces, you know, in the state that could be put together maybe to act as a counterbalancing force, right? You know, even if Pompey looked like he might take over, there was always Crassus. If a guy like Marius looked real dangerous, there was a Sulla. Speaking of Sulla, that's the last person who had the kind of power that Caesar now accrued. And Sulla was thought of very highly by some of the aristocratic crowd that, you know, Sulla championed. But the great mass of people always looked at the time when Sulla had made himself dictator as a terrible period. It became one of those things you'd throw in there as a worst-case scenario. Hey, well, if something really bad happens, we could have another Sulla situation on our hands. Well, now, there was another Sulla situation on their hands, at least in terms of one man consolidating all the power, but he was the total opposite from Sulla in whose side he represented. Remember, Caesar's the populare favorite, the darling of the cool crowd, too, and now he's in charge of Rome. What's he going to do? He starts doing all kinds of really fair reforms. He doesn't completely shaft the aristocracy and the oligarchy. He makes deals where he'll solve debt problems and fix structural issues and start new colonies, but in ways that are pretty much fair. The kind of things that the oligarchy, had they been smart all along, would have been agreeing to, would have kept them from all these civil wars and uprisings. Caesar had every right to simply give the people everything, and instead he kind of split it right down the middle. He was very fair. There are many writers who write history from a more class-conscious sense, and they see this whole gathering of ultimate power by Caesar is something like the dictatorship of the proletariat from old socialist thought. The need to have a sort of people's champion with ultimate power in order to, you know, remake the state, to break the old power structure. And writers like that will often point out, you know, what happened to all of the people who were trying to do similar things to what Caesar was trying to do now? What had happened to all of them? They were often badly mistreated by the Senate and the oligarchy, usually fatally mistreated by them. Those people will argue that Caesar had to have an army and had to have dictatorial powers because look at what these people, who he was going to, you know, take the state away from, essentially, so they didn't own it, look at what those people had done to his predecessors. There are others who see in Caesar just a desire for raw power. Go back to H.G. Wells, the wonderful amateur historian and science fiction writer. He looked at Caesar as a thoroughly romanticized figure. He said, everybody's making this guy out to be some high-minded man. He's a thug. He's a standard thug. He's a thug who was clever and who people have made into something more than he was. There's nothing great about this guy. Stop romanticizing him. It's very similar to what modern historians like A.B. Bosworth are trying to get us to understand about Alexander the Great. He says, stop romanticizing him. The man was a butcher. 
The man was power mad. And there are those who do say that Caesar was power mad. And every now and then you see a little something from Caesar that makes you think he just might have been. One of my favorite incidents happens when Caesar's riding through that big triumph we told you about a little earlier. And there are ten tribunes of the people, and one of them doesn't stand when Caesar's chariot drives by. And, you know, Caesar's supposed to be pretty cool, right? He's charming and gracious and all those things he's always been, right? Well, he turns around and yells. I mean, you got to really, it's a loud crowd. You got to say something pretty loud. Yells down to the tribune who's still sitting, whose name, by the way, was Pontius Aquila. And he says to Aquila really loudly, come on, Tribune Aquila, take the Republic back from me. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that from that time for a couple of days, he wouldn't sign anything or agree to anything without saying, oh, I'll do this for you. That is providing Pontius Aquila will let me. That's a sign there, maybe, that Caesar's demeanor was changing with this, you know, extra authority and this total power. The old line of absolute power corrupts absolutely, worked very well on Alexander, was it working on Caesar too? You kind of have to look at what Caesar was trying to do to figure out what he was going to be. No one at the time and no one since has been able to figure out whether Caesar intended to fix the Republic or eliminate it. In the decade or so before Caesar came to power, more and more Roman writers, Cicero included, had been talking about the need for the Roman system to have someone akin to a sort of a moderator, somebody who could step in when it was, you know, breaking and not working and fixed little problems as they developed. Some believe that that's what Caesar was trying to do, take over the role of the system moderator until things were running smoothly again. In fact, You know, in the same way that he was like Sulla, because Sulla had ultimate authority, Sulla's ultimate authority had been given to him in order to put the Constitution right, to remake the state and fix the problems. Caesar may very well have looked at his time the same way. As a matter of fact, after he's out of the picture and doesn't get the job done either, a famous man will write Cicero and say, from someone viewing it after the fact, that Caesar was trying to find a way out. Quote, if a man of such genius was unable to find a way out, who will find one now? End quote. The contradictions of the Republic had been ripping it apart for some time. This latest series of civil wars had reduced the city of Rome's population by half. A way out was desperately necessary. If Caesar looked at his job to fix the Republic, you're confronted with a couple of problems, though. One of the problems, as Caesar saw it, with Sulla's short dictatorship was that it was too short. Sulla had tried to come in, quickly chop a few things up, fix a few things, put it all back together, and hope it runs. And, of course, it fell apart very quickly. Caesar, who had been a young man at the time, learned from that. He even said, you know, comments about Sulla being unwise to have given up power, you know, as he did, because fixing the Republic isn't something that's going to happen quickly. There were too many deep-seated hatreds. There were lots of people who had scores to settle. All the same things that destroyed the Republic. The rampant ambition. How about that, for example? That's what the ancient writers harp on all the time, that this was ambition getting out of control. Caesar's got to temper all that stuff. How long is that going to take? Setting the Republic right seems to me to be a little like trying to teach your child to ride that two-wheeled bicycle. The first time, you put them on the bike, and you run behind them, and you hold the bike. That's what Caesar was doing. He was holding the bike. If 
this interpretation has any basis in reality. Now, we all know that you let go of that bike when you think the kid's got it, and sometimes they keep riding, but most of the time they topple off a few times before they get it. Sulla tried this and let go of the bike right away. Caesar was going to hold on to the bike for a while. How long was Caesar going to have to hold on to the bike? If you believe that Caesar was trying to fix the Republic, you have to look and see how he might have been thinking. How long does the dictatorship of the proletariat have to last before the system can once again function? In 44 BCE, Caesar has himself proclaimed dictator for life. Maybe that gives you an idea of how large he decided the problems looked. That is, of course, if indeed he was worried about any of that at all and wasn't simply, you know, the ultimate example of Roman ambition, you know, taking its natural course. Eventually, all you'll have is one corporation in the world if they keep taking each other over rampantly. Eventually, you'll have only one guy running the show if somebody of extraordinary ambition combined with extraordinary talents wins. Caesar won. He was dictator for life. He was flirting with being a king, some say. Author Tom Holland, as usual, does a remarkable job summing up the situation once Caesar proclaims himself dictator for life. Quote, With this fateful measure, the last feeble hope that Caesar might one day return the Republic to its citizens was snuffed out. But would the Romans care? Caesar's calculation was that they would not. The people he had lulled with games and welfare and peace. The Senate he had numbed into quietude, not with open menaces, but with the threat of what might result from his removal. Better an illegal tyrant than a civil war. End quote. Better an illegal tyrant than a civil war. The Romans had seen now a series of civil wars, a lot of deaths, legionaries fighting legionaries, literally a lot of times brother fighting brother, father fighting son, all the worst of the civil war stereotypes. They'd had it. If you had to make that choice, and I think some of the listeners in my audience may have lived in places that had that sort of choice foisted upon them, Which do you choose? And if Caesar had the highest of motives, how long does he have to hold the Republic before he can let it go and not have it be civil war? Not just that, how long can you suspend a Republic before it becomes incapable of being a Republic again when you restart it? Can you put it in suspended animation and just bring it out whenever you want? Or do people sort of lose the ability to live that way, to govern themselves under that kind of a system. Caesar himself was expressing dismay at how insolvable the problems looked. So he was planning a little getaway to sort of, you know, forget about it. He was planning a nice big war. In his mid to starting to be later 50s, epileptic, 
nightmares, having blackouts, not feeling generally very well. His idea to feel a little bit better is to get together one of the largest Roman armies of all time and all the trouble that that requires and go after Parthia the way Crassus did. After all, Crassus may have had no reason other than personal ambition to go after the Parthians, but now that Crassus died there and all those legionary eagle standards that, you know, they had such pride in had been captured by the Parthians, now Caesar had a reason to go. He's going to go recapture those eagles and, you know, get Rome's pride back. While he's gone, he's going to have certain people in charge. And he starts picking the consuls for next year, and then he picks the consuls for the year afterwards. As soon as they're done, you take over. Starts putting all the other people in office, and then puts two guys as his assistants who are going to run Rome while he's gone. Now, these guys are important people to Caesar, but they're nobody in the normal Roman power structure. They're not senators or anything, but the senators are now going to have to come and bow and scrape not just to Caesar— they had gotten to the point where they understood Caesar's a pretty, you know, phenomenal human being. And if I have to bow to that guy, well, you know, he's pretty awesome. But now I got to bow to his toady. The Senate was not happy. This pushed a bunch of people over the edge. One guy whose name was Brutus. Now, a lot of people make an interesting connection with Brutus because he must have made it himself. Brutus is supposed to have been the descendant of another guy named Brutus. The other guy named Brutus was one of the most famous Romans of antiquity. He was the guy that killed Rome's last king, right? This initiates the Republic. And ever afterwards, the Romans had made tyrannicide something that was a good thing. Brutus was the example for all. And when some of these people killed tribunes of the plebs in earlier history that we talked about, they would cite Brutus's example. As Caesar is taking control of the state, the statues were told around town of Brutus and stuff started to have graffiti on them. And they would make derisive comments about the young Brutus who lived now. You know, this is many, 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 many generations later. Things like, you're not worthy of your ancestor, or Brutus, where are you now? Or Brutus, have you been bribed? All these slogans are supposedly written and scrawled on the monuments to the ancient Brutus. So this Brutus of 44 BCE seems to feel pressure to emulate his ancestor. Not just that, he happens to be amongst the crowd that thinks that a dictator's a bad thing. He's got perhaps a little extra twist to his personal story. Some believe he was the illegitimate son of Caesar himself. So he might have been related to both the man who ended kingship in Rome and the man who stood a very good chance of bringing it back. Brutus involves himself in a cabal. Several senators, maybe many senators, were involved in plotting ideas to do away with the tyrant. After all, Caesar was finding new ways all the time to scare the Romans into thinking that he'd gone off the deep end. One of the latest was having his statue added to the statues of the pantheon of the Roman gods. This made Caesar look as though he was becoming like a Hellenistic monarch where, you know, like Alexander, they were turned into gods. This was something very disgusting to Roman sensibilities. Cleopatra was disgusting to Roman sensibilities, too. And Caesar had her ensconced in velvet, basically, living in luxury right outside the city. There was talk that 
Caesar and Cleopatra were working out deals where they were going to jointly run a world kingdom together. Rumors were rampant. Something had to be done. That's how these conspirators thought. Different ideas of ways to do it were discussed. One was that Caesar's chair was going to be on this bridge while he was reviewing a parade and they suggested that some people topple him over the bridge and then they'd have guys with knives waiting underneath the bridge to get him. Eventually, it's decided to invite him to a get-together of the Senate at the Theater of Pompey, where Pompey had established a great theater. It had a big statue of, of the man there and the Senate was going to meet there. And Caesar was to you know, come in and hear his normal petitions because now anywhere Caesar went, there was a bunch of people following him around asking him for stuff. On March 14th, 44 BCE, Caesar or somebody in a dinner situation with Caesar, conversing over wine, brought up the question, we're told by the ancient historians, what is the best death? Caesar is supposed to have answered, a sudden one. This reminds you of a comment John F. Kennedy is supposed to have made, what kind of death he would prefer, and he said one that comes out of nowhere like a bullet, one that you don't see coming. You'll never know what hit you. Sounds pretty similar, but I don't think Kennedy said it the night before his assassination. March 14th, 44 BCE is the night before Caesar's, and his wife seems to know it. We're told she has horrible dreams. We're also told, of course, because these ancient writers like to bring these things up, that there's all kinds of little signs and doors blow open and things happen, you know, basically telling Caesar not to go to the Senate meeting in the morning. Even if not feeling well, he considers canceling it. One of the conspirators shows up at the door and talks him out of it. Other people are showing up, you know, trying to get Caesar's attention. We're told that there are several people who are in the know about this, who are trying to warn Caesar. We're also told that some of the people who have just become aware of it and are in the mood for it to happen are walking by the conspirators and essentially giving them a you know, quiet thumbs, scaring the hell out of them, by the way, because you know, no one's supposed to know about this. And all of a sudden, one of the senators walks up and just kind of winks and nods and you know, gives them a thumbs up and says, I don't know what you're doing, you know, but I'm all for it, something like that. So apparently, rumors were rampant. This has caused some people to actually think that Caesar was in favor of being killed the next morning. That Caesar was essentially choosing this kind of a death and that it would be a good thing if it happened, sort of a suicide by assassination. The people that push this theory forward point out that Caesar's health was in decline, those epileptic seizures were coming more often, that he was having headaches, that he'd already said that he'd had as much glory and as many years as you could have hoped for, so who knows? Most people doubt it. I don't believe it myself, but it's an interesting theory. Caesar walks the distance to the forum and encounters, we're told, in a famous story, a soothsayer, a man who had warned Caesar to beware the Ides of March. March 15th were the Ides of March. Caesar said to him when he passed him, the Ides of March have come, and I'm still here. I'm fine. And the soothsayer is supposed to have responded, Aye, Caesar, the Ides of March have come, but they've not yet passed. He continues toward the theater, 
of Pompey. And a man runs up to him, you know, gets through the crowd of people that are always trying to hand Caesar messages and hands him one and says, read this now, Caesar, read it in private and don't wait. It's the famous warning right before the assassination that it's going to happen. Somebody had gotten wind of it and had a note and was just going to tell him, don't go in the theater. Imagine if Kennedy had had a note saying, don't go in that motorcade today or don't turn by Dealey Plaza. Or Lincoln had had, you know, don't go to that play tonight. We're told that Caesar keeps the message in his hand but goes into the theater anyway. He walks into the room in the theater where the Senate's meeting right past a big, giant statue of Pompey, because Pompey built this whole place. And now he was essentially in the Senate House. It wasn't the Senate House, but it was the Senate House for that day. And he sits on this, you know, special chair, and people start running up to him again with all these messages and things. Caesar, will you do this? Caesar, will you do that? And as he's pushing people away, still with that one note from the man who came up and told him to read it right now in his hand, someone comes up from behind him and rips his toga down, down to his shoulders. Now, what happens next has been told a hundred different ways. The reality of the situation is that this ripping of the toga was supposed to be the sign. Now, this room was full of senators. That's a lot of people. And most of them were not in on the deal. So they're looking on in horror as Caesar is supposed to have turned around or partly twisted and said, why, this is violence or why, this is force, something like that. And then the guy who's behind him says, get him gets his hand stabbed through with Caesar's stylus, his pencil thing, but everyone else starts stabbing Caesar. The whole crowd around him, knives flashing, and supposedly that was part of the deal. In other words, it's almost like a blood pact where everyone agrees to share some of the responsibility, so everyone's got to stick the knife in. We're told that Caesar resists and fights, and then in a perhaps fictitious scene, sees Brutus with a knife coming at him. Brutus, of course, the descendant, he thinks, supposedly, maybe, of the guy who killed the last king in Rome and made the Republic possible, and also maybe Caesar's son. And as he comes forward towards Caesar with his knife, Caesar is supposed to have said, again, this has been said many ways too, something to the effect of, you too, my son? Even you, my boy? You too, Brutus? And Brutus stabs him in the groin, and Caesar covers his face with his toga as they continue to inflict 23 wounds on the great man. We are told that at an autopsy afterwards, only one was fatal. The whole thing has so much symbolism. Caesar's blood is supposed to have splattered at the feet of Pompey's statue, his great rival. His killing happens in the presence of the Senate, the very body his existence made moot. Cicero in the Senate House was just as shocked as the other senators who were not in on the plans, and they kind of stood rooted while the whole thing happened in shock. Eventually, the murderers decide that they've accomplished their deed, and they proclaim that they have slain a tyrant and a king. And they go running out of the Senate House. And all of a sudden, this spell is broken and all the other senators run out of the Senate House too, leaving Caesar's body laying there, you know, bleeding on the floor right onto Pompey's statue. Here's what the ancient writer Appian says, quote, 
when the murderers had completed their foul deed, perpetrated in a sacred place against a man who was sacred and inviolate, people not only in the Senate, but all across Rome made an immediate rush to escape. Some senators were wounded, and others lost their lives in the pandemonium. Many foreigners and ordinary inhabitants of Rome were also killed, the slaughter being unpremeditated and arising naturally from the breakdown of public order and from the ignorance of the attackers. The reason was that the gladiators, who had been armed from early in the morning in the expectation of putting on a show, ran out of the theater toward the screens of the Senate chamber, and out of terror the theater emptied in a panic-stricken surge, and the goods displayed for sale were looted. Everyone barred their doors and prepared to defend themselves from their roofs. End quote. Everyone figured that with the one person who controlled everything gone, it was going to be anarchy. And for the first few hours after Caesar's death, it was. The ancient writer Suetonius said that the original plans of the conspirators who killed Caesar were to drag his body off to the Tiber River and throw it in there, confiscate all his property, and revoke all his edicts. You'll recall that throwing these great populare heroes into the river was sort of standard treatment. It denied their followers any place to show reverence or to rally around later, and it also was sort of a final judgment on the man. The Republic considers this person to be a bad guy. And you can tell that the assassins were kind of lulled into a false sense of how popular what they did would be. Right after they kill Caesar, Brutus is supposed to have looked up and seen Cicero amongst the crowd of horrified senators and said, Cicero, take back the Republic. And then the assassins run through the streets of Rome, telling the people to recover their liberty, showing off their bloody hands as proof of the deed that they'd done. They mingle with the crowd, and a bunch of the crowd goes to look at Caesar's body and then comes back, and a lot of the great aristocratic types in Rome were slapping people like Brutus on the back, and it seemed like this was maybe going to turn out to be a good thing. Mark Antony starts making deals with some of the powerful people in the Senate, and they're trying to avoid any sort of spark of civil war breaking out because in this weird netherworld in the 24, 48 hours after Caesar's death, Rome's like a gas depot. And one spark could set it off. You know, Antony stops the assassins from doing anything nasty to Caesar's body. At the same time, being Caesar's man, he might want to take action against them, but that's one of the concessions that the Senate makes. You're not going to treat the assassins bad. You're going to forgive them. As a matter of fact, we're going to give them some political positions. So some deals are made, and Antony actually gets some honors conferred upon him for avoiding civil war. Mark Antony had saved Caesar from the fate of having his body thrown in the river, something some of the assassins were really angry had been, you know, negotiated away. They didn't want a funeral, but in the end, it was Brutus, among others, who conceded that point and allowed Antony to bury his commander in high style. The ancient historian Plutarch considers this to have been a mistake because it turned the people against the conspirators. Antony got up there first and read Caesar's will, and Caesar had left money to every Roman citizen. He also left them his gardens and these big public places and turned them over to the people. All of a sudden, Plutarch says, the people started contemplating what they'd lost, and their moods started shifting, and then the funeral happened. They had a gilded shrine set up 
near his daughter's tomb in a major open space. They set an ivory couch spread with purple, Suetonius says, and gold cloth. And then they created a pillar at its head and hung the bloody, torn clothing that Caesar had died in. Originally, the plan had been to let people line up and pass by, but they thought that would take, you know, a lot of time, maybe days, so they decided to let anyone just come up to the body in any order that they wanted to, based on, you know, no public standing or anything. Suetonius says, emotions of pity and dignity were aroused at the funeral games by a line from a play that seemed to resonate with Caesar's life so well. The line from the play is, what, did I save these men that they might murder me? And that's because many of the conspirators who assassinated Julius Caesar were men whose lives were saved by Julius Caesar's clemency, people that he forgave who then turned around and killed him. Later Roman emperors would point to this when they took no chances with their political enemies. They didn't want to end up like Caesar, and to them, history seemed to show that clemency was a weakness, that clemency was a fault. Plutarch points out that one of the key moments is when Caesar's body is brought on a litter all the way from where it is to where it's going to be you know, laid out on this ivory bench with purple and gold cloth over it, and the people see it all torn up and its wounds obvious, and they once again see this man that they haven't seen since he died. The crowd gets emotional, the ancient writers say. Suetonius says that Mark Antony dispenses with a formal eulogy. Instead, he has someone read a decree voting Caesar all these divine and human honors, he says. And then he reads out loud the oath that the Senate took that said that they would watch over Caesar's safety. It's a little like making the crowd understand that all these people pledged to keep Caesar safe and a great number of them participated in killing them. A crowd already kind of worked up to a pitch by seeing Caesar's body and the reality of that situation were now further worked into a pitch. Suetonius writes, quote, Antony then added a few short words of comment. When the ivory funeral couch had been carried down into the forum by a group of magistrates and former magistrates, and a dispute arose as to whether the body should be cremated in the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus or in the assembly hall of Pompey, two figures suddenly appeared, javelin in hand and sword at thigh, and set fire to the couch with torches. Immediately the spectators assisted the blaze by heaping on it dry branches and the judges' chairs along with the court benches as well as whatever else came to hand. Thereupon the musicians and the theatrical performers took off the clothes which had been used in Caesar's triumphs and which they had put on for the present occasion, tore them into pieces and flung them on the flames. And Caesar's veterans added the arms which they were wearing to honor his funeral. Many women in the audience similarly sacrificed their jewelry, together with their children's golden amulets and embroidered tunics. Public grief was enhanced by crowds of foreigners, lamenting in their own fashion, especially Jews, who came flocking to the forum for several nights in succession. As soon as the funeral was over, the people, snatching brands from the pyre, ran to burn down the houses of Brutus and Cassius. End quote. 
The crowd's mood had turned. The assassins were the bad guys, and they were going to pay. Many houses went up near Caesar's funeral pyre. At least one man was torn to pieces by the crowd when he was mistaken for one of the assassins, and his head placed on a pike and paraded around the city. It's amazing to think of the people of Rome, you know, walking by Caesar's burning body and throwing their jewelry into the fire, his soldiers throwing their swords and armor and helmets into the fire. One wonders how the people in the Senate who had planned to take Caesar's body and throw it into the river to dishonor it forever and who told the people that they had killed him to help them reclaim their liberty must have felt, seeing this public outpouring of grief and an attempt to lynch the people who killed the would-be king. If this was tyrannicide and they'd killed the dictator, the people had a very strange reaction to it. Caesar's death in 44 BCE is the most common date cited for, you know, the date that the Republic itself dies. There are times that have come before this date that people have dated its death to, the first triumvirate, for example. There are several potential dates afterwards where you could say that the Republic limped along and didn't finally breathe its last until, you know, maybe even the Emperor Tiberius. But very quickly after Caesar's death, once again, power blocks develop around strong people. One of them was Caesar's young heir, Octavius, who would later be known as Augustus. Another is Mark Antony, Caesar's right-hand man. The assassins for a while, guys like Brutus, also maybe Julius Caesar's son, um, involve themselves in the power struggle. Cleopatra is pregnant with what will turn out to be a son for Caesar named Caesarian. So these forces all line up, and you get another decade of civil war, worse than any that had come before it. More murderous, no mercy, huge armies going up against huge armies as essentially the Republic has been destroyed and what will replace it is what's being fought over. Virtually everyone that plays a major role in this story will be killed during this time period. Many of them won't even make it out of the year after Caesar's death. The year 43 BCE sees a ton of people, important people, die. Brutus kills himself after losing a battle. Cicero, whose most important achievements come from the time period after Caesar's death in that in a little more than a year before he himself meets his end, when he becomes the main force trying to do his part to restore some semblance of the Republic. And he'll side with Caesar's heir against Mark Antony. When Caesar's heir and Mark Antony and another powerful figure form what's called the Second Triumvirate, they sit down to codify the deal and they start horse trading on who has to go. They're going to revive Sulla's old practice of the prescriptions, the list of those condemned to die. Antony wants Cicero on that list, and Caesar's heir fights to keep him off. But there's people that Octavius, Caesar's heir, wants dead too, and he has to trade and argue and debate with the other two people over who gets to go. And finally, after three days of debate, 
we're told, Caesar's heir gives up and allows Cicero to be added to the list of those condemned to die. Cicero and his brother flee. His brother has to turn back because they realize they're basically leaving Rome without any of their stuff. He gets caught and killed. Cicero will flee, go to one of his homes, find out that the assassins are on their way, get in his litter, start to flee. The assassins will catch up to it. And Cicero is supposed to have leaned his neck out of the litter to make their job easier and saying to these soldiers that they were doing a very bad thing, but they better not do a bad job of killing him. Cicero's head is cut off by the assassins, along with his hands, and Mark Antony has them nailed up at the speaker's platform in the forum. And it's said that his wife pulls out Cicero's tongue and sticks it over and over with a pin as a way of having the last laugh at his powerful speaking skills. Cicero's brother's wife, who of course lost her husband and her brother-in-law, Cicero, would have a little measure of revenge when the slave who had informed on the location of Cicero to the assassins fell into her hands. She forced him to cut off his flesh little by little and heat each piece up and eat it until he died. That sort of behavior would begin to be more normal than anyone would have expected as Rome convulses through this period after the Republic has fallen and before something else has taken its place. The official end to all these times of troubles is 31 BCE when a naval battle called Actium happens and Octavian beats Mark Antony's naval forces working with Queen Cleopatra. They're now hooked up in one of the most famous romances of all time. And when Octavian wins, Mark Antony kills himself, and Cleopatra falls into Octavian's hands. He's famously, by the way, supposed to have visited Alexander the Great's tomb in Egypt while there. Some say he actually knocked Alexander's nose off of his mummy. Whatever the case, he let the Queen of Egypt know what he had planned for her. Remember, she's the one who has Caesar's son, now a young boy, at her side. Caesar's heir, Octavian, lets her know that she gets to march in a triumph in Rome, you know, shackled as a trophy. Historians seem to suggest that Octavian knew that a person with such a sense of self as Cleopatra would not stand for something like that. She commits suicide. Tradition holds with the bite of a snake, the snake being one of the iconic figures of Egyptian pharaonic rule going back forever. Caesar's son Caesarion will, of course, be butchered in the power games. And Octavian, who eventually becomes Augustus, will learn from you know, the man whose heir he was what mistakes you can't make. Caesar predicted what would happen when he died, and his heir was learning how not to fall into the same trap. Here's what historian Michael Grant says, quote, Caesar's prophecy was fulfilled. His assassination brought prolonged chaos and anarchy. Ever since that fateful day, the rights and wrongs of the deed have been disputed. Was it a noble act of tyrannicide or a brutal murder? Had the dead man in a short period of his supremacy merely destroyed the old order or creatively started a new one? 
To the first question, no simple answer is possible. Intolerable as the nobles found Caesar's autocracy, they themselves previously had governed the empire a very great deal worse. To the second question, the reply is that, although he had indeed destroyed the Republic, his formula for its replacement was so ludicrously unacceptable to the very men whose cooperation, or at least toleration, was indispensable, that a new order was scarcely even in sight. As a warning, therefore, to all those who came after him, his murder was invaluable. For the catastrophic experiment showed his successors, when the first of them began to emerge, what they must not do if they wanted to survive. End quote. What Caesar had taught Octavian is that you can take power away from the Senate and the nobles, but you can't rub their nose in the fact that they don't have it anymore. So Octavian allowed a fiction to exist, to allow these senators and great men in Rome to continue to be great men in Rome, just without any of the actual real power behind the scenes. It allowed them to maintain their dignitas, to continue to compete for all these honors that were so important to their ambition, to enhance their ancestor room so that their descendants had even more august people in their family tree to look up to. All those things that were so important to Roman society will be left intact. You just won't have any real power. Octavian, or Octavius, both names are correct and used interchangeably, especially by me, Octavian's, let's call it concession to reality when it comes to his dealing with the Roman competitive ambition problem is probably a good place to start asking the most common question, most popular question about this era that's asked by both historians and lay people, and that's what was the cause of death of the Roman Republic? The reason I think it's so fascinating to us all is because we all want to learn whatever lesson is there. And people seem to see in the Republic's fall what they want to see in terms of causes. The people who like to focus on the story, for example, from the economic justice question will point out things like the wealth disparity between the rich and poor that became so out of control during the later period. And they will talk about the political violence and everything that happened in Rome to tear it apart as subsidiary effects of that. Others will point at the obvious corruption in the system that had developed over the years. All that money and loot that had been a byproduct of Rome's amazing conquests over the previous century were coming into the system and finding its way into the government. And many of the ancient writers will look back on what were called the Numidian Wars in the early 100s as an example of a conflict that Rome didn't need to fight and probably didn't even want to fight, but there were financiers who had a lot of money who looked and wanted that area and put that money into the pockets of senators. Many people see the negative impact of money on the Roman political system as an example of you know, one of the causes of death, if not the cause of death. So government corruption, the bribing of the judges too was a problem because that made the Roman system of justice little more than a tool for people with money to use against their political enemies. Caesar feared nothing more than coming back to Rome without the protection of his governmental office because he was sure that lots of money was going to be spent getting him into a law court and bribing the 
judges so that he could be convicted and exiled. The corruption in the Roman system, the electoral buying of votes, the swaying of politicians with money, all of these things, proponents of this theory will say, will point out how so many aspects of the system devolved once they stopped running for purposes of the public good and started being motivated by the financial interests of the people that were providing the cash. Speaking of cash, that's another aspect of what some people have looked at the Roman system and divined the problem to be. H.G. Wells, the science fiction author and amateur historian, was the first person who ever wrote that I can tell about how perhaps the Roman finance system destroyed the republic. Wells's argument is that Rome's financial system was the first example of a modern world finance system, you know, on the modern models that you can find. That may or may not be true, but his point was that it was like a beta version of what the world would eventually adopt forever, and Rome had no experience in the pitfalls. They didn't have any previous examples that they could look to and learn from, as we're able to do, you know, from them. And Wells's contention is that the system became so complicated and so unmanageable that it just overwhelmed Rome's ability to adjust. It all happened too fast. It was too structural. The debt problems that uh, it brought on the system just created so many stresses that everything just cracked. One of the more interesting theories for modern people to look at is the one the ancients sometimes throw out there, that the problem was the mob. And by the way, this has influenced tons of people. The people who Americans refer to as the founding fathers were all people that looked to the Roman example and got scared of the mob, the people, the democracy, and tried to avoid you know, having the mob have control of their government, you know, and they wrote that into their constitution. The ancient writers will often look at how the people were flattered by these politicians who simply bought their allegiance and were then you know, providing this power for all sorts of radical measures that undermined all the things that had made Rome great. That, by the way, is probably how the people of Rome's traditional oligarchy would have looked at it, too. Cicero didn't like the people. Cato didn't like the people. Most of the people in the Senate from Rome's old oligarchy openly sneered at them in ways that just don't make sense to people in a country like the United States or Great Britain or any of the Western democracies, for example. This idea that the people are the source of all power is way too ingrained in us for us to be able to look at people who sneer at the people as a problem in the system rather than, you know, the basic germ it's all supposed to run on and for. Those people will argue that Rome's constitution was undermined by the tribune of the plebs. When Tiberius Gracchus took the tribune of the plebs and used it to propose legislation directly to the people's assembly, bypassing the Senate, which was the oligarchy that traditionally ran Rome, that's when everything started to go to heck in a handbasket, many people, especially ancient historians, will say. That the people undermined the traditional prerogatives of the Senate. They didn't have good governance in mind. They simply could be led around by the nose by promises of giving them stuff like free grain or debt relief or land reform or colonies or any of those things, and that they constantly led the republic in the wrong direction because demagogues cynically used them. It's a popular cause of death that especially ancient historians 
like to attribute to the toe tag on the Roman cadaver. Another cause of death that you sometimes get cited in Rome's Republic's fall, especially from military history nuts like yours truly, is the conversion of Rome's army from a citizen force to a professional force. Once it became an army that had an allegiance to a specific general rather than to the state as a whole, it became something that those generals could use as tools. If you wanted to point to one of the most profound differences between the situation in Republican Rome and the modern United States, which many people often see parallels between, it's the fact that in the United States, the politicians don't have personal armies, you know, running around with them. When Caius Marius solved a problem in the political system by simply allowing anyone to sign up to be a soldier, and those soldiers then had allegiance to that general, he fundamentally changed the Roman system by empowering the politicians with military force that owed allegiance to them instead of the state. Much of what happened in the era where Rome tumbled into the abyss could not have been possible with the old citizen armies of the Republic who simply would have gone home or who made up the sons and daughters of the elite oligarchy that men like Caesar were fighting against. Another reason often cited as the cause or a principal cause of the decline of the Roman Republic is one we've dealt with extensively here in this series. Maybe the odds-on favorite for the most popular choice in Rome's cause of death, the question of human ambition taken to extraordinary extremes. Rome, as we said earlier, is sort of like a cultural experiment. Can a society through cultural carrots and sticks take a human quality like ambition, which every culture, every population has a percentage of their population that is ambitious, and through the societal carrots and sticks, can you bump that percentage up? Rome, especially amongst its upper classes, fostered a mania for competition, and they had all sorts of ways to do it. The ancestor rooms, where the faces of a young person's dead ancestors on the wall, is one of my favorites. You get them from a very early age looking to compete with not just the other kids in the neighborhood amongst the upper classes, but against your heritage. And you were taught that you had this to live up to, and it was a huge amount of pressure. The competitive ambition in the Roman system had the same effect on it as gasoline would. It powered the whole system. It was the motivating prime mover. In fact, it really supercharged it. It was an accelerant. And when Rome was moving in a direction that was positive for the Roman state, this accelerant moved them down that road at a pace that was dizzying, even for people who lived through that era. It was famously, although not quite accurately, but famously said of Rome that they conquered the world in a generation. A lot of the credit for that has to go to the competition fostered amongst Rome's great men, the fact that they had a system where you could have more than one great man and they could compete with each other, and that gasoline of competitive ambition that supercharged you know, the speed at which Rome did all these things. The problem is, is that that's a double-edged sword. It also supercharged the speed of your progress when Rome started moving in directions that were negative for the Roman Republic. Rome supercharged its way right off the cliff when the competitive ambition began to be a negative quality for the Roman state instead of serving positive purposes. You can see 
with Octavian's move that we just spoke about, his decision to allow the great men of Rome to continue to have these contests over ambition and just take the real power away because the contests for ambition had been so drilled into the Roman system that they would fight and die over that. The power they could sacrifice just goes to show you how much this appearance of ambition and achievement meant to these great Roman figures and it's a testament to how much the cultural carrots and sticks had drilled that importance into them. If the ambition gone wild cause of death is the most popular one cited for the fall of the Roman Republic, perhaps the second most popular is the idea of the inability of a system designed to govern a city-state, you know, an Italian city like Rome that controlled some territory around it, its inability to then be tasked with running what Rome had become, the inability of Rome's constitution and political system to deal with what was a world empire. Much of the hundred years of Roman history we focused on in this podcast series revolved around constitutional questions. Rome had no written constitution. So absorbing all these changes in the Roman state from all the wealth that started pouring in to the increase in slavery to the changes in the Roman military system to the rise of the poor, all these things, the Italian allies and should they be citizens or not, all this stuff impacted the society in ways that Rome's mere city-state design may not have been able to deal with. Just look at what happened to their legal system to see how perhaps a complete redesign to deal with all sorts of new problems was needed. But there was no one who could impose that on the system. That's why you often see these talks amongst Romans in the era trying to rack their brains for solutions. And they'll say, maybe we need a moderator. Maybe we need someone who can come in when we can't agree on what the Constitution needs changed and change it and just impose it from above to keep the system working. There were all sorts of interesting ideas as to how you might fix this problem of a system that seemed ungovernable under its traditional mechanisms and ways. The last potential cause of death that readily comes to mind that you hear often is the so-called rise of the knights. And the knights, of course, are the traditional business class of Rome. They were called the equities, And it refers to how they used to be horsemen in the Roman military. By this time, that was more of a symbolic name. Now they were the the extreme business class. These weren't your street merchants. These were your, you know, business magnates. Your Bill Gates types. Your Warren Buffett types. Your Donald Trump types. And these Roman knights began to have a huge impact on the system as more and more money poured into Rome and more and more business and trade opportunities were opened up by Rome's conquests. These people got to profit from all that business because there was sort of a societal prohibition. It was more of a cultural thing that people in the snooty Senate, the members of the oligarchy, didn't dirty their hands with business. So normally these very wealthy Roman magnates who made their money on owning land would be the people that would snap up the money opportunities you know, given by Rome's conquest. But because of the cultural and class idea that business was somehow dirty and beneath these senators, they left a hole in the Roman commercial system that the next class below them, these knights, went in and exploited, becoming unbelievably wealthy. 
so wealthy, in fact, that they could challenge the importance of these other senators who got their place in the Roman system due to their name. These were the famous ancient Roman families whose position in the Senate was due to their blue blood. Now, all of a sudden, these upstarts with new names and men from families you'd never heard of but who had tons and tons of money began entering into the power scheme, changed the dynamic of everything. The giant growth of the second class in the Roman class system upset the Roman apple cart in the same way that the growth of the urban poor and their political power did. There are lots of other theories out there. Perhaps my favorite theory, not because I believe it, but because it it so clearly shows the differences between modern historians and pre-modern historians, and it's not something you hear very much now because modern historians simply don't write this way anymore for obvious reasons, is the idea that Rome's new generation of young people were unsound. That's the way Cicero put it once, where he said that you couldn't depend on the young people coming up in Rome because they were so... Perverted wasn't the word he used, but that's what he meant, perverted, badly raised, lacked the values, that they were unsound, as he said. All the Catalinarian gang, the cool crowd, all these degenerates is the way the upper-class old folks in Rome would look at it. These people were corrupted by the luxury that Rome's richness had provided for a generation that was raised unlike any of the other ones, especially since they grew up during the era of the civil wars and violence and the ideas and virtues that were always preached to them about the Roman system and its greatness were shown to be myths all around them as they grew up. They saw the corruption and the violence and the killing. The myth of Rome was having a hard time standing up to the reality of what these young people saw with their own eyes growing up. And their elders could not stand that about them. It looked unpatriotic, the way they conducted their lives looked un-Roman, and to Cicero, the whole thing looked unsound. And those people played their role in Rome's decline, if you buy into those theories, because they were radical and supported people like Julius Caesar and ideas of reform that fundamentally destroyed the very things that the oligarchy thought made Rome great. Remember, everybody in the conflict always proclaimed that they were fighting for Roman liberty and the Roman constitution. But both sides have different interpretations of what those words meant. One of the more shocking things for modern people to do is to go read the ancient sources like Appian and Plutarch and see how they seem to look back on Rome's republic from the imperial period and almost shudder a little bit. It shows a very different mindset than our own. We can only see the destruction of a 500-year-old republic as, you know, the beginning of a terrible time for Rome. These people who were actually living in that time saw it as an immense improvement. They saw a people that got out of control. The out-of-control created anarchy The anarchy created terrible civil wars and situations where awful things happen and divided the country. To them, the rule of one man provided unity. It provided safety. It provided stability. It's easy to see the trade-off that those people made 
as being a sucker's deal. They gave up their liberty. They gave up control of their government. What fools. At the same time, it's easy to throw stones, isn't it? They dealt with a hundred-year slide down into the fires of, you know, their version of Mount Doom. Lost hundreds of thousands of Romans on the way. Saw gangs take over the city and pull people out of their homes and torture them merely for which side of the political fence they decided to sit on. They saw politics in Rome turn into a game literally of murder incorporated. And they saw a system that simply ceased to function. What would you choose today if given the choice between civil war and one-man rule? Let me rephrase the question now so you can see it from a Roman's viewpoint in 44 BCE. What would you choose if you've already lived through a hundred years of civil war or one-man rule? I often think back to my grandfather's house when I was growing up, and he had a Native American saying up on his wall, and the saying is famous. It's, never judge another man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. When I look back on the people of the ancient Roman Republic, I often think that that saying seems to work just as well for societies as it does for individuals. I could never see personally making the same choice the Romans made when I look back on their history, but that's because I haven't lived through what they lived through. Let's hope I never get to walk a mile in their moccasins. And let's hope you don't either. For hardcore history t-shirts or other merchandise, go to dancarlin.com. Do you shop online at Amazon.com? If you do, consider doing so through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com. You get the same great Amazon shopping experience, and Dan and Ben get a piece of the action from Amazon for sending you there. A buck a show, it's all we ask, and we don't ask too many questions about where the money comes from. <laughs> 